Today on the Jay Doherty Podcast, former special counsel Robert Swan Mueller III is testifying live on Capitol Hill for a congressional testimony in front of the House Judiciary Committee. The Jay Doherty Podcast has live coverage and post analysis in the next episode. All that and more on this special edition of the Jay Doherty Podcast. This is a special edition of the Jay Doherty Podcast. And now, broadcasting live from downtown Chicago, here's your host, Jay Doherty. That's correct, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for joining us here. Uh, it is episode 93 of the Jay Doherty Podcast. We're coming on the air right now for a special edition. It is Wednesday, July 24th, 2019 at about 7.24 a.m. Central Standard Time. The Robert Mueller testimony that has been long awaited by many in Capitol Hill and around the country and even the world is starting in just a couple of minutes. We are going to talk about uh, we're going to cover the uh, whole event live right here on the Jay Doherty Podcast. This will also be available as a podcast uh, that you can get on all of the networks that we share. Our content by our special coverage today brought to you in part by Blueberry. Use my code J-A-Y-D-O-H-E-R-T-Y at checkout for one month free, and it helps support the show. The Mueller Report is 448 pages long, and Congress is going to try and ask questions that aren't included within the um, Mueller Report, that aren't answered in the Mueller Report, uh, because there were 951 redactions in the whole entire uh, you know, report, and there, Congress just has the right uh, for to to you know ask questions. So, uh, you know, what did what did these redactions hold? Was it damaging to the president? Were there was there any political uh, bias that was interjected by Mueller or any any other members of his team? Um, what was the process like? Things like that. Those are the questions we will most likely hear from Democrats, especially. But on the Republican side, it's really going to be interesting to see how they format this. Are they just going to yell at Mueller saying this is a total witch hunt? Are they going to agree with the president to help uh, support them be reelected because uh, their voters in their district appeal to Trump's base? We don't know. We'll see exactly what happens. We're, we're going to find out very, very soon. Uh, but I think what's really interesting is to see how much they'll actually get out of Mueller. Uh, basically, I, I think there's going to be a lot of uh, you know, look at the report. I, I direct you for more information to, you know, pay, volume number XYZ, page number XYZ. And I think that's what, you know, we're really going to see a lot of today. Uh, so I don't think it's, arguably, it's going to be incredibly eventful unless, uh, you know, it's really just more of a confirmation of what the report originally said and just having that, uh, Having Mueller actually there answering question make, questions makes it just a little bit more personal. But anyway, it uh, looks like the Mueller report is starting to begin. So we begin our official live coverage right here, right now, on episode 93 of the Jay Doherty podcast. Jerry Nadler right now swearing uh, Robert Mueller in. He is a Democrat from New York, the 10th district, and currently the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee. And he is swearing Robert Mueller in to ensure that his testimony is the whole truth, nothing but the truth, and does not withhold any information other than the information that would be sensitive to the president or any ongoing investigations. And with that, I begin our special coverage and future post analysis. The Judiciary Committee will come to order. Without objection, the chair is authorized to declare recesses of the committee at any time. We welcome everyone to today's hearing on oversight of the report on the investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election. I will now recognize myself for a brief opening statement. Director Mueller. 
Thank you for being here. I want to say just a few words about our themes today. Responsibility, integrity, and accountability. Your career, for example, is a model of responsibility. You are a decorated Marine officer. You were awarded a Purple Heart and the Bronze Star for Valor in Vietnam. You served in senior roles at the Department of Justice, and in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, you served as director of the FBI. Two years ago, you returned to public service to lead the investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 elections. You conducted that investigation with remarkable integrity. For 22 months, you never commented in public about your work, even when you were subjected to repeated and grossly unfair personal attacks. Instead, your indictments spoke for you and in astonishing detail. Over the course of your investigation, you obtained criminal indictments against 37 people and entities. You secured the conviction of President Trump's campaign chairman, his deputy campaign manager, his national security advisor, and his personal lawyer, among others. In the Paul Manafort case alone, you recovered as much as $42 million so that the cost of your investigation to the taxpayers approaches zero. And in your report, you offer the country accountability as well. In volume one, you find that the Russian government attacked our 2016 elections, quote, in a sweeping and systematic fashion, and that the attacks were designed to benefit the Trump campaign. Volume two walks us through 10 separate incidents of possible obstruction of justice, where in your words, President Trump attempted to exert undue influence over your investigation. The president's behavior included, and I quote from your report, quote, public attacks on the investigation, non-public efforts to control it, and efforts in both public and private to encourage witnesses not to cooperate, close quote. Among the most shocking of these incidents, President Trump ordered his White House counsel to have you fired and then to, to lie and deny that it had happened. He ordered his former campaign manager to convince the recused attorney general to step in and limit your work. And he attempted to prevent witnesses from cooperating with your investigation. Although department policy barred you from indicting the president for this conduct, you made clear that he is not exonerated. Any other person who acted in this way would have been charged with crimes. And in this nation, not even the president is above the law. Which brings me to this committee's work. Responsibility, integrity, and accountability. These are the marks by which we who serve on this committee will be measured as well. Director Mueller, we have a responsibility to address the evidence that you have uncovered. You recognize as much when you said, quote, the Constitution requires a process other than the criminal justice system to formally accuse a sitting president of wrongdoing, close quote. That process begins with the work of this committee. We will follow your example, Director Mueller. We will act with integrity. We will follow the facts where they lead. We will consider all appropriate remedies. We will make our recommendation to the House when our work concludes. We will do this work because there must be accountability for the conduct described in your report, especially as it relates to the President. Thank you again, Director Mueller. We look forward to your testimony. 
It is now my pleasure to recognize the ranking member of the Judiciary Committee, the gentleman from Georgia, Mr. Collins, for his opening statement. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you, Mr. Mueller, for being here. For two years leading up to the release of the Mueller report, and in the three months since, Americans were first told what to expect and then what to believe. Collusion, we were told, was in plain sight, even if the special counsel's team didn't find it. When Mr. Mueller produced his report and Attorney General Barr provided it to every American, we read no American conspired with Russia to interfere in our elections, but learned the depths of Russia's malice toward America. We are here to ask serious questions about Mr. Mueller's work, and we will do that. After an extended, unhampered investigation, today marks an end to Mr. Mueller's involvement in an investigation that closed in April. The burden of proof for accusations that remain unproven is extremely high, and especially in light of the special counsel's thoroughness. We are told this investigation began as an inquiry into whether Russia meddled in our 2016 election. Mr. Mueller, you concluded they did. Russians accessed Democrat servers and disseminated sensitive information by tricking campaign insiders into revealing protected information. The investigation also reviewed whether Donald Trump, the president, sought Russian assistance as a candidate to win the presidency. Mr. Mueller concluded he did not. His family or advisors did not. In fact, the report concludes no one in the president's campaign colluded, collaborated, or conspired with the Russians. The president watched the public narrative surrounding this investigation, assumes his, surrounding the evidence, assume his guilt while he knew the extent of his innocence. Volume two of Mr. Mueller's report details the president's reaction to frustrating investigation where his innocence was established early on. The president's attitude toward the investigation was understandably negative, yet the president did not use his authority to close the investigation. He asked his lawyer if Mr. Mueller had conflicts that disqualified Mr. Mueller from the job, but he did not shut down the investigation. The president knew he was innocent. Those are the facts of the Mueller report. Russia meddled in the 2016 election. The president did not conspire with the Russian, and nothing we hear today will change those facts. But one element of this story remains, the beginnings of the FBI investigation into the president. I look forward to Mr. Mueller's testimony about what he found during his review of the origins of the investigation. In addition, the Inspector General continues to review how baseless gossip can be used to launch an FBI investigation against a private citizen and eventually a president. Those results will be released and we will need to learn from them to ensure government intelligence and law enforcement powers are never again used and turned on a private citizen or a potential or a political candidate as a result of the political leanings of a handful of FBI agents. The origins and conclusions of the Mueller investigation are the same things, what it means to be American. Every American has a voice in our democracy, so it must protect the sanctity of their voice by combating election interference. Every American enjoys the presumption of innocence and guarantee of due process. If we carry nothing, anything away today, it must be that we increase our vigilance against foreign election interference while we ensure our government officials don't weaponize their power against the constitutional rights guaranteed to every U.S. citizen. Finally, we must agree that the opportunity cost here is too high. The months we have spent investigating from this dice fail to end the border crisis or contribute to the growing job market. Instead, we have gotten stuck and it's paralyzed this committee and this house. And as a side note, every week I leave my family and kids, the most important things to me, to come to this place because I believe this place is a place where we can actually do things and help people. Six and a half years ago, I came here to work on behalf of the people of the Ninth District in this country. And we accomplished a lot in those first six years on a bipartisan basis with many of my friends across the aisle sitting on this dais with me today. However, this year, because the majority's dislike 
of this president and the endless hearing into a closed investigation have caused us to accomplish nothing except talk about the problems of our country while our border is on fire in crisis and everything else is stopped. This hearing is long overdue. We've had truth for months. No American conspired to throw our election. What we need today is to let that truth bring us confidence and I hope, Mr. Chairman, closure. With that, I yield back. Thank you, Mr. Collins. I will now introduce today's witness. Robert Mueller served as director of the FBI from 2001 to 2013, and most recently served as special counsel in the Department of Justice, overseeing the investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 special election. He received his BA from Princeton University, an MA from New York University in my district, and his JD from the University of Virginia. Mr. Mueller is accompanied by, his, by counsel Aaron Zebley, who served as deputy special counsel on the investigation. We welcome our distinguished witness and we thank you for participating in today's hearing. Now, if you would please rise, I will begin by swearing you in. Would you raise your right hand, please? Or left hand. Do you swear or affirm under penalty of perjury that the testimony you're about to give is true and correct to the best of your knowledge, information, and belief? So help you God. Let the record show the witness answered the affirmative. Thank you and please be seated. Please note that your written statement will be entered into the record in its entirety. Accordingly, I ask that you summarize your testimony in five minutes. Director Mueller, you may begin. Good morning, Chairman Nadler, the, uh, and Ranking Member Collins, and the members of the committee. As you know, in May 2017, the Acting Attorney General asked me to serve as Special Counsel. I undertook, undertook that role because I believed that it was of paramount interest to the nation to determine whether a foreign adversary had interfered in the presidential election. As the acting attorney general said at the time, the appointment was necessary in order for the American people to have full confidence, confidence in the outcome. My staff and I carried out this assignment with that critical objective in mind to work quietly, thoroughly, and with integrity so that the public would have full confidence in the outcome. The order appointing me as special counsel directed our office to investigate Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election. This included investigating any links or coordination between the Russian government and individuals associated with the Trump campaign. It also included investigating efforts to interfere with or obstruct our investigation. Throughout the investigation, I continually stressed two things to the team that we had assembled. First, we needed to do our work as thoroughly as possible and as expeditiously as possible. It was in the public interest for our investigation to be complete, but not to last a day longer than was necessary. Second, the investigation needed to be conducted fairly and with absolute integrity. Our team would not leak or take other actions that could compromise the integrity of our work. All decisions were made based on the facts and the law. During the course of our investigation, we charged more than 30 defendants with committing federal crimes, including 12 officers of the Russian military 
Seven defendants have been convicted or pled guilty. Certain of the charges we brought remain pending today. And for those matters, I stress that the indictments contain allegations and every defendant is presumed innocent unless and until proven guilty. In addition to the criminal charges we brought, as required by Justice Department regulations, we submitted a confidential report to the Attorney General at the conclusion of our investigation. The report set forth the results of our work and the reasons for our charging and declination decisions. The Attorney General later made the, the report largely public. As you know, I made a few limited remarks, limited remarks about our report when we closed the Special Counsel's Office in May of this year. But there are certain points that bear emphasis. First, our investigation found that the Russian government interfered in our election in sweeping and systematic fashion. Second, the investigation did not establish that members of the Trump campaign conspired with the Russian government in its election interference activities. We did not address collusion, which is not a legal term. Rather, we focused on whether the evidence was sufficient to charge any member of the campaign with taking part in a criminal conspiracy, and it was not. Third, our investigation of efforts to obstruct the investigation and lie to investigators was of critical importance. Obstruction of justice strikes at the core of the government's effort to find the truth and to hold <coughs> wrongdoers accountable. Finally, as described in volume two of our report, we investigated a series of actions by the president towards the investigation. Based on Justice Department policy and principles of fairness, we decided we would not make a determination as to whether the president committed a crime. That was our decision then, and it remains our decision today. Let me say a further word about my appearance today. It is unusual for a prosecutor to testify about a criminal investigation. And given my role as a prosecutor, there are reasons why my testimony, testimony will necessarily be limited. First, public testimony could affect several ongoing matters. In some of these matters, court rules or judicial orders limit the disclosure of information to protect, to protect the fairness of the proceedings. And consistent with longstanding Justice Department policy, it would be inappropriate for me to comment in any way that could affect an ongoing matter. Second, the Justice Department has asserted privileges concerning investigative information and decisions, ongoing matters within the Justice Department and deliberations within our office. These are Justice Department privileges that I will respect. The Department has released a letter discussing the restrictions on my testimony. I therefore will not be able to answer questions about certain areas that I know are of public interest. For example, I am unable to address questions about the initial opening of the FBI's Russia investigation, which occurred months before my appointment, or matters related to the so-called Steele dossier. These matters are subject of ongoing review by the department, 
Any questions on these topics should therefore be directed to the FBI or the Justice Department. As I explained when we closed the Special Counsel's Office in May, our report contains our findings and analysis and the reasons for the decisions we made. We conducted an extensive investigation over two years. In writing the report, we stated the results of our in investigation with precision. We scrutinized every word. I do not intend to summarize or describe the results of our work in a different way in the course of my testimony today. And as I said on May 29th, the report is my testimony and I will stay within that text. And as I stated in May, I will not comment on the actions of the Attorney General or of Congress. I was appointed as a prosecutor, and I intend, intend to adhere to that role and to the department standards that govern it. I'll be joined today by Deputy Special Counsel Aaron Zebley. Mr. Zebley has extensive experience as a, pr a federal prosecutor and at the FBI where he served as my chief of staff. Mr. Zebley was responsible for the day-to-day -day oversight of the investigations conducted by our office. Now, I also want to again say thank you to the attorneys, the FBI agents, the analysts, the professional staff who helped us conduct this investigation in a fair and independent manner. These individuals who spent nearly two years of working on this matter were of the highest integrity. And let me say one more thing. Over the course of my career, I have seen a number of challenges to our democracy. The Russian government's effort to interfere in our election is among the most serious. And as I said on May 29th, this deserves the attention of every American. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. We will now proceed under the five-minute rule with questions. I will begin by recognizing myself for five minutes. Director Mueller, the President has repeatedly claimed that your report found there was no obstruction and that it completely and totally exonerated him. But that is not what your report said, is it? Correct. That is not what the report said. And now, reading from page two of volume two of your report that's on the screen, you wrote, quote, if we had confidence after a thorough investigation of the facts that the president clearly did not commit obstruction of justice, we would so state. Based on the facts and the applicable legal standards, however, we are unable to reach that judgment, close quote. Now, does that say there was no obstruction? No. In fact, you were actually unable to conclude the president did not commit obstruction of justice. Is that correct? Well, we... Uh uh, at the outset, uh, determined that we, uh, when it came to the, uh, the, the president's culpability, uh, we, needed to, uh, we, needed, we needed to go forward only after taking into account the OLC opinion that indicated that a president, a sitting president, cannot be uh, indicted. So the report did not conclude that he did not commit obstruction of justice? Is that correct? That is correct. And what about total exoneration? Did you actually totally exonerate the president? No. Now, in fact, your reports expressly states that it does not exonerate the president. It does. 
And your investigation actually found, quote, multiple acts by the president that were capable of exerting undue influence over law enforcement investigations, including the Russian interference and obstruction investigations. Is that correct? Correct. Now, Director Mueller, can you explain in plain terms what that finding means so the American people can understand it? Well, uh, the finding I indicates that uh, the president uh, uh, was not, uh, uh, that the president was not exculpa uh, exculpated uh, for the acts that uh, he allegedly committed. In fact, you were talking about incidents, quote, in which the president sought to use his official power outside of usual channels, unquote, to exert undue influence over your investigations. Is that right? That's correct. Now, am I correct that on page seven of volume two of your report, you wrote, quote, the president became aware that his own conduct was being investigated in an obstruction of justice inquiry. At that point, the president engaged in a second phase of conduct involving public attacks on the investigation, non-public efforts to control it, and efforts in both public and private to encourage witnesses not to cooperate with the investigation, close quote. So President Trump's efforts to exert undue influence over your investigation intensified after the president became aware that he personally was being investigated? I stick with the language that you have in front of you. Which? Which okay. comes from page seven, volume two. Now, is it correct that if you concluded that the president committed the crime of obstruction, you could not publicly state that in your report or here today? Can you repeat the question, sir? Is it correct that if you had concluded that the president committed the crime of obstruction, you could not publicly state that in your report or here today? Well, I would say uh, you uh, I could. Uh, the statement would be the, the, that you would not indict, and you would not indict because uh, under the OLC opinion, uh, a sitting president, <coughs> excuse me, cannot be indicted, be unconstitutional. Okay. So you could not state that because of the OLC opinion, if that would have been your conclusion? O OLC opinion uh, uh, was some guide, yes. But under DOJ, under Department of Justice policy, the president could be prosecuted for obstruction of justice crimes after he leaves office, is correct? True. Thank you. Did any senior White House official refuse a request to be interviewed by you and your team? I don't believe so. President. Well, I take, uh, let me take that back. I, I would have to look at it, but I'm not certain that that was the case. Did the president refuse the request to be interviewed by you and your team? Yes. Yes. And is it true that you tried for more than a year to secure an interview with the president? Yes. And is it true that you and your team advised the president's lawyer that, quote, an interview with the president is vital to our investigation? Close yes. quote. Yes. And is it true that you also St quote, stated that it is in the interest of the presidency and the public for an interview to take place, close quote? Yes. But the president still refused to sit for an interview by you or your team? True. True. And did you also ask him to provide written answers to questions on the 10 possible episodes of obstruction of justice crimes involving him? Yes. Did he provide any answers to a single question about whether he engaged in obstruction of justice crimes? I would have to check on that. I'm not certain. Director Mueller, we are grateful that you are here to explain your investigation and findings. Having reviewed your work, I believe anyone else would engage in the conduct described in your report would have been criminally prosecuted. Your work is vitally important to this committee and the American people because no one is above the law. Um, 
I now recognize the uh, gentleman from Georgia, Mr. Collins. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And we're moving, I know, understanding, just reiterating the five-minute rule. Mr. Mueller, I have several questions, many of which that you just answered will be con uh, questioned here in a moment, but I want to lay some foundation. So we'll go through these fairly quickly. I'll, I'll talk slowly. I'm said that I talk fast. I will talk slowly. Thank you, sir. In your press conference, you stated any testimony from your office would not go beyond our report. We chose these words carefully. The work speaks for itself. I would not provide information beyond that which is already public in any appearance before Congress. Do you stand by that statement? Yes. Since closing the special counsel's office in May of 2019, have you conducted any additional interviews or obtained any new information in your role as special counsel? In the, in the, in the wake of the report? Since the, since the closing of the office in May of 2019. And uh, the question was... Have you conducted any, any new interviews and any new witnesses, no. anything? And you can confirm you're no longer special counsel, correct? I am no longer special counsel. At any time of the investigation, was your investigation curtailed or, curtailed or stopped or hindered? No. Were you or your team provided any questions by members of Congress of the majority ahead of your hearing today? No. Your report states that your investigative team included 19 lawyers and approximately 40 FBI agents and analysts and accountants. Are those numbers accurate? Uh, could you repeat that, please? 40 FBI agents, 19 lawyers, intelligence analysts, and forensic accountants. Are those numbers accurate? This was Generally, included in yes. your report. Generally, yes. Is it also true that you issued over 2,800 subpoenas, executed nearly 500 search warrants, obtained more than 230 orders for communication records, and 50 pen registers? Uh, that went a little fast for me. Okay. In your report, I'll make this very simple. You did a lot of work, correct? Yes, that I agree to. A lot to. of subpoenas, a lot of pen registers. A lot of subpoenas. Yes. Okay, we'll walk this really slow if we need to. A lot of to. search warrants. That's a... All right, a lot of search warrants, a lot of things. So you're very thorough. You what? In your opinion, very thorough. You listed yes. this out in your yes. report, correct? Yes. Yes. Thank you. Is it true the evidence gathered during your investigation, uh, given the questions that you have just answered, is it true the evidence gathered during your investigation did not establish that the president was involved in the underlying crime related to Russian election interference as stated in volume one, page seven? We found uh, insufficient uh, evidence of uh, uh, the president's cul culpability uh, so that would be a yes. Without, I'm pardon? pardon? That would be a yes. Yes. That's, thank you. Isn't it true the evidence did not establish that the president or those close to him were involved in the charged Russian computer hacking or active measure conspiracies or that the president otherwise had unlawful relationships with any Russian official? Volume 2, page 76. Correct? I, I uh, leave the answer to the uh, our report. So it was a yes. Is that any true? Your investigation did not establish that members of the Trump campaign conspired or coordinated with Russian government in the election interference activity. Volume one, page two. Volume one, page 173. Thank you. Yes. Yes, thank you. Although your report states collusion is not so specific offense, and you've said that this morning, or a term of art in federal criminal law, conspiracy is, in the colloquial context, are collusion and conspiracy essentially synonymous terms? You're going to have to repeat that for me. Collusion is not a specific offense or a term of art in the federal criminal law. Conspiracy is. Yes. In the colloquial context, known public context, collusion, collusion and conspiracy are essentially synonymous terms, correct? No. 
If no, on page 180 of volume one of your report, you wrote, as defined in legal dictionaries, collusion is largely synonymous with conspiracy as that crime is set forth in the general federal conspiracy statute 18 U.S.C. 371. Thank you me. said at your May 29th press conference and here today, you choose your words carefully. Are you sitting here today testifying something different than what your report states? Well, what I'm asking is if you can give me the citation, I can look at the citation and uh, evaluate whether it is. Accurate. Okay, let me just be clarified. You stated that you would stay within the report. I just stated your report back to you. And you said that collusion, collusion and conspiracy were not synonymous terms. That was your answer was no. That's correct. In that, page 180 of volume one of your report, it says, as defined in legal dictionaries, collusion is largely synonymous with conspiracy as that crime is set forth in general conspiracy statute 18 U.S.C. 371. Now, you said you chose your words carefully. Are you contradicting your report right now? Not when I read it. So you would change your answer to no, yes then? No. The, uh, if you look at the language. I'm reading your report, sir. It's yeah, a yes or no page, answer. Page 180. Page 180, volume one. Okay. This was from your report. Correct. And I, uh, I, I uh, leave it with the uh, report. So the report says, yes, they are synonymous. Yes. Hopefully for finally, out of your own report, we can put to bed the collusion and conspiracy. One last question as we're going through. Did you ever look into other in countries investigated in the Russian uh, interference into our election? Were other countries investigated or found I, knowledge that they I, had I, interference in our election? I'm not going to discuss uh, other matters. That I yield back. Gentleman yields back, the gentlelady from California. Director Mueller, as you've heard from the chairman, we're mostly going to talk about obstruction of justice today, but the investigation of Russia's attack that started your investigation is why evidence of possible obstruction is serious. To what extent did the Russian government interfere in the 2016 presidential election? Could you repeat that, ma'am? To what extent did the Russian government interfere in the 2016 presidential election? Well, it, uh, particularly when it came to uh, computer crimes and the like, uh, the government was implicated. So you wrote on, in volume one that the Russian government interfered in the 2016 presidential election in sweeping and systematic uh, fashion. You also described in your report that the then-Trump campaign chairman, Paul Manafort, shared with a Russian operative, Kalimnik, the campaign strategy for winning Democratic votes in Midwestern states in internal polling data of the campaign. Isn't that correct? Correct. They, they also discussed the status of the Trump campaign and Manafort's strategy for winning Democratic votes in Midwestern states. Months before that meeting, Manafort had caused internal data to be shared with Kalimnik, and the sharing continued for some period of time after their August meeting. Isn't that correct? Accurate. In fact, your investigation found that Manafort briefed Kalimnik on the state of the Trump campaign and Manafort's plan to win the election, and that briefing encompassed the campaign's messaging, its internal polling data. It also included discussion of battleground states, which Manafort identified as Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Minnesota. Isn't that correct? That's correct. Did your investigation determine who requested the polling data to be shared with Kalimnik? Well, I, I would... Uh, uh direct you to the report and adopt what we have in the report with regard to that particular we, issue. We don't have the redacted version. That's maybe another reason why we should get that for volume one. Based on your investigation, 
how could the Russian government have used this campaign polling data to further its sweeping and systematic interference in the 2016 presidential That's election? That's a little bit out of uh, our, our uh, uh, path. Fair enough. Um, did your investigation find that the Russian government perceived it would benefit from one of the candidates winning? Yes. And which candidate would that be? Well, it uh, would be Trump. Uh, Trump. Correct. Uh, now, the Trump campaign wasn't exactly reluctant to take Russian help. You wrote uh, it expected it would benefit electorally from information stolen and released through Russian efforts. Isn't that correct? That's correct. Now, was the investigation's uh, determination, uh, what was the investigation's determination regarding the frequency with which the Trump campaign made contact with the Russian government? Well, uh, I would have to refer you to the report on that. Well, we went through and we counted 126 co uh, contacts between uh, Russians or their agents and uh, Trump campaign uh, officials or their associates. So would that sound about right? Uh, I, I can't say. I, I understand the statistic and uh, I believe it. I understand the statistic. Well, Mr. Mellor, I appreciate your being here and your report. From your testimony and the report, I think the American people have learned several things. First, the Russians wanted Trump to win. Second, the Russians went on a sweeping cyber influence campaign. The Russians hacked the DNC and they got the Democratic game plan for the election. The Russian campaign chairman met with Russian agents and repeatedly gave them internal data, polling, and messaging in the battleground states. So while the Russians were buying ads and creating propaganda to influence the outcome of the election, they were armed with inside information that they had stolen through hacking from the DNC and that they had been given by the Trump campaign uh, chairman, Mr. Manafort. My colleagues will probe the efforts undertaken uh, to keep this information from becoming public, but I think it's important for the American people to understand the gravity of the underlying problem that your report uncovered. And with that, Mr. Chairman, I would yield back. Good morning, Director. Uh, if you'll let me quickly summarize your opening statement this morning. You said in volume one on the issue of conspiracy, the special counsel determined that the investigation did not establish that members of the Trump campaign conspired or coordinated with the Russian government in its election interference activities. And then in volume two, for reasons that you explained, the special counsel did not make a determination on whether there was an obstruction of justice crime committed by the president. Is that fair? Yeah. Yes, sir. All right, now in explaining that special counsel did not make what you called a traditional prosecution or declination decision, the report on the bottom of page two of volume two reads as follows. The evidence we obtained about the president's actions and intent presents difficult issues that prevent us from conclusively determining that no criminal conduct occurred. Accordingly, while this report does not conclude that the president committed a crime, it also does not exonerate him. Now, uh, I read that correctly? Yes. All right. Now, your report, and today you said at all times the special counsel team operated under, was guided by, and followed Justice Department policies and principles. So 
Which DOJ policy or principle sets forth a legal standard that an investigated person is not exonerated if their innocence from criminal conduct is not conclusively determined? Can you repeat the last part of that question? Yeah. Which DOJ policy or principle set forth a legal standard that an investigated person is not exonerated if their innocence from criminal conduct is not conclusively determined? Um, Where does that language come from, Director? Where is the DOJ policy that says that? Can you, let me make it easier. Can you give me an example other than Donald Trump where the Justice Department determined that an investigated person was not exonerated because I, their I, innocence was not conclusively determined? I, I, I cannot, but this is a unique okay, situation. Okay, well, I, you can't, time is short, I've got five minutes. Let's just leave it at, you can't find it because I'll tell you why, it doesn't exist. The special counsel's job, nowhere does it say that you were to conclusively determine Donald Trump's innocence or that the special counsel report should determine whether or not to exonerate him. It's not in any of the documents. It's not in your appointment order. It's not in the special counsel regulations. It's not in the OLC opinions. It's not in the justice manual. And it's not in the principles of federal prosecution. Nowhere do those words appear together because respectfully, respectfully, director, it was not the special counsel's job to conclusively determine Donald Trump's innocence or to exonerate him because the bedrock principle of our justice system is a presumption of innocence. It exists for everyone. Everyone is entitled to it, including sitting presidents. And because there is a presumption of innocence, prosecutors never, ever need to conclusively determine it. Now, Director, the special counsel applied this inverted burden of proof that I can't find and you said doesn't exist anywhere in the department policies and you used it to write a report and the very first line of your report the very first line of your report says and you as you read this morning it authorizes the special counsel to provide the attorney general with a confidential report explaining the prosecution or declination decisions reached by the special counsel that's the very first word of your report right that's correct here's the problem director the special counsel didn't do that on volume one, you did. On volume two, with respect to potential obstruction of justice, the special counsel made neither a prosecution decision or a declination decision. You made no decision. You told us this morning and in your report that you made no determination. So respectfully, director, you didn't follow the special counsel regulations. It clearly says, write a confidential report about decisions reached. Nowhere in here does it say, write a report about decisions that weren't reached. You wrote 180 pages, 180 pages about decisions that weren't reached, about potential crimes that weren't charged or decided. And respectfully, respectfully, by doing that, you managed to violate every principle and the most sacred of traditions about prosecutors not offering extra prosecutorial analysis about potential crimes that aren't charged. So Americans need to know this as they listen to the Democrats and socialists on the other side of the aisle, as they do dramatic readings from this report, that volume two of this report was not authorized under the law to be written. It was written to a legal standard that does not exist at the Justice Department. And it was written in violation of every DOJ principle about extra prosecutorial commentary. I agree with the chairman this morning when he said Donald Trump is not above the law. He's not. But he damn sure shouldn't be below the law, which is where volume two of this report puts him.
Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Director Muller, good morning. Your exchange with the gentlelady from California demonstrates what is at stake. The Trump campaign chair, Paul Manafort, was passing sensitive voter information and polar data to a Russian operative. And there were so many other ways that Russia subverted our democracy. Together with the evidence in volume one, I cannot think of a more serious need to investigate. So now I'm going to ask you some questions about obstruction of justice as it relates to volume two. On page 12 of volume two, you state, we determined that there were a sufficient factual and legal basis to further investigate potential obstruction of justice issues involving the president. Is that correct? And uh, do you have the citations, ma'am? Page 12, volume two. And which portion of that page? That is, we determined that there was a sufficient factual and legal basis to further investigate potential obstruction of justice issues involving the president. Is that correct? Yes. Your report also describes at least 10 separate instances of possible obstruction of justice that were investigated by you and your team. Is that correct? Yes. In fact, the table of contents uh, serves as a very good guide uh, of some of the acts of that obstruction of justice that you investigated, and I put it up on the screen. On page 157 of volume two, you describe those acts, and they range from the president's effort to curtail the special counsel's investigation, the president's further efforts to have the attorney general take over the investigation, the president's orders Don McGahn to deny that the president tried to fire the special counsel, and many others. Is that correct? Yes. I direct you now uh, to uh, what you wrote, Director Mueller. The president's pattern of conduct as a whole sheds light on the nature of the president's acts and the inferences that can be drawn about his intent. Does that mean you have to investigate all of his conduct to ascertain true motive? No. And when you talk about the president's pattern of conduct that include the 10 possible acts of obstruction that you investigated, is that correct? When you talk about the president's pattern of conduct, that would include the 10 possible acts of obstruction that you investigated, correct? I, I direct you to the report for how that is characterized. Thank you. Let me go to the screen again. And for each of those 10 potential instances of obstruction of justice, you analyze three elements of the crime of obstruction of justice. An obstructive act, a nexus between the act and an official proceeding, and corrupt intent. Is that correct? Yes. You wrote on page 178, volume 2, in your report about corrupt intent. Actions by the president to end a criminal investigation into his own conduct to protect against personal embarrassment or legal liability would constitute a core example of corruptly motivated conduct. Is that correct? Yes. To the screen again, even with the evidence you did find, is it true, as you note on page 76 of volume 2, that the evidence does indicate that a thorough FBI investigation would uncover facts about the campaign and the president personally that the president could have understood to be crimes or that would give rise to legal, personal, and political concerns. I, re I rely on the language of the report. Is that relevant to potential obstruction of justice? Is that relevant to potential obstruction of justice? Yes. You further elaborate on page 157, obstruction of justice can be motivated by a desire to protect non-criminal personal interests, to protect against investigations where underlying criminal liability falls into a gray area, or to avoid personal uh, embarrassment. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, I have on the screen, 
Is that correct on the screen? Can you, can you uh, repeat the question now that I have the uh, language on the screen? Is it correct? Uh, as you further elaborate, obstruction of justice can be motivated by a direct desire to protect non-criminal personal interests, yeah. to protect against investigations where underlying criminal liability falls into a gray area, yes. or to avoid. Is that true? Yes. And is it true that the impact... Uh, 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 pardon? Can you read the last question? The last question was... I want to make certain I got it accurate. No, the last question was the language on uh, the uh, screen asking you if that's correct. Yes. Okay. Uh, does a conviction of obstruction of justice uh, result potentially in a lot of years of uh, a lot of years of of time in jail? Yes. Well, again, can you repeat the the question just to make certain that I have it accurate? Uh, does obstruction of justice warrant a lot of time in in uh, jail yes. if you were convicted? Yes. And is time of the gentlelady has expired. Uh, uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Uh, let me begin by reading the special counsel regulations by which you were appointed. It reads, quote, at the conclusion of the special counsel's work, he or she shall provide the attorney general with a confidential report explaining the prosecution or declinations decisions reached by the special counsel. That correct? Yes. Okay. Now, when a regulation uses the word shall provide, does it mean that the individual is in fact obligated to provide what's being demanded by the regulation or statute, meaning you don't have any wiggle room, right? I'd have to look more closely at the statute. Well, I just read it to you. Okay. Now, volume two, page one, your report boldly states we determined not to make a traditional prosecutorial, prosecutorial judgment. Is that correct? Uh, I'm trying to find that uh, citation, uh, Congressman. Director, could you speak more directly into the microphone, please? Yes. Thank you. Well, it's volume two, page Mr. Chairman, uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, volume two, page one, it said, we determined not to make a traditional prosecutorial judgment. Yes. That's right in the beginning. Now, since you decided under the OLC opinion that you couldn't prosecute a sitting president, meaning President Trump, why did we have all of this uh, investigation of President Trump that the other side is talking about when you knew that you weren't going to prosecute him? Well, uh, you don't know where the investigation is going to lie, and the OLC opinion itself says that you can continue the investigation even though you are not going to uh, indict the president. Okay, well, uh, if you're not going to indict the president, then you just continue fishing, and uh, that's, you know, that's my, ob my observation. You know, well, sure, sure you, sure you, uh, my time is limited, sure you can indict other people, but you can't indict the sitting president, right? That's true. Okay. Now, there are 182 pages in raw evidentiary material, including hundreds of references to 302, which are interviews by the FBI, for individuals who have never been cross-examined and which did not comply with the special counsel's governing regulation to explain the prosecution or declination decisions reached. Correct? And where are you reading from on that? I'm reading from my question. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, then could you repeat it? Okay. 
It have 182 pages of raw evidentiary material with hundreds of references to 302s who were never been cross-examined and which didn't comply with the governing regulation to explain the prosecution or declaration, declination decisions reached. This is one of those uh, areas which I declined to discuss. Uh, okay, I, then let And I would direct you to the report itself. Okay. What, well, I looked at the 182 that pages issue. of it. You know, let me switch gears. Mr. Shabbat and I were on this committee during the Clinton impeachment. Now, while I recognize that the independent counsel statute under which Kenneth Starr operated is different from the special counsel statute, he, in a number of occasions in his report, stated that the President Clinton's actions may have risen to impeachable conduct, recognizing that it is up to the House of Representatives to determine what conduct is impeachable. You never use the term raising to impeachable conduct for any of the 10 instances that the gentlewoman from Texas uh, did. Is it true that there's nothing in volume two of the report that says that the president may have engaged in impeachable conduct? Well, uh, we have studiously uh, kept in the, the center of our investigation the, our mandate. And our mandate does not go to other ways of addressing conduct. Our mandate goes to uh, what uh, developing the report well, and know, turning the report into the know, Attorney General. With due respect, you know, it's, it seems to me, you know, that there are a couple of statements that you made, you know, that said that this is not for me to decide, and the implication is, is that this is for this committee to decide. Now, you didn't use the word impeachable conduct like Starr did. There was no statute to prevent you from using the word impeachable conduct. And I go back to what Mr. Radcliffe said, and that is, is that even the president is innocent until proven guilty. I, my time is up. Gentlemen's time has expired. The uh, gentleman from Tennessee. Thank you, Mr. Chair. First, I'd just like to re re restate that Mr. Nadler said about your career, it's a model of rectitude, and I thank you. Based upon your investigation, how did President Trump react to your appointment as special counsel? Again, I uh, send you the report for uh, uh, where that is stated. Well, there is a quote from page 78 of your report, volume two, which reads, when Sessions told the president that a special counsel had been appointed, the president slumped back in his chair and said, quote, Oh my God, this is terrible. This is the end of my presidency. I'm effed, unquote. Did Attorney General Sessions tell you about that little talk? Uh, I'm not Director, sure. please speak into the microphone. Oh, surely. My, my apologies. Um, I am not certain of the, the person who originally uh, uh, copied that quote. Okay, well, Sessions apparently said it, and one of his aides had it in his notes, too, which I think you had, but, but that's become record. He wasn't pleased. He probably wasn't pleased with the special counsel, and particularly you, because of your outstanding reputation. Correct. Prior to your appointment, the Attorney General recused himself from the investigation because of his role in the 2016 campaign. Is that not correct? Correct. Recusal means the Attorney General could not be involved in the investigation. Is that correct? That's the effect of recusal, yes. And so instead, another Trump appointee, as you 
uh, no, Mr. Sessions was. Mr. Rosenstein became in charge of it. Is that correct? Yes. Wasn't Attorney General Sessions following the rules and professional advice of the Department of Justice ethics folks when he recused himself from the investigation? Yes. And yet the President repeatedly expressed his displeasure at Sessions' decision to follow those ethics rules to recuse himself from oversight of that investigation. Is that not correct? That's accurate based on what is written in the report. And the President's reaction uh, to the recusal is noted in the report. Mr. Bannon recalled that the President was mad, as mad as Bannon had ever seen him, and he screamed at McGahn about how weak Sessions was. Do you recall that from the report? That's in the report, yes. Despite knowing that Attorney General Sessions was supposed to be in, was not supposed to be involved in the investigation, the President still tried to get the Attorney General to unrecuse himself after you were appointed special counsel. Uh, is that correct? Yes. In fact, your investigation found that at some point after your appointment, quote, the President called Sessions at his home and asked if he would unrecuse himself. Is that not true? It's true. Now, that wasn't the first time the President asked Sessions to unrecuse himself, was it? I know there were at least two occasions. And one of them was with Flynn, and one of them was when Sessions and McGahn flew to Mar-a-Lago to meet with the President. Sessions recalled that the President pulled him aside to speak alone and suggested he should do this unrecusal act. Correct? Correct. And then when Michael Flynn, a few days after Flynn entered a guilty plea for lying to federal agents and indicated his intent to cooperate with that investigation, Trump asked to speak to Sessions alone again in the Oval Office and again asked Sessions to unrecuse himself. True? Uh, I refer you to the uh, report for that. Page 109, volume 2. Thank you, sir. Do you know of any point when the President personally expressed anger or frustrations <coughs> at Sessions? I'd have to pass on that. Do you recall, and I think it's at page 78 of volume 2, the President told Sessions, you were supposed to protect me. You were supposed to protect me or words to that effect. Correct. And is the Attorney General supposed to be the Attorney General of the United States of America or the consigliari for the President? Uh, United States of America. Thank you, sir. In fact, you wrote in your report that the President repeatedly sought to convince Sessions to unrecuse himself so Sessions could supervise the investigation in a way that would restrict its scope. Is that correct? I rely on the, uh, the report. How could Sessions have restricted the scope of your investigation? Uh, well, I'm not going to uh, speculate. Uh, if he, uh, quite obviously, if he took over or was uh, Attorney General, he would have greater latitude in his actions that uh, uh, would uh, enable him to do things that otherwise he could not. On page 113, you said the President believed that an unrecused Attorney General would play a protective role and could shield the President from the ongoing investigation. Regardless of all that, I want to thank you, Director Mueller, for your life of rectitude and service to our country. It's clear from your report and the evidence that the President wanted former Attorney General Sessions to violate the Justice Department ethics rules by taking over your investigation and improperly interfering with it to protect himself and his campaign. Your findings are so important because in America, nobody is above the law. I yield back the balance of my time. Thank the gentleman for yielding back. The gentleman from Ohio. Thank you. Uh, Director Mueller, my Democratic colleagues were very disappointed in your report. They were expecting you to say something uh, along the lines of, here's uh, why President Trump deserves to be impeached, much as Ken Starr did uh, relative to President Clinton uh, back about 20 years ago. Well, you didn't. Uh, so their strategy had to change. 
Now they allege that there's plenty of evidence uh, in your report to impeach the president, but the American people just didn't read it. And this hearing today is their last best hope to build up some sort of groundswell across America to impeach President Trump. That's what this is really all about uh, today. Now, a few questions. On page uh, 103 of volume two of your report, when discussing the June 2016 Trump Tower meeting, uh, you reference, quote, the firm that produced steel reporting, unquote. The name of that firm was Fusion GPS. Is that correct? And you're on page 103? 103, that's correct, volume two. When you talk about the, the firm that produced the steel reporting, uh, the name of the firm that produced that was Fusion GPS. Is that correct? Well, I, I'm not familiar uh, uh, with uh, with that. I, well, uh, let, you, let me just help you. you. Up, it it I, was. I, I, it's not. It's not a trick question. Or anything. It was Fusion GPS. Now, Fusion GPS produced the opposition research document, wide, widely known as the Steele dossier, and the owner of Fusion GPA was uh, someone named Glenn Simpson. Are, are you familiar with? Yeah, this is outside my purview. Um, Glenn Simpson was never mentioned in the 448-page Mueller report, was he? Well, this is, as I say, it's outside my purview, and it's being handled in the department by others. Okay. Well, he, he was not. Uh, 448 pages, the, the owner of Fusion GPS uh, that did the Steele dossier that started all this, uh, he, he's not mentioned in there. Let me move on. Uh, at the same time uh, Fusion GPS was working to collect opposition research on Donald Trump uh, from foreign sources on behalf of the Clinton campaign and the Democratic National Committee, it also was representing a Russian-based company, Prevazon, which had been sanctioned by the U.S. government. Uh, are you aware of that? It's outside my purview. Okay, thank you. One of the key players uh, in the, I'll go to something different, um, one of the key players in the June 2016 Trump Tower meeting was Natalia Vizinetska, uh, who you described in your report as a Russian attorney who advocated uh, for the repeal of the Magnitsky Act. Uh, Vizinetska had been working with none other than Glenn Simpson and Fusion GPS since at least early 2014. Um, are, are you aware of that? Outside my purview. Thank you. But uh, you didn't mention that or her connections uh, to Glenn Simpson at Fusion uh, GPS uh, in, in your report at all. Um, let me move on. Now, NBC News has reported the following, quote, Russian lawyer Natalia Vizinetskia says she first received the supposedly incriminating information she brought to Trump Tower describing alleged tax evasion and donation to Democrats from none other than Glenn Simpson, the Fusion GPS owner. Um, you didn't include that in the report, and I assume no, you're saying it's, that it's would be a matter being handled by others at the Department of Justice. Okay, thank you. Um, now, your report spends 14 pages discussing the June 9th, 2016 Trump Tower meeting. Um, it would be fair to say, would it not, that you spent significant resources investigating that meeting? Well, I, I refer you to the, uh, uh, the report. Okay, and, and President Trump wasn't at the meeting. No, you're aware of that. Thank you. Now, in stark contrast to the actions of the Trump campaign, we know that the Clinton campaign did pay Fusion GPS to gather dirt on the Trump campaign from persons associated with foreign governments. 
um, but your report doesn't mention a thing about Fusion GPS uh, in it, and you didn't investigate Fusion GPS's connections to Rostria. So let me just ask you this. Um, can you see that from neglecting to mention Glenn Simpson and Fusion GPS's involvement with the Clinton campaign, to focusing on a brief meeting at the Trump Tower that produced nothing, to ignoring the Clinton campaign's own ties to Fusion GPS, why some view your report as a pretty one-sided attack on the president? Well, I, have, uh, I tell you, this is still outside my purview. All right, and I, I would just note finally that uh, I guess it's just by chance, by coincidence, that the things left out of the report tended to be favorable to the president. My time's expired. Thank you, uh, Director Muller. I'd like to get us back on track here. Your investigation found that President Trump directed White House Counsel Don McGahn to fire you. Isn't that correct? True. And the president claimed that he wanted to fire you because you had supposed conflicts of interest. Isn't that correct? True. Now, you had no conflicts of interest that required your removal. Isn't that a fact? That's correct. And in fact, Don McGahn advised the president that the asserted conflicts were, in his words, silly and not real conflicts. Isn't that true? I refer to the report on that episode. Well, page 85 of volume two speaks to that. And uh, also, Director Muller, DOJ ethics officials confirmed that you had no conflicts that would prevent you from serving as special counsel. Isn't that correct? That's correct. But despite Don McGahn and the Department of Justice guidance, around May 23rd, 2017, the president, quote, prodded McGahn to complain to Deputy Attorney General Rosenstein about these supposed conflicts of interest, correct? Correct. And McGahn declined to call Rosenstein, or Rosenstein, I'm sorry, telling the president that it would look like still trying to meddle in the investigation and knocking out Mueller would be another fact used to claim obstruction of justice. Isn't that correct? Generally so, yes. And in other words, uh, Director Mueller, the White House counsel told the president that if he tried to remove you, that that could be another basis to allege that the president was obstructing justice, correct? Uh, uh, that is generally correct, yes. Now, I'd like to review what happened after the president was warned about obstructing justice. On Tuesday, you, June... Have, I'm sorry, Congressman, do you have a citation for the... On, uh, yes, uh, volume uh, 2, page 81. Thank you. And 82. Now, I'd like to review what happened after the president was warned about obstructing justice. Uh, it's true that on Tuesday, June 13, 2017, the president dictated a press statement stating he had, quote, no intention of firing you, correct? Correct. But the following day, June 14th, the media reported for the first time that you were investigating the president for obstructing of justice, correct? Correct. And then, after learning for the first time that he was under investigation, the very next day, the president, quote, issued a series of tweets acknowledging the existence of the obstruction investigation and criticizing it. Isn't that correct? Generally so. And then, on Saturday, June 17th, two days later, 
the president called Don McGahn at home from Camp David on a Saturday to talk about you. Isn't that correct? Correct. What was the significant, uh, uh, what was significant about that first weekend phone call that Don McGahn uh, took from President uh, Trump? Well, I'm going to ask you to rely on what we uh, wrote about those. Well, you wrote in your report that on uh, at page 85, volume 2, that on Saturday, June 17, 2017, the president called McGahn at home to have the special counsel removed. Now, did the president call Don McGahn more than once that day? Well, I gave... Uh, I, I think it was two calls. I'm sorry on, about that. On page 85 of your report, you wrote, quote, on the first call... McGahn recalled that the president said something like, quote, you got to do this, you got to call Rod, correct? Correct. And your investigation and report found that Don McGahn was perturbed, uh, to use your words, by the president's request to call Rod Rosenstein to fire him. Isn't that correct? Well, there, there was a continuous uh, uh, colloquy. I, I would, no, it was a continuous involvement of uh, Don McGahn uh, and he in, uh, responding to the uh, president's entreaties. And he did not want to uh, put himself in the middle of that. He did not want to have a role in asking the attorney general to fire the special counsel, correct? Well, I would, again, uh, refer you to the uh, report and the way it is characterized in the report. Thank you. At volume uh, 2, page 85, it states that he didn't want to have the attorney general he didn't want to have a role in trying to fire the attorney general. So at this point, uh, I will yield back. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Mr. Mueller, well, first, let me ask a unanimous consent, Mr. Chairman, to submit uh, this article, Robert Mueller Unmasked, for the record. Without objection. Now, Mr. Mueller, who wrote the nine-minute comments you read at your May 29th press conference? Uh, I'm not going to get into that. Okay, so that's what I thought. You didn't write it. A 2013 puff piece in The Washingtonian about Comey said basically when Comey called, you'd drop everything you were doing. It gave examples. You're having dinner with your wife and daughter. Comey calls, you drop everything and go. Uh, it, the article quoted Comey as saying, if a train were coming down the track, and I quote, at least Bob Mueller will be standing on the tracks with me. Yeah. Uh, you and James Comey have been good friends or were good friends for, a, for many years, correct? No, we were business associates. We both started off in the Justice Department about this You were good time. friends. You can work together and not be friends, but you we and were Comey friends. were friends. We were friends. That's my question. Thank you for getting to the answer. Now, before you were appointed a special counsel, uh, had you talked to James Comey in the preceding six months? No. Uh, when you were appointed as special counsel, uh, was President uh, Trump's firing of Comey something you anticipated investigating, potentially obstruction of I'm justice? I'm not going to get into that. That's the internal deliberations in the Justice Department. Actually, it goes to your credibility, and maybe you've been away from the courtroom for a while. Credibility is always relevant. It's always material, and that goes for you, too. You're a witness before us. Let me ask you, when you talked to President Trump the day before he appointed you, or you were appointed as special counsel, 
you were talking to him about FBI director position again. Uh, did he but mention the firing a, of James not, Comey? Not as a candidate. I was asked. Did he mention the firing of James Comey in your discussion with him? Cannot remember. Pardon? Cannot remember. I don't believe so, you but I'm not going to be specific. You don't remember. But if he did, you could have been a fact witness as to the president's comments and state of mind on firing James Comey. I suppose, uh, that's, I suppose that's possible. Yeah. So most prosecutors want to make sure there's no appearance of impropriety. Uh, but in your case, you hired a bunch of people that did not like the president. Uh, let me ask you, when did you first learn of Peter Strzok's animus toward Donald Trump? In the summer of uh, 2017. You didn't know before he was hired? I, I'm sorry? What did you, you didn't know before he was hired for your team? Uh, know what? Peter Strzok hated Trump. Okay. You didn't know that before he was made part of your team. Is that what you're I saying? I did not know that. All right. Uh, when did you and first learn? When, when he did find out, I, I acted uh, swiftly to have him reassigned elsewhere in the FBI. Well, there's some discussion about how swift that was. But when did you learn of the ongoing affair he was having with Lisa Page? About the same time I, okay. I, I learned um, from uh, Strzok. Did you ever order anybody to investigate the deletion of all of their texts off of their government uh, phones? Once we found that uh, uh, Peter Strzok uh, was an author of... Uh, Did you ever... Uh, may I finish? Order, well, you're not answering my question. Did you order an investigation into deletion and reformatting of their government phones? No, there was an IG investigation ongoing. Well, listen, uh, regarding collusion or conspiracy, you didn't find evidence of any agreement, I'm quoting you, among the Trump campaign officials and any Russia-linked individuals to interfere with our U.S. election, correct? Correct. So you also note in the report that an element of any of those obstructions you referenced requires a corrupt state of mind, correct? Corrupt intent, correct. Right. And if somebody knows they did not conspire with anybody from Russia to affect the election, and they see the big Justice Department with people that hate that person coming after them, and then a special counsel appointed who hires dozen or more people that hate that person, and he knows he's innocent. He's not corruptly acting in order to see that justice is done. What he's doing is not obstructing justice. He is pursuing justice. And the fact that you Gentlemen's ran it out it. two years means Gentlemen's you perpetuated injustice. I take your, I take your Gentlemen's question. Gentlemen's time has expired. The witness may answer the question. I take your question. The gentleman from Florida. Uh, Director Mueller, I... Director Mueller, I'd like to get back to your findings covering June of 2017. There was a bombshell article that reported that the President of the United States was personally under investigation for obstruction of justice. And you said in your report uh, on page 90, volume 2, and I quote, news of the obstruction investigation prompted the President to call McGahn and seek to have the special counsel removed, close quote. 
And then in your report, you wrote about multiple calls from the president to White House counsel Don McGahn. And regarding the second call, you wrote, and I quote, McGahn recalled that the president was more direct, saying something like, call Rod, tell Rod that Mueller has conflicts and can't be, special, can't be the special counsel. McGahn recalled the president telling him, Mueller has to go and call me back when you do it. Director Mueller, did McGahn understand what the president was ordering him to do? I direct you to the, what we have written in the report in terms of characterizing and, his feelings. And in the report, it says, quote, McGahn understood the president to be saying that the special counsel had to be removed. You also said on page 86 that, quote, McGahn considered the president's request to be an inflection point, and he wanted to hit the brakes, and he felt trapped, and McGahn decided he had to resign. McGahn took action to prepare to re resign. Isn't that correct? Uh, I direct you again to the report. And in, in fact, that very day, he went to the White House. And quoting your report, you said, quote, he then drove to the office to pack his belongings and submit his resignation letter, close quote. That, is, that is directly from the report. It is. And before he resigned, however, he called the president's chief of staff, Reince Priebus, and he called the president's senior advisor, Steve Bannon. Do you recall what McGahn told them? Uh, whatever uh, he was said will, be, will appear in the report. It, it is. It is. And it says on page 87, quote, Priebus recalled that McGahn said that the president asked him to do crazy expletive. In other words, crazy stuff. The White House counsel thought that the president's request was completely out of bounds. He said the president asked him to do something crazy. It was wrong. And he was prepared to resign over it. Now, these are extraordinarily troubling events. But you found uh, White House counsel McGahn to be a credible witness. Isn't that correct? Correct. Director Mueller, the most important question I have for you today is why? Director Mueller, why did the President of the United States want you fired? Uh, I can't answer that question. Well, on, on page 89 in your report, on volume two, you said, and I quote, substantial evidence indicates that the President's evidence, that the President's attempts to remove the special counsel were linked to the special counsel's oversight of investigations that involved the president's conduct and, most immediately, to reports that the president was being investigated for potential obstruction of justice." Close quote. Director Mueller, you found evidence, as you lay out in your report, that the president wanted to fire you because you were investigating him for obstruction of justice. Isn't that correct? That's what it says in the report, yes. And I go, I stand behind the report. Director Mueller, that shouldn't happen in America. No president should be able to escape investigation by abusing his power. But that's what you testified to in your report. The president ordered you fired. The White House counsel knew it was wrong. The president knew it was wrong. In your report, it says there's also evidence the president knew he should not have made those calls to McGahn. But the president did it anyway. He did it anyway. 
anyone else who blatantly interfered with a criminal investigation like yours would be arrested and indicted on charges of obstruction of justice. Director Mueller, you determined that you were barred from indicting a sitting president. We've already talked about that today. That is exactly why this committee must hold the president accountable. I yield back. The gentleman yields back, the gentlelady from Alabama. Director Mueller, you just said um, in response to two different lines of questionings that you would refer, uh, as it relates to this um, firing discussion, that I would refer you to the report in the way it was characterized in the report. Importantly, the president never said fire Mueller or in the investigation, um, and one doesn't necessitate the other. And McGahn, in fact, did not resign. He stuck around for a year and a half. On March 24th, Attorney General Barr informed the committee that he had received the special counsel's report, and it was not until April 18th that the Attorney General released the report to Congress and the public. When you submitted your report to the Attorney General, did you deliver a redacted version of the report so that he would be able to release it to Congress and the public without delay, pursuant to his announcement of his intention to do so during his confirmation hearing? I'm not going to engage in discussion about what happened after the uh, production of our uh, report. Had the Attorney General asked you to provide a redacted version of the report? We worked on the redacted versions together. Did um, he ask you for a version where the grand jury material was separated? Not going to get into details. Is it your belief that an unredacted version of the report um, could be released to Congress or the public? That's not in my purview. Um, rule 6C material. Why did you not take a similar action so Congress could view this material? Uh, we had a process uh, that we were uh, operating on with uh, the Attorney General's office. Are you aware of any Attorney General going to court to receive similar permission to unredact um, 6E material? I'm not aware of that being done. The Attorney General released the special counsel's report with minimal re redactions to the public and an even lesser redacted version to Congress. Did you write the report with the expectation that it would be released publicly? No, we did not have an expectation. We wrote the report uh, understanding that it was uh, uh, demanded by the statute and would go to the Attorney General for uh, further uh, further. Uh, re review. And pursuant to the special counsel regulations, who is the only party that must receive the charging decision resulting from the special counsel's investigation? Uh, with regard to the president or generally? No, generally. Uh, Attorney General? At Attorney General Barr's confirmation hearing, he made it clear that he intended to release your report to the public. Do you remember how much of your report had been written at that point? Do not. Um, were there significant changes in tone or substance of the report made after the announcement that the report would be made available to Congress and the public? I can't get into that. During the Senate testimony of Attorney General William Barr, Senate, Senator Kamala Harris asked Mr. Barr um, if he had looked at all the underlying evidence that, that the special counsel's team had gathered. He stated that he had not. So I'm going to ask you, did you personally review all of the underlying evidence gathered in your investigation? Well, to the extent that it came through the special counsel's office, yes. 
Did any sing single member of your team review all the underlying um, evidence gathered uh, during the course of your uh, as has been recited here today, a substantial amount of work was done, whether it be search warrants or... or uh, My point is, is there was no one member of the team that looked at everything. That's what I'm trying to get at. Okay. It's fair to say that in an investigation as comprehensive as yours, um, it's normal that different members uh, of the team would have reviewed different sets of documents. Um, and few, if anyone, would have reviewed all of the underlying. Thank you, yes. How many of the approximately 500 interviews conducted by the special conference did you attend personally? Very few. On March 27, 2019, you wrote a letter to the Attorney General essentially complaining about the media coverage of your report. You wrote, and I quote, the summary letter the department sent to Congress and released to the public late in the afternoon of March 24 did not fully capture the context, nature, and substance of this office work and conclusions. We communicated that concern to the department on the morning of March 25th. There's now public confusion about critical aspects of the result of our investigation. Who wrote that March 27th? letter well I, 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 I can't get into who wrote it uh, the internal deliberation but you signed it I, what I will say is the letter stands for itself okay why did you write a formal letter since you had already called the Attorney General to express those concerns I can't, I can't get into that internal deliberations did you authorize the letters released to the media or was it leaked <laughs> I have no knowledge on either well you went nearly two years without a leak why was this letter leaked well, I, I can't get into it. Was this letter written and leaked for the express purpose of attempting to change the narrative about the conclusions of your report? And was anything in Attorney General Barr's letter referred to as principal conclusions time inaccurate? The, the time of the gentlelady has expired. The can you answer the question, out. please? And the question is? Yes, me. you may answer the question. Was anything in Attorney General Barr's letter referred to as the principal conclusions letter dated March 24th inaccurate? Well, I am not going to get into that. Time of the gentlelady has expired. The gentlelady from California. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Director Muller, as you know, we are focusing on five obstruction episodes today. I would like to ask you about the second of those five obstruction episodes. It is in the section of your report, beginning on page 113 of volume two, entitled, quote, the president orders McGahn to deny that the president tried to fire the special counsel, end quote. On January 25th, 2018, the New York Times reported that, quote, the president had ordered McGahn to have the Department of Justice fire you. Is that correct? Correct. And that story related to the events you already testified about here today. The president's calls to McGahn to have you removed, correct? Correct. After the news broke, did the president go on TV and deny the story? Do not know. In fact, the president said, quote, fake news, folks, fake news, a typical New York Times fake story, end quote, correct? Correct. But your investigation actually found substantial evidence that McGahn was ordered by the president to fire you, correct? Yes. Did the president's personal lawyer do something the following day in response to that news report? I'd refer you to the coverage of this in the report. On page 114, uh, quote, on January 26, 2018, the president's personal counsel called McGahn's attorney and said that the president wanted McGahn to put out a statement denying that he had been asked to fire the special counsel, end quote. Did McGahn do what the president asked? I refer you to the report. Communicating through his personal attorney, McCann refused because he said, quote, 
that the Times story was accurate in reporting that the president wanted the special counsel removed. Isn't that right? I, I believe it is, but I refer you again to the report. Okay, so Mr. McCann, through his personal attorney, told the president that he is, was not going to lie. Is that right? True. Did the president drop the issue? Uh, I refer to the write-up of this in the report. Okay, next, the president told the White House staff secretary, Rob Porter, to try to pressure McCann to make a false denial. Is that correct? That's correct. What did he actually direct Porter to do? And, and I would send you back to the report. Okay, well, on page 113, it says, quote, the president then directed Porter to tell McCann to create a record to make it clear that the president never directed McCann to fire you, end quote. Is that correct? That is, as it state, stated in the report. And you found, quote, the president said he wanted McGahn to write a letter to the file for our records, correct? Correct. And to be clear, the president is asking his White House counsel, Don McCann, to create a record that McCann believed to be untrue while you were in the midst of investigating the president for obstruction of justice, correct? Uh, generally correct. And Mr. McCann was an important witness in that investigation, wasn't he? I'd have to say yes. Did the president tell Porter to threaten McCann if he didn't create the written denial? I refer you to the uh, write-up of it in the it, uh, report. In fact, didn't the president say, quote, and this is on page 116, if he doesn't write a letter, then maybe I'll have to get rid of him, end quote. Yes. Did Porter deliver that threat? I again refer you to uh, uh, the discussion that's found on uh, page 115, uh, 115. Okay, but the president still didn't give up, did he? So the president told McGahn directly to deny that the president told him to have you fired. Can you tell me exactly what happened? I can't beyond what's in the report. Well, on page 116, it says the president met him in the Oval Office. Quote, the president began the Oval Office meeting by telling McCann that the New York Times story didn't look good, and McCann needed to correct it. Is that correct? Correct. So, as it's written in the report, yes. The president asked McCann whether he would do a correction, and McCann said no. Correct? That's accurate. Well, Mr. Mueller, thank you for your investigation uncovering this very disturbing evidence. My friend, Mr. Richmond, will have additional questions on the subject. However, it is clear to me if anyone else had ordered a witness to create a false record and cover up acts that are subject of a law enforcement investigation, that person would be facing criminal charges. I yield back my time. The gentlelady yields back. The gentleman from Ohio. Director, the FBI interviewed Joseph Mifsud on February 10th, 2017. In that interview, Mr. Mifsud lied. You point this out on page 193, volume one, Mifsud denied. Mifsud also falsely stated. In addition, Mifsud omitted. Three times he lied to the FBI, yet you didn't charge him with the crime. Excuse me, why, are, did you say not? one? I'm sorry, did you say 193? Volume 1, 193. He lied three times, you pointed out in the report. Why didn't you charge him with the crime? I can't get into uh, internal deliberations with regard to who would or would not be uh, charged. a lot of other people for making false statements. Let's remember this. Let's remember this. In 2016, the FBI did something they probably haven't done before. 
They spied on two American citizens associated with a presidential campaign, George Papadopoulos and Carter Page. With Carter Page, they went to the FISA court. They used the now famous dossier as part of the reason they were able to get the warrant and spy on Carter Page for a better part of a year. With Mr. Papadopoulos, they didn't go to the court. They used human sources. All kinds of, from about the moment Papadopoulos joins the Trump campaign, you got all these people all around the world starting to swirl around him. Names like Halper, Downer, Mifsud, Thompson, meeting in Rome, London, all kinds of places. The FBI even sent, even sent a lady posing as somebody else, went by the name Azra Turk, even dispatched her to London to spy on Mr. Papadopoulos. In one of these meetings, Mr. Papadopoulos is talking to a foreign diplomat, and he tells the diplomat, Russians have dirt on Clinton. That diplomat then contacts the FBI, and the FBI opens an investigation based on that fact. You point this out on page one of the report. July 31st, 2016, they open the investigation based on that piece of information. Diplomat tells Papadopoulos, Russians have dirt, excuse me, Papadopoulos tells a diplomat, Russians have dirt on Clinton. Diplomat tells the FBI, what I'm wondering is, who told Papadopoulos? How'd he find out? I can't get into the evidentiary file. Yes, you can, because you filing. wrote about it. You gave us the answer. Page 192 of the report, you tell us who told him. Joseph Mifsud. Joseph Mifsud's a guy who told Papadopoulos. The mysterious professor who lives in Rome and London, works at teaching two different universities. This is the guy who told Papadopoulos. He's the guy who starts it all. And when the FBI interviews him, he lies three times, and yet you don't charge him with a crime. You charge Rick Gates for false statements. You charge Paul Manafort for false statements. You charge Michael Cohen with false statements. You charge Michael Flynn, a three-star general, with false statements. But the guy who puts the country through this whole saga starts it all for three years we've lived this now. He lies, and you guys don't charge him. And I'm curious as to why. Well, we can't get into it, and, uh, and it's obvious, I think, that we can't get into charging decisions. When the FBI interviewed him in February, FBI interviews him in February, when the special counsel's office interviewed Mifsud, did he lie to you guys too? Can't get into that. Did you interview Mifsud? Can't get into that. Is Mifsud Western intelligence can't or Russian intelligence? Can't get into that. A lot of things you can't get into. What's interesting, you can charge 13 Russians no one's ever heard of, no one's ever seen, no one's ever going to hear of them. No one's ever going to see them. You can charge them. You can charge all kinds of people who are around the president with false statements. But the guy who launches every, the guy who puts this whole story in motion, you can't charge him. I think I'm that's not, amazing. I'm not certain I, I, I'm not certain I uh, agree with your characterizations. Well, I'm reading from your report. Mifsud told Papadopoulos. Papadopoulos tells the diplomat. The diplomat tells the FBI. The FBI opens the investigation July 31st, 2016. And here we are three years later, July of 2019. The country's been put through this. And the central figure who launches it all lies to us. And you guys don't hunt him down and interview him again. And you don't charge him with a crime. Now, here's the good news. Here's the good news. The president was falsely accused of conspiracy. The FBI does a 10-month investigation, and James Comey, when we deposed him a year ago, told us at that point they had nothing. You do a 22-month investigation. At the end of that 22 months, you find no conspiracy. And what's the Democrats want to do? They want to keep investigating. They want to keep going. Maybe a better course of action, maybe a better course of action 
is to figure out how the false accusation started. Maybe it's to go back and actually figure out why Joseph Nipsid was lying to the FBI. And here's the good news. Here's the good news. That's exactly what Bill Barr is doing. And thank goodness for that. That's exactly what the Attorney General and John Durham are doing. They're going to find out why we went through this three-year three saga and get to the bottom of it. The time of the gentleman has expired. In a moment, we will take a very brief five-minute break. First, I ask everyone in the room to please remain seated and quiet while the witness exit the, exits the room. I, I, I also want to announce to those in the audience that you may not be guaranteed your seat if you leave the hearing room at this time. That is House Judiciary Chairman Jerry Nadler, who is uh, the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, the committee that is questioning Mueller at this time. We're about an hour and 20 minutes into the testimony. Jerry Nadler just called a break. Uh, Mueller is said to testify just about for a minimum of five hours uh, uh, today. The Judiciary Committee is going to question him in the morning. They started, of course, at 8.30 a.m. Eastern Time, 7.30 a.m. Central Time. Uh, the opening statements, of course, proceeded there. There's going to be 41 members of question and answers with approximately five minutes each for each of them. And uh, the Democrats are going to be focusing, of course, on the alleged obstruction of which the president is being accused of, who the president claims he's completely exonerated. There's no obstruction, no collusion, although Robert Mueller, as we just heard, Said some very information, uh, very important information, saying that this uh, this report does not exculpate the president, does not exonerate the president. Uh, he is uh, vindictive. It is a possibility. There are certain, you know, it, it, basically what he's saying is this report. It doesn't say that Donald Trump's in trouble, but it doesn't free him from not being in trouble. Uh, but that is just basically what we're focusing here right now. So that is the, the Judiciary Committee side of this hearing. The other uh, side of this hearing will start at uh, 11 a.m. Central Time, noon Eastern Time. Uh, there's going to be a break in the middle of between these hearings, but there's going to be opening statements from the Intelligence Committee, from the Chairman, and then there's going to be 22 members questioning the uh, questioning Mueller about this report. They'll be they'll have five minutes each to answer those questions. And of course, the Democrats are going to be focusing on the Russian interference. So the, uh, just a reminder, this whole report was um, uh, divided into two sections. Number one, the alleged obstruction that the president, the 10 instances in which he could have been uh, obstructing justice. Of course, Mueller did not indict. He did not request to indict. He left that up to the attorney general, which Trump appointed. Of course, that's William Barr. But now, uh, or we're seeing the different side, of course, politically of this whole event as the Democrats and the Republicans question him. So that's what we're seeing right now on the Judiciary Committee. What will really be interesting is the Intelligence Committee will see the Democrats really hit hard on the Russian interference within the election, probably try and score political points as people do in these hearings. They get a lot of coverage, of course, so uh, it, it certainly makes uh, good political talk for uh, Democrats and Republicans to try and bolster their message and get support. We'll see exactly what happens, but we are live covering on this podcast here, on the Jay Doherty podcast. We're covering this live, and uh, this also will be available, of course, as a podcast. And uh, we thank Blueberry for their phenomenal support of this uh, live coverage and this show. 
We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back on the Jay Doherty podcast. There is a lot of interesting stuff that is happening right here, right now in Washington. We're here to witness all of it right here, right now on the Jay Doherty podcast. We thank you for listening. We will be right back with uh, part two of Robert Mueller's hearing, and there are a lot of more, lot more parts to come. So stay tuned right here. We'll have live coverage right here on the Jay Doherty podcast. Gentlemen from Louisiana, Mr. Richmond. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Mueller, uh, Congressman Dutch addressed Trump's request uh, to McGahn uh, to fire you. Representative Bass talked about the president's request of McGahn to deny uh, the fact that the president made that request. So I want to pick up where they left off, and I want to pick up with the president's uh, personal lawyer. In fact, uh, there was evidence that the president's personal lawyer was alarmed at the prospect of the president meeting with Mr. McGahn to discuss Mr. McGahn's refusal to deny the New York Times report about the president trying to fire you, correct? Correct. In fact, the president's counsel was so alarmed uh, by the prospect of the president's meeting with McGahn that he called Mr. McGahn's counsel and said that McGahn could not resign no matter what happened in the Oval Office that day, correct? Correct. So it's accurate to say that the president knew that he was asking McGahn to deny facts that McGahn, quote, had repeatedly said were accurate, unquote. Isn't that right? Correct. Your investigation also found, quote, by the time of the Oval Office meeting with the president, the president was aware, one, that McGahn did not think the story was false, Two, did not want to issue a statement or create a written record denying facts that McGahn believed to be true. The president nevertheless persisted and asked McGahn to repudiate facts that McGahn had repeatedly said were accurate. Isn't that correct? Generally true. I believe that's on page 119. Thank you. In other words, the president was trying to force McGahn to say something that McGahn did not believe to be true. That's accurate. I want to uh, reference you to a slide, and it's on page 120. And it says, substantial evidence indicates that in repeatedly urging McGahn to dispute that he was ordered to have the special counsel terminated, the president acted for the purpose of influencing McGahn's account in order to deflect or prevent further scrutiny of the president's conduct towards the investigation. Accurate. Can you explain what you meant there? I'm just going to believe it and uh, as it appears in the report. So it's fair to say the president tried to protect himself by asking staff to falsify records relevant to an ongoing investigation. I would say that's uh, generally a summary. Would you say that that action, the president tried to hamper the investigation by asking staff to falsify records relevant to your investigation. I'm just going to refer you to the report, if I could, for uh, uh, review of that, uh, that episode. Thank you. Also, the president's attempt to get McGahn to create a false written record were related to Mr. Trump's concerns about your obstruction of justice inquiry, correct? I believe that to be true. In fact, at that same Oval Office meeting, did the president also ask McGahn why he had told 
quote, why he had told special counsel's office investigators that the president told him to have you removed, unquote. And what was the question, sir, if I might? Let me go to the next one. The president, quote, criticized McGahn for telling your office about the June 17, 2017 events when he told McGahn to have you removed, correct? Correct. In other words, <clears throat> the president was criticizing his White House counsel for telling law enforcement officials what he believed to be the truth. I, I again go back to the text of the, uh, of the report. Well, let me go a little bit further. Would it have been a crime if Mr. McGahn had lied to you about the president ordering him to fire you? I don't want to speculate. Okay. Is it true that you charged multiple people associated with the president for lying to you during your investigation? That is accurate. The president also complained that his staff were taking notes uh, during the meeting about uh, firing McGahn. Is that correct? Uh, that's what the report says. Yeah, the report. But in fact, it's completely appropriate for the president's staff, especially his counsels, to take notes during a meeting, correct? Well, I, I rely on the, the wording of the report. Well, thank you, Director Mueller, for your investigation into whether the president attempted to obstruct justice by ordering his White House counsel, Don McGahn, to lie to protect the president and then to create a false record about it. It is clear that any other person who engaged in such conduct would be charged with a crime. We will continue our investigation and we will hold the president accountable because no one is above the law. The uh, gentleman from Florida. Director Mueller, can you state with confidence that the Steele dossier was not part of Russia's disinformation campaign? No, as I said in, the, uh, in my opening statement, I, uh, that uh, part of the uh, building of the case was predated me and by at least 10 months. Yeah, I mean, Paul Manafort's alleged uh, crimes regarding tax evasion predated you. You had no problem charging them. And matter of fact, it, 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 this Steele dossier predated the attorney general, and he didn't have any problem answering the question. When Senator Cornyn asked the attorney general the exact question I asked you, director, the attorney general said, and I'm quoting, no, I can't state that with confidence. And that's one of the areas I'm reviewing. I'm concerned about it, and I don't think it's entirely speculative. Now, if something is not entirely speculative, then it must have some factual basis, but you identify no factual basis regarding the dossier or the possibility that it was part of the Russia disinformation campaign. Now, Christopher Steele's reporting is referenced in your report. Steele reported to the FBI that senior Russian foreign ministry figures, among with other, along with other Russians, told him that there was, and I'm quoting from the Steele dossier, extensive evidence of conspiracy between the Trump campaign team and the Kremlin. So here's my question. Did Russians really tell that to Christopher Steele, or did he just make it all up and was he lying to the FBI? Uh, let me back up a second if I could and say, as I uh, said earlier, uh, with regard to the Steele, uh, that uh, that's beyond my purview. No, it is exactly your purview, Director Mueller, and here's why. Only one of two things is possible, right? Either Steele made this whole thing up and there were never any Russians telling him of this vast criminal conspiracy that you didn't find, or Russians lied to Steele. 
Now, if Russians were lying to steal to undermine our confidence in our duly elected president, that would seem to be precisely your purview because you stated in your opening that the organizing principle was to fully and thoroughly investigate Russia's interference. But you weren't interested in whether or not Russians were interfering through Christopher Steele. And if Steele was lying, then you should have charged him with lying like you charged a variety of other people. But you say nothing about this in your report. Well, meanwhile, sir. Meanwhile, Director, you're quite loquacious on other topics. You write 3,500 words about the June 9 meeting between the Trump campaign and Russian lawyer Veselnitskaya. You write on page 103 of your report that the president's legal team suggested, and I'm quoting from your report, that the meeting might have been a setup by individuals working with the firm that produced the Steele reporting. So I'm going to ask you a very easy question, Director Mueller. On the week of June 9, who did Russian lawyer Veselnitskaya meet with more frequently? The Trump campaign or Glenn Simpson, who was functionally acting as an operative for the Democratic National Committee? Well, what I think is missing here is the fact that uh, this is under investigation other in, uh, elsewhere in the Justice I Department. Get that and if I can finish, sir, and if I can finish, sir, and consequently, it's not within my purview. Department of Justice and FBI should be responsive to questions on this particular but, but issue. It is absurd to suggest that a operative for the Democrats was meeting with this Russian lawyer the day before and the day after the Trump Tower meeting, and yet that's not something you referenced. Now, Glenn Simpson testified under oath. He had dinner with Veselnitskaya the day before and the day after this meeting with the Trump team. Do you have any basis as you sit here today to believe that Steele was lying? As I said before, I'll say again, it's not my purview. Others are investigating what you uh, So, so it's not your purview to look into whether or not Steele's lying. It's not your purview to look into whether or not anti-Trump Russians are lying to Steele. And it's not your purview to look at whether or not Glenn Simpson was meeting with the Russians the day before and the day after you write 3,500 words about the Trump campaign meeting. So I'm wondering what, how, the, how these decisions are guided. I look at the Inspector General's report. I'm citing from page 404 of the Inspector General's report. It states, page stated, Trump's not ever going to be president, right? Right. Strzok replied, no, he's not. We'll stop it. Also in the Inspector General's report, there's someone identified as attorney number two. Attorney number two, this is page 419, replied, hell no and then added, viva la resistance. Attorney number two in the Inspector General's report and Strzok both worked on your team, didn't they? Pardon me, can you ask? They, uh, they both worked on your team, didn't they? Uh, I know, I heard Strzok. Who else were you talking about? Attorney number two identified in the Inspector General's report. Okay, and the question was? Did he work for you? The guy who said viva la resistance. Peter, Peter Strzok worked for me for a period of time, yes. Yeah, but so did the other guy that said viva la resistance. And here's what I'm kind of noticing, Director Mueller. When people associated with Trump lied, you threw the book at him. When Christopher Steele lied, nothing. And so it seems to be that when Glenn Simpson met with Russians, nothing. When the Trump campaign met with Russians, 3,500 words. And maybe the reason why there are this discrepancies in what you focused on is because the team time is the, so biased. Time of the gentleman has expired. Pledged to Mr. stop Trump. Jeffries of, of New York is recognized. Mr. Mueller, obstruction of justice is a serious crime that strikes at the core of an investigator's effort to find the truth, correct? Correct. The crime of obstruction of justice has three elements, true? True. The first element is an obstructive act, correct? Correct. An obstructive act could include taking an action that would delay or interfere with an ongoing investigation as set forth in volume two, page 87 and 88 of your report, true? Uh, I'm sorry, could you again uh, repeat the question? An obstructive act could include taking an action that would delay or interfere with an ongoing investigation. That's true. Your investigation found, 
evidence that President Trump took steps to terminate the special counsel, correct? Correct. Uh, Mr. Mueller, does ordering the termination of the head of a criminal investigation constitute an obstructive act? Uh, that would be, uh, uh, I, 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 I would refer you to the report. Let, let me refer you to page 87 and 88 of volume two, where you conclude the attempt to remove the special counsel would qualify as an obstructive act if it would naturally obstruct the investigation and any grand jury proceedings that might flow from the inquiry, correct? Yes, I've got that now, thank you. Thank you. The second element of obstruction of justice is the presence of an obstructive act in connection with an official proceeding, true? True. Does the special counsel's criminal investigation into the potential wrongdoing of Donald Trump constitute an official proceeding? And that's uh, an area which I cannot get into. Okay, President Trump tweeted on June 16, 2017, quote, I am being investigated for firing the FBI director by the man who told me to fire the FBI director, witch hunt. The June 16 tweet just read was cited on page 89 in volume two, constitutes a public acknowledgement by President Trump that he was under criminal investigation, correct? Uh, I, uh I think generally correct. One day later, on Saturday, June 17th, President Trump called White House counsel Don McGahn at home and directed him to fire the special counsel. True? I believe it to be true. I think we've been, I may have stated in response to questions some. That is correct. Uh, President Trump told Don McGahn, quote, Mueller has to go, close quote. Correct? Correct. Your report found on page 89, volume two, that substantial evidence indicates that by June 17th, the president knew his conduct was under investigation by a federal prosecutor who could present any evidence of federal crimes to a grand jury, true? True. The third element, second element having just been satisfied, the third element of the crime of obstruction of justice is corrupt intent, true? True. Corrupt intent exists if the president acted to obstruct an official proceeding for the improper purpose of protecting his own interests, correct? Uh, that's generally correct. Thank you. I want to, I, the only thing I would say is we are going through the three elements of, uh, of the uh, proof of the uh, uh, obstruction of justice uh, charges. When the, the fact of the matter is, uh, uh, we got, Excuse me, just one second. Well, thank you. Uh, Mr. Mueller, let me, let me move on in the interest of time. Upon learning about the appointment of the special counsel, your investigation found that Donald Trump stated to the then Attorney General, quote, oh my God, this is terrible. This is the end of my presidency. I'm effed. Is that correct? Correct. Is it fair to say that Donald Trump viewed the special counsel's investigation into his conduct as adverse to his own interests? I think that generally is true. The investigation found evidence, quote, that the president knew that he should not have directed Don McGahn to fire the special counsel, correct? And where do you have that uh, quote? Page 90, volume two. There's evidence that the president knew he should not have made those calls to McGahn, close quote. I see that, yes, that's accurate. The investigation also found substantial evidence that President Trump repeatedly urged McGahn to dispute that he was ordered to have the special counsel terminated, correct? Correct. The investigation found substantial evidence 
that when the president ordered Don McGahn to fire the special counsel and then lie about it, Donald Trump, one, committed an obstructive act, two, connected to an official proceeding, three, did so with corrupt intent. Those are the elements of obstruction of justice. This is the United States of America. No one is above the law. No one. The president must be held accountable one way or the other. Now let, me, let me just say, I, if I might, I, I don't subscribe necessarily to your, uh, the way you analyze that. I'm not saying it's out of the ballpark, but I'm not supportive of that analytical charge. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Mueller over here. Hi. Hi. I want to start by thanking you for your service. You joined the Marines and, and led a rifle platoon in Vietnam where you earned a Bronze Star, Purple Heart, and other commendations. You served as an assistant United States attorney leading the homicide unit here in D.C., U.S. attorney for the District of Massachusetts and later Northern uh, District of California, assistant attorney general for DOJ's criminal division and the FBI director. So thank you. I appreciate that. But having reviewed your biography, it puzzles me why you handled your duties in this case the way you did. The report contradicts what you taught young attorneys at the Department of Justice, including to ensure that every defendant is treated fairly. Or as Justice Sutherland said in the Berger case, a prosecutor is not the representative of an ordinary party to a controversy, but of a sovereignty whose interest in a criminal prosecution is not that it shall win a case, but that justice shall be done and that the prosecutor may strike hard blows, but he is not at liberty to strike foul ones. By listing the 10 factual situations and not reaching a conclusion about the merits of the case, you unfairly shifted the burden of proof to the president, forcing him to prove his innocence while denying him a legal form to do so. And I've never heard of a prosecutor declining a case and then holding a press conference to talk about the defendant. You noted eight times in your report that you had a legal duty under the regulations to either prosecute or decline charges. Despite this, you disregarded that duty. As a former prosecutor, I'm also troubled with your legal analysis. You discussed 10 separate factual patterns involving alleged obstruction, and then you failed to separately apply the elements of the applicable statutes. I looked at the, uh, the, the 10 factual situations, and I read the case law. And I have to tell you, just looking at the Flynn matter, for example, um, the, the, the four statutes that you cited for a possible obstruction, 1503, 1505, 1512b3 and 1512c2. Um, when I look at those concerning the Flynn matter, uh, 1503 is inapplicable because there wasn't a grand jury or trial jury impaneled, and Director Comey was not an officer of the court as defined by the statute. Six, section 1505 criminalizes acts that would obstruct or impede administrative proceedings as, as those before Congress or an administrative agency. Uh, the Department of Justice Criminal Resource Manual states that the FBI investigation is not a pending proceeding. 1512b3 talks about uh, intimidation, threats of force uh, to tamper with a witness. General Flynn at the time was not a witness, and, and certainly Director Comey was not a witness. And 1512c2 talks about uh, tampering with a record. Um, and as Joe Biden described the uh, statute as being debated on the Senate floor, uh, he called this a uh, statute criminalizing document shredding, and uh, there's nothing in, the, uh, in your report that alleges that the president uh, uh, destroyed any, any evidence. So 
What I have to ask you, and, and what I, I think people are, are working around in this hearing is, uh, let me lay a little foundation for it. The ethical re rules require that a prosecutor have a reasonable probability of, of conviction to bring a charge. Is that correct? Sounds generally accurate. Okay. And uh, the regulations uh, concerning your, your job as special counsel state that your job is to provide the attorney general with a confidential report explaining the prosecution or declination decisions reached by your office. You recommended declining prosecution of President Trump and anyone associated with his campaign because there was insufficient evidence to convict for a charge of conspiracy with Russian interference in the 2016 election. Is that fair? That's fair. Was there sufficient evidence to convict President Trump or anyone else with obstruction of justice? We did not make that calculation. How could you not have made the calculation because with the regulation? The OLC opinion, the OLC opinion, Office of Legal Counsel, indicates that we cannot indict a sitting president. So one of the tools that a prosecutor would use is not there. Okay, but, but let me just stop. You made the decision on the Russian interference. You, you, you couldn't have indicted the president on that, and you made the decision on that. But when it came to obstruction, you threw a bunch of stuff up against the wall to see what would stick. Well, and that I, is I, fundamentally I unfair. To, I would not agree to that uh, characterization uh, at all. What we did is provide to the attorney general in the form of a confidential memorandum our understanding of the case. Uh, those cases that were brought, those cases were declined, and uh, the, uh, that one case where uh, the president cannot be charged with a crime. Okay, but the, uh, could you charge the president with a crime after he left office? Yes. You believe that he committed, you could charge the president of the United States with obstruction of justice after he left office? Yes. Uh, ethically, under the ethical standards? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm not certain because I haven't looked at the ethical standards, but the OLC opinion, opinion says that uh, the prosecutor why well, he cannot bring a charge against a sitting president, nonetheless, and continue the investigation to see if there are any other uh, persons who might be drawn into the conspiracy. Time of the gentleman has expired. The gentleman from Rhode Island. Director, uh, Director, as you know, we are specifically focusing on five separate obstruction episodes here today. I'd like to ask you about the third episode. It's the section of your report entitled, The President's Efforts to Curtail the Special Counsel Investigation, beginning at page 90. And by curtail, you mean limit, correct? Correct. My colleagues have walked through how the President tried to have you fired through the White House Counsel, and because Mr. McGahn refused the order, the President asked others to help limit your investigation. Is that correct? Correct. And was Corey Lewandowski one such individual? And again, can you remind me uh, what character? Well, Corey Lewandowski is the president's former campaign manager, correct? Correct. Did he have any official position in the Trump administration? I don't believe so. Your report describes an incident in the Oval Office involving Mr. Lewandowski on June 19, 2017, at volume 2, page 91. Is that correct? I'm sorry, what's the citation, sir? Page 91. Of uh, the second volume? Yes. And a meeting in the Oval Office between Mr. Lewandowski and the President. Okay. And that was just two days after the President called Don McGahn at home and ordered him to fire you. Is that correct? Apparently so. So right after his White House counsel, Mr. McGahn, refused to follow the President's order to fire you, the President came up with a new plan. And that was to go around all of his senior advisors and government aides to have a private citizen try to limit your investigation. What did the President tell Mr. Lewandowski to do? Do you recall he told him, he dictated a message to Mr. Lewandowski for Attorney General Sessions and asked him to write it down. Is that correct? True. And 
do you did you and your team see this handwritten message? Uh, I'm not going to get into what we may or may not have uh, included in our investigation. Okay, the message directed Sessions to give, and, and I'm quoting from your report, to give a public speech saying that he planned to meet with the special prosecutor to explain this is very unfair and let the special prosecutor move forward with investigating election meddling for future elections. That's at page 91. Is that correct? Yes, I see that. Thank you. Yes, it is. In other words, Mr. Lewandowski, a private citizen, was instructed by the President of the United States to deliver a message from the President to the Attorney General that directed him to limit your investigation, correct? Correct. And at this time, Mr. Sessions was still recused from oversight of your investigation, correct? I'm sorry, could you restate The Attorney that? General was recused from oversight. Yes. Yes. So the Attorney General would have had to violate his own department's rules in order to comply with the President's order, correct? Well, I'm not going to get into uh, the subsidiary details. Okay. I just refer you again to page 91, 92 of the report. And if the Attorney General had followed through with the President's request, Mr. Mueller, it would have effectively ended your investigation into the President and his campaign, as you note on page 97, correct? Could you... You, at page 97, you write, and I quote, taken together, the president's directives indicate that Sessions was being instructed to tell the special counsel to end the existing investigation into the president and his campaign with the special counsel being permitted to move forward with investigating election meddling for future elections. Is that correct? Generally true. Yes, sir. And it's a, an unsuccessful attempt to obstruct justice is still a crime. Is that correct? That is correct. And Mr. Lewandowski uh, tried to meet with the attorney general. Is that right? And he tried to meet with them in his office so he would be sure, certain there wasn't a public log of the visit. According to what we uh, gathered for the report. And the meeting never happened, and the president raised the issue again with Mr. Lewandowski, and this time he said, and I quote, if Sessions does not meet with you, Lewandowski should tell Sessions he was fired. Correct? Correct. So immediately following the meeting with the president, Lewandowski then asked Mr. Dearborn to deliver the message, who's the uh, former uh, chief of staff to Mr. Sessions. And Mr. Dearborn refuses to deliver it because he doesn't feel comfortable. Isn't that correct? Generally correct, yes. So just so we're clear, Mr. Mueller, two days after the White House counsel, Don McGahn, refused to carry out the president's order to fire you, the president directed a private citizen to tell the attorney general of the United States, who was recused at the time, to limit your investigation to future elections, effectively ending your investigation into the 2016 Trump campaign. Is that correct? Well, I'm not going to adopt your characterization. I'll say well, that the well, facts as laid out in the report are accurate. Well, Mr. Mueller, in your report, you in fact write at page 99, 97, Substantial evidence indicates that the president's effort to have Sessions limit the scope of the special counsel's investigation to future elections interference was intended to prevent further investigative scrutiny of the president and his campaign conduct. Is that correct? Generally. And so, Mr. Mueller, you have seen the letter where a thousand former Republican and Democratic federal prosecutors have read your report and said anyone but the president who committed those acts would be charged with obstruction of justice. Do you agree with those former colleagues, a thousand prosecutors who came to that conclusion? Those prosecutors. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, over here. Thanks. Mr. M Mr. Mueller, uh, you guys, your team wrote in the uh, report, quote, on, this is the top of page two, volume one, also on page 173, by the way. You said that you'd come to the conclusion that, quote, the investigation did not establish that members of the Trump campaign conspired or coordinated with the Russian government in its election interference activities, close quote. That's accurate statement, right? That's accurate. 
And I'm curious, when did you personally come to that conclusion? Uh, can you remind me uh, uh, which paragraph you're adverting to? Top of page two. On two? Volume one. Okay. Uh, and exactly which paragraph are you looking at on two? Investigation did not establish. Of course. I see it. Yes. See it? What was your question? My question now is, when did you personally reach that conclusion? Well, we were ongoing for two years. Uh, right, you were ongoing, you wrote it at some point during that two-year period, but at some point you had to come to a conclusion that, uh, that I don't think there's, a, that there's not a conspiracy going on here. There was no conspiracy between this president. Um, I'm not talking about the rest of the president's team, I'm talking about this president and the Russians. I, as you understand, uh, developing a criminal case, uh, you get pieces of information, pieces of information, witnesses, and the like, uh, as you make your case. Right. And uh, when you make a decision on a particular case depends on a number of factors. Right, I understand So I cannot that's... say specifically that we reached a decision on a particular defendant uh, uh, at a particular point in time. But it was some time well before you wrote the report, fair enough? I mean, you wrote the report dealing with a whole myriad of issues. Certainly at some time prior to that report is when you reached the decision that, okay, with, with regard to the president himself, I don't find anything here. Fair enough? Well, I'm not certain I do agree with that. Uh, the, so you waited until the last minute when you were actually writing the report and say, oh, okay. Well, no, but there, there are uh, various uh, aspects of the development of a, 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 a uh, Sure, and that's my point. There are various aspects that, are, that happen, but somewhere along the pike, you will come to a conclusion there's no, there's no there there for this defendant. Isn't that right? So I, apparently- I can't, I can't speak you to can't, it. You can't say when. Fair enough. So, so no, I'm not. No, I'm. I'm. I'm asking the the sworn witness, uh, Mr. Mr. Mueller. Evidence suggests that on May 10th, 2017, at approximately 7:45 a.m., six days before the DAG Deputy Attorney General appointed you special counsel, Mr. Rosenstein called you and mentioned the appointment of a special counsel. Not not necessarily that you'd be appointed, but that you had a discussion of that. Is that is that true? Uh, May 10th, 2017. I, I, uh, I don't have any. No, I don't have any knowledge of that occurring. You don't have any knowledge or you don't recall? I don't have any knowledge. Evidence also suggests I mean, that... given that what I saw you do, are you questioning that? Uh, uh, well, I, I just find it intriguing. Let me just tell you that there's evidence that suggests that that phone call took place and that that's what was said. So let's move to the next question. Evidence suggests that also on May 12, 2017, five days before the DAG appointed you special counsel, you met with Mr. Rosenstein in person did you discuss the appointment of a special counsel then? Not necessarily that you, but that there would be a special counsel. I, I've gone into waters that uh, uh, don't allow me to give you uh, uh, an answer to that uh, particular question. It relates to the internal discussions he would have in terms of indicting an individual. It has nothing to do with indictment. It has to do with special counsel and whether you discussed that with Mr. Rosenstein. Uh, evidence also suggests that on May 13, four days before you were appointed special counsel, uh, you met with Attorney, former Attorney General Sessions and Rosenstein, and you spoke uh, about special counsel. Do you remember that? Not offhand, no. Okay. And on May 16th, the day before you were appointed special counsel, uh, you met with the President and uh, Rod Rosenstein. Do you remember having that meeting? Yes. And discussion of the position of FBI director took place. Do you remember that? Yes. And um, did you discuss at any time in that meeting uh, Mr. Comey's termination? No. Did you discuss at any time in that meeting uh, the potential appointment of a special counsel? 
Not necessarily you, but just in general terms. I can't get into the discussions on that. How many times did you speak to Mr. Rosenstein before May 17th, which is the day you got appointed, uh, regarding the appointment of a special counsel? How many times prior to that did you, did you discuss? I can't tell you how many times. Is that because you don't recall, or are you, are you, are you just? I, I do not recall. Okay, that, that, thank you. Um, how many times did you speak with Mr. Comey about any investigations pertaining to Russia prior to May 17, 2017? Did you have not any? At all. Zero? Zero. Okay. Now, my time is, my time is expired. So, uh, right. time of the gentleman is expired. The gentleman from California. Director Mueller, going back to the president's obstruction via Corey Lewandowski, it was referenced that a thousand former prosecutors who served under Republican and Democratic administrations with 12,000 years of federal service wrote a letter regarding the president's conduct. Are you familiar with that letter? I've read about that letter, yes. And some of the individuals who signed that letter, the statement of former prosecutors, are people you worked with, is that right? Quite probably, yes. People that you respect? I probably, yes. And in that letter, they said all of this conduct, trying to control and impede the investigation against the president by leveraging his authority over others, is similar to conduct we have seen charged against other public officials and people in powerful positions. Are they wrong? They have a different case. Do you want to sign that letter, Director Mueller? Uh, they have a different case. Uh, Director Mueller, thank you for your service going all the way back to the 60s when you courageously served in Vietnam. Because I have a seat on the Intelligence Committee, I'll have questions later. And because of our limited time, I will ask to enter this letter into uh, the record under unanimous consent. That yield to my colleague from California, Mr. Liu. Thank you, Director Mueller, for your long history of service to our country, including your service as a Marine, where you earn a Brown Star with a V device. I'd like to now turn to the elements of obstruction of justice as applied to the president's attempts to curtail your investigation. The first element of obstruction of justice requires an obstructive act, correct? Correct. Okay, I'd like to direct you to page 97 of volume two of your report. And you wrote there on page 97, quote, Sessions was being instructed to tell the special counsel to end the existing investigation into the president and his campaign, unquote. That's in the report, correct? Correct. Okay. That would be evidence of an obstructive act because it would naturally obstruct their investigation, correct? Uh, correct. Okay. Let's turn now to the second element of the crime of obstruction of justice, which requires a nexus to an official proceeding. Again, I'm going to direct you to page 97, the same page of volume two. And you wrote, quote, by the time of the president's initial one-on-one -on -one meeting with Lewandowski on June 19, 2017, the existence of a grand jury investigation supervised by the special counsel was public knowledge. That's in the report, correct? Correct. That would constitute evidence of a nexus to an official proceeding because a grand jury investigation is an official proceeding, correct? Well, yes. Okay. I'd like to now turn to the final element of the crime of obstruction of justice. On that same page, page 97, do you see where there's the intent section on that page? I do so see that. C. All right. Would you be willing to read the first sentence? And that was starting with? Substantial evidence. Indicates that the president's? Yeah, if you could read that first sentence, would you be willing to do that? I'm happy to have you read it. Okay, I will read it then. You wrote, quote, substantial evidence. 
indicates that the president's effort to have Sessions limit the scope of the special counsel's investigation to future election interference was intended to prevent further investigative scrutiny of the president's and his campaign's conduct, unquote. That's in the report, correct? That is in the report, and I rely what's in the report uh, to uh, uh, indicate uh, uh, what's happened in the, the paragraphs that we've been discussing. Thank you. So to recap what we've heard, uh, we have heard today that the president ordered former White House counsel Don McGahn to fire you. The president ordered Don McGahn to then cover that up and create a false paper trail. And now we've heard the president ordered Corey Lewandowski to tell Jeff Sessions to limit your investigation so that he, you, stop investigating the president. I believe a reasonable person looking at these facts uh, could conclude that all three elements of the crime of obstruction justice have been met. And I'd like to ask you, the reason, again, that you did not indict Donald Trump is because of OLC opinion stating that you cannot indict a sitting president, correct? Uh, that is correct. The fact that their orders by the president were not carried out, that is not a defense to obstruction of justice because the statute itself is quite broad. It says that as long as you endeavor or attempt to obstruct justice, that would also constitute a crime. I'm not going to get into that at this juncture. Okay, thank you. And uh, based on uh, the evidence that we have heard today, I believe a reasonable person could conclude that at least three crimes of obstruction of justice by the president occurred. We're going to hear about two additional crimes that would be the witness tamperings of Michael Cohen and Paul Manafort. All that, I yield uh, back. The only thing I want to add is that I'm going through the elements with you do not mean or does not mean that I subscribe to uh, the, uh, what you're trying to prove through those elements. The time of the gentleman has expired. The gentlelady from uh, uh, Arizona. I'm sorry, gentleman from California. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Mueller, over here. Uh, thanks for joining us today. Uh, you had three discussions with Rod Rosenstein about your appointment as special counsel, May 10th, May 12th, and May 13th, correct? If you say so, I have no reason to, to dispute that. Then you met with the president on the 16th with Rod Rosenstein present, and then on the 17th you were formally appointed as special counsel. Were you meeting with the president on the 16th with knowledge that you were under consideration for appointment to special counsel? I did not believe I was under consideration for uh, uh, counsel. Uh, the, uh, I had uh, served two terms as FBI okay, director. So the answer is no. And the um, answer is no. Greg Jarrett describes your office as the team of partisans. Um, and as additional information is coming to light, there's a growing concern that political bias caused important facts to be omitted from your report in order to cast the uh, president unfairly in a negative light. For example, uh, John Dowd, the president's lawyer, leaves a message with Michael Flynn's lawyer on November 17th of 2017, uh, November 2017. The edited version in your report makes it appear that he was improperly asking for confidential information. And that's all we'd know from your report, except that the judge in the Flynn case ordered the entire transcript released, in which Dowd makes it crystal clear that's not what he was suggesting. So uh, my question is, why did you edit the transcript to hide the exculpatory part of the message? I'm not certain I would agree uh, with your characterization as we did anything to hide. Well, you, uh, omit it, you omitted it. You, you quoted the part where he says we need some kind of heads up just for the sake of protecting all of our interests if we can, but you omitted uh, the portion where he says without giving up any confidential information. 
Well, I'm not going to go further in terms of discussing the well, let's go on. You, you extensively discuss Konstantin Kalemnik's activities with Paul Manafort. You describe in his quote, a Russian-Ukrainian political consultant and longtime employee of Paul Manafort assessed by the FBI to have ties to Russian intelligence. And again, that's all we would know from your report, except we've since learned from news articles that Kalemnik was actually a U.S. State Department intelligence source, yet nowhere in your report is he so identified. Why was that fact? I don't, I don't necessarily credit uh, what you're saying occurred. Were you aware that Kalimnik was uh, a, a I'm not going to go into the department ins and I'm not going to go in the ins and outs of what we had in the course in the course of our investigation. Kalimnik? Pardon? Did you interview Konstantin Kalimnik? I can't go into the discussion of uh, uh, our uh, investigative moves. And, and yet that is the, 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 the basis of your report. Again, the, the problem we're having is we have to rely on your report for an accurate reflection of the evidence, and we're starting to find out that's, that's not true. For example, uh, you, you, your report famously links Russian internet troll farms with the Russian government. Yet at a hearing on May 28th in the Concord Management IRA prosecution that you initiated, the judge excoriated both you and Mr. Barr for producing no evidence to support this claim. Why did you suggest Russia was responsible for the troll farms when in court You've been unable to produce any evidence to support it. Well, I'm not going to get into that any further than I, than I already have. But, but you, you have left the clear impression throughout the country through your report uh, that uh, uh, it was the Russian government behind the troll farms. And yet, when you're called upon to provide actual evidence in court, you fail to do so. Well, I would again uh, uh, dispute your characterization of what occurred in that, pre in that proceeding. In, in, in fact, the judge, considering, uh, considered holding prosecutors in criminal contempt, she backed off only after your hastily called press conference the next day in which you retroactively made the distinction between the Russian government and the Russia troll farms. Did your press conference of May 29th have anything to do with uh, the threat to hold your prosecutors in contempt the previous day for publicly misrepresenting the evidence? What was the question? The, the, the question is, did your May 29th press conference have anything to do with the fact that the previous day the judge threatened to hold your prosecutors in contempt for misrepresenting evidence? No. Now, the, 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 the fundamental problem is, is, as I said, we've got to take your word, your team faithfully, accurately, impartially, and completely described all of the underlying evidence in the Mueller report, and we're finding more and more instances where this just isn't the case. And it's starting to look like, you know, having desperately tried and failed to make a legal case against the president, you made a political case instead. You put it in a paper sack, lit it on fire, dropped it on our porch, rang the doorbell, and ran. I don't think you have re uh, reviewed a report that is as thorough, as fair, as consistent as the report that we have in front of us. Then, then why is contradictory The time of the gentleman has expired. The gentleman out. from Maryland is recognized. Director Mueller, let's go to a fourth episode of obstruction of justice in the form of witness tampering, which is urging witnesses not to cooperate with law enforcement, either by persuading them or intimidating them. Witness tampering is a felony punishable by 20 years in prison. You found evidence that the president engaged in efforts, and I quote, to encourage witnesses not to cooperate with the investigation. Is that right? That's correct. Do you have a citation? That I'm page seven on volume two. Thank you. Now, 
One of these witnesses was Michael Cohen, the president's personal lawyer, who ultimately pled guilty to campaign violations based on secret hush money payments to uh, two women the president knew, and also to lying Congress, lying to Congress about the hope for $1 billion Trump Tower deal. After the FBI searched Cohen's home, the president called him up personally, he said, to check in and told him to, quote, hang in there and stay strong. Is that right? Do you remember finding that? If it's in the report, as, as stated, yes, it is right. Yes, also in the report, actually, are a series of calls made by other friends of the president. Uh, one reached out to say he was with the boss in Mar-a-Lago, and the president said, he loves you. His name is redacted. Another redacted friend called to say, the boss loves you. And a third redacted friend called to say, everyone knows the boss has your back. Do you remember finding that sequence of calls? Generally, yes. When the news, um, and, and in fact, Cohen said that following the receipt of these messages, I'm quoting here, uh, page 147, volume two, he believed he had the support of the White House if he continued to toe the party line, and he determined to stay on message and be part of the team. That's at page 147. Do you remember generally finding generally, that? Generally, yes. Well, um, and uh, Robert, uh, Costello, a lawyer close to the president's legal team, uh, emailed Cohen to say, quote, you are loved, they are in our corner, sleep well tonight, and you have friends in high places. And that's up on the screen, page 147. You remember reporting that. that. Okay. Now, when the news first broke that Cohen had arranged payoffs to Stormy Daniels, uh, Cohen faithfully stuck to this party line. He said that publicly that neither the Trump organization nor the Trump campaign was a party to the transaction and neither reimbursed him. Um, Trump's personal attorney at that point quickly uh, texted Cohen to say, quote, client says thank you for what you do. Um, Mr. Mueller, who is the capital C client thanking Cohen for what he does? I can't speak to that. Uh, okay, the, the assumption in the context suggests very strongly it's President Trump. I can't speak to that. Okay. Cohen later broke and pled guilty to campaign finance offenses and admitted fully they were made, quote, at the direction of candidate Trump. Do you remember that? Yes. After Cohen's guilty plea, the president suddenly changed his tune towards Mr. Cohen, didn't he? Uh, I would say uh, I rely on what's in the report. Well, he made the suggestion that Cohen family members had committed crimes. He targeted, for example, Cohen's father-in-law and repeatedly suggested that he was guilty of committing crimes, right? I generally accurate. Okay. On page 154, you give a powerful summary of these changing dynamics. And you said, I'm happy to have you read it, but I'm happy to do it if not. I have in front of me, thank you. Would you like to read it? I would. Can you read it out loud to everybody? I would be happy to have you read it out. Okay, very, very, we'll read it at the same time. The evidence concerning this sequence of events could support an inference that the president used inducements in the form of positive messages in an effort to get Cohen not to cooperate and then turn to attacks and intimidation to deter the provision of information or to undermine Cohen's credibility once Cohen began cooperating. I believe that's accurate. Okay, and in my view, if anyone else in America engaged in these actions, they would have been charged with witness tampering. We must enforce the principle in Congress that you emphasize so well in the very last sentence of your report, which is that in America, no person is so high as to be above the law. I yield back, Mr. Chairman.
Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, just recently, Mr. Mueller, you said uh, Mr. Liu was asking you questions. And Mr. Liu's question, I, I quote, the reason you didn't indict the president is because of the OLC opinion. And you answered, that is correct. But that is not what you said in the report, and it's not what you told Attorney General Barr. And in fact, in a joint statement that you released with DOJ on May 29th, after your press conference, you're offered, your office issued a joint statement with the Department of Justice that said, the Attorney General has previously stated that the special counsel repeatedly affirmed that he was not saying that but for the OLC opinion, he would have found the president obstructed justice. The special counsel's report in his statement today made clear that the office concluded it would not reach a determination one way or the other whether the president committed a crime. There is no conflict between these statements. So Mr. Miller, do you stand by your joint statement with DOJ that you issued on May 29th as you sit here today? Uh, I would have to look at it more closely before I went said uh, uh, I agree with it. Well, um, so, I, you know, my conclusion is that what you told Mr. Liu really contradicts what you said in the report, and specifically what you said apparently repeatedly to Attorney General Barr, that, and then you issued a joint statement on May 29th saying that the Attorney General has previously stated that the special counsel repeatedly affirmed that he was not saying but for the OLC report that we would have found the President of Destructive Justice. So I just say there's a conflict. I do have some more questions. Mr. Mueller, there's been a lot of talk today about firing the special counsel and curtailing the investigation. Were you ever fired, Mr. Mueller, from was the special? What? Were you ever fired as special counsel, Mr. Mueller? No. No. Were you, were you allowed to complete your investigation unencumbered? Yes. And in fact, you resigned as special counsel when you closed up the office in, in late May 20, 2019. Is that correct? That's correct. Thank you. Um, Mr. Mueller, on April 18th, the Attorney General held a press conference in conjunction with the public release of your report. Did Attorney General Barr say anything inaccurate, either in his press conference or his March 24th letter to Congress, summarizing the principal conclusions of your report? Well, uh, what you are not mentioning is a letter we sent on uh, March 27th uh, to Mr. Barr that raised uh, uh, some issues. And that letter speaks for itself. But then I, I don't see how you could, could, that could be since A.G. Barr's letter detailed the principal conclusions of your report. And you have said before that, that there wasn't anything in, inaccurate. In fact, you had this joint statement. But let me, let me go on to another uh, question. Uh, Mr. Mueller, rather than purely relying on the evidence provided by witnesses and documents, I, I think you relied a lot on media. I'd like to know how many times you cited the Washington Post in your report. How many times I what? Cited the Washington Post in your report. I, don't have, I, I do not have knowledge of that yeah. figure, but I, I, well, that's I, it. I don't have knowledge of that figure. I counted about 60 times. How many times did you cite the New York Times? I counted. Uh, again, I have. 
No idea. I counted about 75 times. How many times did you cite Fox News? I, as with the other two, I have no idea. I, about 25 times. I, I've got to say, it looks like volume two is mostly regurgitated press stories. Honestly, there's almost nothing in volume two that I couldn't already hear or know simply by having a $50 cable news subscription. However, your investigation cost the American taxpayers $25 million. Um, Mr. Mueller, you cited media reports nearly 200 times in your report. Then in a footnote, a small footnote, number seven, page 15 of volume two of your report, you wrote, I quote, this section summarizes and cites various news stories, not for the truth of the information contained in the stories, but rather to place candidate Trump's response to those stories in context. Since nobody but lawyers reads footnotes, are you concerned that the American public took the embedded news stories? And Time of the gentlelady has expired. The gentlelady from Washington. Can, can Mr. Mueller no. answer the question? No, no, we're running short on time. I said the gentlelady from Washington. Thank you. Director Mueller, let's turn to the fifth of the obstruction episodes in your report, and that is the evidence of whether President Trump engaged in witness tampering with Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort, whose foreign ties were critical to your investigation into Russia's interference in our elections. And this is, starts at volume two, page 123. Your office got indictments against Manafort and Trump deputy campaign manager Rick Gates in two different jurisdictions, correct? Correct. And your office found that after a grand jury indicted them, Manafort told Gates not to plead guilty to any charges because, quote, he had talked to the president, president's personal counsel, and they were going to take care of us. Is that correct? That's accurate. And according to your report, one day after Manafort's conviction on eight felony charges, quote, the president said that flipping was not fair and almost ought to be outlawed. Is that correct? I'm aware of that. In this context, Director Mueller, what does it mean to flip? Have somebody cooperate in a criminal investigation. And how essential is that cooperation to any efforts to combat crime? Well, I'm not going to go beyond that, characterizing that Thank effort. Thank you. In your report, you concluded that President Trump and his personal counsel, Rudy Giuliani, quote, made repeated statements suggesting that a pardon was a possibility for Manafort, while also making it clear that the president did not want Manafort to flip and cooperate with the government, end quote. Is that correct? Correct. And as you stated earlier, witness tampering can be shown where someone with an improper motive encourages another person not to cooperate with law enforcement. Is that correct? Correct. Now, on page 123 of volume two, you also discuss the president's motive, and you say that as court proceedings move forward against Manafort, President Trump, quote, discussed with aides whether and in what way Manafort might be cooperating and whether Manafort knew any information that would be harmful to the president, end quote. Is that correct? And that was a quote from? From page 123, volume two. I have it, thank you, yes. And when someone tries to stop another person from working with law enforcement, and they do it because they're worried about what that person will say, it seems clear from what you wrote that this is a classic definition of witness tampering. Now, Mr. Manafort did eventually decide to cooperate with your office, and he entered into a plea agreement. But then he broke that agreement. Can you describe what he did that caused you to tell the court that the agreement was off? I refer you to the uh, court proceedings on that issue. 
So in page one, on page 127 of volume two, you told the court that Mr. Manafort lied about a number of matters that were material to the investigation, and you said that the Manafort's lawyers also, quote, regularly briefed the president's lawyers on topics discussed and the information that Manafort had provided in interviews with the special counsel's office. Does that sound right? And the source of that is? That's page 127, volume two. That's a direct quote. If it's from the report, yes, I support you. it. And two days after you told the court that Manafort broke his plea agreement by lying repeatedly, did President Trump tell the press that Mr. Manafort was, quote, very brave because he did not flip? This is page 128 of volume two. If it's in the report, I support it as it is, uh, as it is set forth. Thank you. Director Mueller, in your report, you make a very serious conclusion about the evidence regarding the president's involvement with the Manafort criminal proceedings. Let me read to you from your report. Evidence concerning the president's conduct toward Manafort indicates that the president intended to encourage Manafort to not cooperate with the government. It is clear that the president both publicly and privately discouraged Mr. Manafort's cooperation or flipping while also dangling the promise of a pardon if he stayed loyal and did not share what he knew about the president. Anyone else who did these things would be prosecuted for them. We must ensure that no one is above the law. And I thank you for being here, Director Mueller. Yield back. Gentleman from Pennsylvania. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Mueller. Mr. Mueller, I'm over here. I'm sorry. Mr. Mueller, are you familiar with the now expired independent counsel statute? It's the statute under which Ken Starr was appointed. Uh, that uh, Ken Starr did what? I'm sorry. Are you familiar with the independent counsel statute? Are you talking about the one that op we operating under now or a previous? No, under which Ken Starr was appointed. I am not that familiar with that, but okay. I'd be happy to take your question. Well, the Clinton administration allowed the independent counsel statute to expire after Ken Starr's investigation. The final report requirement was a major reason why the statute was allowed to expire. <clears throat> Even President Clinton's AG, Janet Reno, expressed concerns about the final report requirement. And I'll quote AG Reno. She said, on one hand, the American people have an interest in knowing the outcome of an investigation of their highest officials. On the other hand, the report requirement cuts against many of the most basic traditions and practices of American law enforcement. Under our system, we presume innocence and we value privacy. We believe that information obtained during a criminal investigation should, in most cases, be made public only if there is an indictment and prosecution, not in a lengthy and detailed report filed after a decision had, has been made not to prosecute. The final report provides a forum for unfairly airing a target's dirty laundry. And it also creates yet another incentive for an independent counsel to over-investigate in order to justify his or her tenure and to avoid criticism that the independent counsel may have left a stone unturned. Again, Mr. Mueller, those are A.G. Reno's words. Didn't you do exactly what A.G. Reno feared? Didn't you publish a lengthy report unfairly airing the target's dirty laundry without recommending charges? Uh, I, I disagree with that. Did any of your witnesses have the chance to be cross-examined? Can I just finish my answer on that? Quickly. My I operate under the current statute, not the original okay. statute. Any, so I am any, most familiar with the current statute, not the older okay. statute. Did any of the witnesses have a chance to be cross-examined? Did any of the witnesses in our investigation? Yes. Uh, I'm not going to answer that. Okay. 
Did you allow the people mentioned in your report to challenge how they were characterized? I'm not going to get into, uh, 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 okay. into that. Okay. Given that A.G. Barr stated multiple times during his confirmation hearing that he would make as much of your report public as possible, did you write your report knowing that it would likely be shared with the public? No. Did knowing that the report could and likely would be made public, did that alter the contents which you included? I can't speak to that. Despite the expectations that your report would be released to the public, you left out significant exculpatory evidence. In other words, evidence favorable to the president, correct? Well, I actually dis would disagree with you. I think we strove to put, put into the report I think exculp my, exculpatory Mike, I evidence as well. I got into that with you, where you said there was, you said there was evidence you left out. Well, you, know, you make a choice as to what goes into a, okay. a uh, isn't it, isn't an it indictment. True? Mr. Mueller, isn't it true that on page one of volume two, you state when you're quoting the statute that you had an obligation to either prosecute or not prosecute? Well, generally that is the case. Right. Although most cases are not uh, done in the context of uh, uh, the president. And in this case, you made a decision not to prosecute, correct? No, we made a decision not to decide whether to prosecute or not. So, so essentially what your report did was everything that A.G. Reno warned against. I can't uh, agree with that characterization. Okay. Well, well, what you did is you compiled a nearly 450, you compiled nearly 450 pages of the very worst information you gathered against the target of your investigation, who happens to be the President of the United States. And you did this knowing that you were not going to recommend charges and that the report would be made public. Not true. Mr. Mr. Mueller, as a former officer in the United States JAG Corps, I prosecuted nearly 100 terrorists in a Baghdad courtroom. I cross-examined the butcher of Fallujah in defense of our Navy SEALs. As a civilian, I was elected a magisterial district judge in Pennsylvania, so I'm very well-versed in the American legal system. The drafting and the publication of some of the information in this report, without an indictment, without prosecution, frankly flies in the face of American justice. And I find those facts in this entire process Un-American. I yield the remainder of my time to my colleague, Jim Jordan. Uh, Mr. Uh, Director Mueller, the third FISA renewal happens a month after your name, special counsel. What role did your office play in the third FISA renewal of Carter okay. Page? Not going to talk to that. Time of the gentleman has expired. The gentlelady from Florida. Director Mueller, a couple of my colleagues right here wanted to talk to you or ask you about lies. So let's talk about lies. According to your report, page 9, volume 1, witnesses lied to your office and to Congress. Those lies materially impaired the investigation of Russia interference, according to your report. Other than the individuals who pled guilty to crimes based on their lying to you and your team, did other witnesses lie to you? I think there are probably a spectrum of witnesses uh, in terms of uh, those who uh, are not telling the full truth and those are outright liars. Thank you very much. Outright liars. It is fair to say then that there were limits on what evidence was available to your investigation of both Russia election interference and obstruction of justice. That's true and it's usually the case. And that lies by Trump campaign officials and administration officials impeded your investigation. Uh, I would generally agree with that. Thank you so much, Director Mueller. You will be hearing more from me in the next hearing, so I yield the balance of my time to Mr. Correa. Thank you. Mr. Mueller, first of all, let me welcome you. 
Thank you for your service to our country. You're a hero, Vietnam War vet, wounded war vet. We won't forget your service to our country. Thank you, sir. I may begin, because of time limits, we have gone in depth on only five possible episodes of obstruction. There's, there's so much more. And I want to focus on, on another section of obstruction, which is the president's conduct concerning Michael Flynn, the president's national security advisor. In early 27, the White House counsel and the president were informed that Mr. Flynn had lied to government authorities about his communications with the Russian ambassador during the Trump campaign in transition. Is this correct? Correct. If a hostile nation knows that a U.S. official has lied publicly, that can, that can be used to blackmail that government official, correct? I'm, gonna, I'm not going to speak to that. I don't disagree with it necessarily, but uh, uh, I'm not going to speak to any, any more to that issue. Thank you very much, sir. Uh, Flynn resigned on February 13, 2016. And the very next day, when the president was having lunch with New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, did the president say, open quotes, now that we fired Flynn, the Russia thing is over, close quote. Is that correct? Correct. And is it true that Christie responded by saying, open quotes, no way, and this Russia thing is far from over, close quote? That's the way we have it in the report. Thank you. And after the president met with Christie, later that same, that same day, the president arranged to meet with then FBI Director James Comey, alone in the Oval Office, correct? Uh, correct, particularly if uh, you have the citation to the uh, report. Page 3940, Volume 2. Thank you very much. And according to Comey, the president told him, I hope, open quote, I hope you can see your way to clear, to letting this thing go, to letting Flynn go. He's a good guy, and I hope you can let it go. Close quote. Page 40, Volume 2. Accurate. What did Comey understand the president to be asking? I'm, I'm not going to get into what was in uh, Mr. Comey's mind. Comey understood this to be a direction because of the president's position and the circumstances of the one-to-one -one meeting, page 40, volume 2. Well, I understand uh, it's, it's in the report, and I support it uh, as, being in the, as being in the report. Thank you, sir. Even though the, pub, the president publicly denied telling Comey to drop the investigation, you found, open quote, substantial evidence corroborating Comey's account over the president's. Is this correct? That's correct. The president fired Comey on May 9th. Is that correct, sir? I believe that's the accurate date. That's page 77, volume 2. You found substantial evidence that the catalyst for the president's firing of Comey was Comey's, open quote, unwillingness to publicly state that the president was not personally under investigation. I'm not going to delve more into the details of what happened. Uh, if it's in the report, uh, then I'm supportive because it's already been reviewed and appropriately appears in the report. And that's page 75, volume two. Thank you. Thank you. And in fact, the very next day, the president told the Russian foreign minister, open quote, I just fired the head of the FBI. He was crazy, a real nut job, I face great pressure because of Russia. That's taken off. I'm not under investigation, close quote. Is that correct? That's what was written, written in time the report, yes. Time of the gentleman has expired. Um, Thank you, sir. Gentleman from Virginia.
Thank you, Mr. Chairman, Mr. Co Mr. Mueller. We've heard a lot about what you're not going to talk about today, so let's talk about something that you should be able to talk about, the law itself, the underlying obstruction statute, and your creative legal analysis of the statutes in Volume 2, particularly your interpretation of 18 U.S.C. 1512C. Section 1512C is an obstruction of justice statute created as part of auditing and financial regulations for public companies, and as you write on page 164 of Volume 2, this provision was added as a floor amendment in the Senate and explained as closing a certain loophole with respect to document shredding. And to read the statute, whoever corruptly alters, destroys, mutilates, or conceals a record, document, or other object, or attempts to do so with the intent to impair the object's integrity or availability for use in, in an official proceeding, or otherwise obstructs, influences, or impedes any official proceeding or attempts to do so, shall be fined under the statute or imprisoned not more than 20 years or both. Your analysis and application of the statute proposes to give Clause C2 a much broader interpretation than commonly used. First, your analysis proposes to read Clause C2 in isolation, reading it as a freestanding, all-encompassing provision, prohibiting any act influencing a proceeding if done with an improper motive. And second, your analysis of the statute to apply this sweeping pro proposes to apply this sweeping prohibition to lawful acts taken by public officials exercising their discretionary powers if those acts influence a proceeding. So, Mr. Mueller, I'd ask you, in analyzing the obstruction, you state that you recognize that the Department of Justice and the courts have not definitively resolved these issues, correct? Correct. You'd agree that not everyone in the Justice Department agreed with your legal theory of the obstruction of justice statutes, uh, correct? I'm not going to uh, be involved in a discussion on, uh, on that at this juncture. In fact, the Attorney General himself disagrees with your interpretation of the law, correct? I leave that to the Attorney General to identify. And you would agree that prosecutors sometimes incorrectly apply the law, correct? I would have to agree with that one. Yes. And members of your legal team, in fact, have had convictions overturned because they were based on an incorrect legal theory, correct? I don't know to what you advert. We've all, who well, in time in the of, trenches trying cases, have not won every one of those cases. Well, let me ask you about one in particular. One of your top prosecutors, Andrew Weissman, obtained a conviction against auditing firm Arthur Anderson, lower court, which was subsequently overturned in a unanimous Supreme Court decision that rejected the legal theory advanced by Weissman, correct? Well, I, I'm not going to get in and delve into right, well, the... Let me read from that. Maybe it'll may, I just finish, may I just finish my yes. answer to say that I'm not going to be get involved in a discussion on that? I will refer you to that citation that you gave me at the outset for the lengthy discussion on just what you're talking about. And to the extent that I have anything to say about it, it is what we've already put into the uh, report on that and issue. And I am reading from your report uh, when discussing this section, and I'll read from the decision of the Supreme Court, unanimously reversing Mr. Weissman, uh, when he said, indeed, it's, it's striking how little culpability the instructions required. For example, the jury was told that even if Petitioner honestly and sincerely believed his conduct was lawful, the jury could convict. The instructions also diluted the meaning of corruptly such that it covered innocent conduct. Well, let, me, let me just say, put well, a word let for Let me move on. I have, I have limited time. Your report takes yeah, the broadest me, possible me. reading of this provision in applying it to the President's official acts, and I'm concerned about the implications of your theory for over-criminalizing conduct by public officials and private citizens alike. So to emphasize how broad your theory of liability is, I want to ask you about a few examples. On October 11th, 2015, during the FBI investigation into Hillary Clinton's use of a private email server, President Obama said, I don't think it posed a national security problem. And he later said, I can tell you that this is not a situation in which America's national security was endangered. Assuming for a moment that his comments did influence the investigation, 
Couldn't President Obama be charged under your interpretation with obstruction of justice? Well, again, I'd refer you to uh, uh, the report, but let me say with Andrew Weissman, who is one of the more talented attorneys that we have and uh, have on board. Okay, uh, well, I'll is, take that over as a, a period of time. He has run a number of right. uh, units. Uh, I have very limited time. In August 2015, a very senior DOJ official called FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe, expressing concern that FBI agents were still openly pursuing the Clinton Foundation probe. The DOJ official was apparently very pissed off, quote unquote. McCabe questioned this official, asking, are you telling me I need to shut down a validly predicated investigation? To which the official replied, of course not. This seems to be a clear example of somebody within the executive branch attempting to influence an FBI investigation. So under your theory, uh, couldn't that person be charged with obstruction as long as a prosecutor could come up with a potentially corrupt, corrupt motive? I, I refer you to our lengthy dissertation on exactly those issues that appears in the, uh, at the end of the re report. Mr. Mueller, I'd argue that uh, it says above the Supreme Court, equal justice under law. I mean, the gentleman has expired. Not stretched. Our intent, was, our intent was to conclude this hearing in three hours. Given the break, that would bring us to approximately 1140. With Director Mueller's indulgence, we will be asking our remaining Democratic members to voluntarily limit their time below the five minutes so that we can complete our work as close to that time frame as possible. And I recognize the uh, gentlelady from Pennsylvania. Thank you, Director Mueller. Um, I want to ask you some questions about the President's statements regarding advanced knowledge of the WikiLeaks dumps. So the President refused to sit down with your investigators for an in-person interview, correct? Correct. So the only answers we have to questions from the President are contained in Appendix C to your report. That's correct. Okay, so looking at Appendix C on page 5, you asked the President over a dozen questions about whether he had knowledge that WikiLeaks possessed or might possess the emails that were stolen by the Russians. I apologize. Sure. Can you start it again? Okay, sure. So we're looking at Appendix C. Right. Um, and at Appendix C, page 5, you asked the President about a dozen questions about whether he had knowledge that WikiLeaks possessed the stolen emails that might be released in a way helpful to his campaign or harmful to the Clinton campaign. Is that correct? You asked those yes. questions? Okay. In February of this year, Mr. Uh, Trump's personal attorney, Michael Cohen, testified to Congress under oath that, quote, Mr. Trump knew from Roger Stone in advance about the WikiLeaks drop of emails, end quote. That's a matter of public record, isn't it? Well, are you referring to the report or some other public record? This was testimony before Congress by Mr. Cohen. Do you know if he told and you? I, I'm not familiar with it, explicitly familiar with uh, what he testified to before Congress. Okay. Let's look at an event described on page 18 of volume two of your report. Now according, and we're gonna put it up in a slide I think, according to Deputy Campaign Manager Rick Gates, in the summer of 2016, he and candidate Trump were on the way to an airport shortly after WikiLeaks released its first set of stolen emails. And Gates told your investigators that candidate Trump was on a phone call. And when the call ended, Trump told Gates that more releases of damaging information would be coming, end quote. Do you recall that from the report? Uh, I, if it's in the report, I uh, support it. Okay, and that's on page 18 of volume two. Now, on page 77 of volume two, your report also stated, quote, in addition, some witnesses said that Trump privately sought information about future WikiLeaks releases, end quote. 
Is that correct? Correct. Okay. Now, in Appendix C, where the President did answer some written questions, he said, quote, I do not recall discussing WikiLeaks with him, nor do I recall being aware of Mr. Stone having discussed WikiLeaks with individuals associated with my campaign, end quote. Is that correct? Uh, if it's from the report, it is correct. Okay. So is it fair to say the President denied ever discussing WikiLeaks with Mr. Stone and denied being aware um, that anyone associated with his campaign discussed WikiLeaks with Stone? I'm sorry, could you repeat that one? Is it fair then that the President denied uh, knowledge of himself or anyone else discussing WikiLeaks dumps with Mr. Stone? Yes, yes. Okay. Um, and with that, I would yield back. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Uh, Mr. Mueller, over here. Mr. Mueller, did you indeed interview for the FBI director job one day before you were appointed a special counsel? I, my understanding, I was not uh, applying for the job. I was asked to give uh, my uh, input on what it would take to do the job, which uh, triggered the uh, interview you're talking about. So you don't recall on May 16, 2017, that you interviewed with the president regarding the FBI director job? I interviewed with the president and uh, it, was about, it director job. was about the job and not about me applying for the job. So, so your, your statement here today is that you didn't interview to apply for the FBI director job. That's correct. So it, did you tell the vice president that the FBI director position would be the one job that you would come back to, for? I don't recall that one. You don't recall that? No. Uh, given your 22 months of investigation, tens of million dollars spent, and millions of documents reviewed, did you obtain any evidence at all that any American voter changed their vote as a result of Russian's election interference? I'm not going to speak to that. You can't speak to that? Speak After to 22 months of investigation, there's not any evidence in that document before us that, that any voter changed their vote because of their interference, and I'm asking you based on all the documents that, that you was, reviewed. That was outside our purview. Russian meddling was outside well, your purview? Right, but the, the impact of that meddling was undertaken by other uh, agencies. Okay, you stated in your opening statement that you would not get into the details of the Steele dossier. However, multiple times in volume two on page 23, 27, and 28, you mentioned the unverified allegations. How long did it take you to, to reach the conclusion that it was unverified? Uh, I'm not gonna speak to that. It's, in, it's actually in your report multiple times that it's unverified, and you're telling me that you're not willing to tell us how you came to the conclusion that it was unverified. True. When did you become aware that the unverified Steele dossier was included in the FISA application to spy on Carter Page? I'm, I'm sorry, what was, he, uh, what was the question? When did you become aware that the unverified Steele dossier was intended, was included in the FISA application to spy on Carter Page? Uh, I'm not going to speak to that. Uh, your team interviewed Christopher Steele, is that correct? Not going to get into that. You can't, you said can't, you can't tell this committee as to whether or not you interviewed Christopher Steele in a 22-month investigation with 18 lawyers. As I said at the outset, that is one of those, uh, one of the uh, investigations that is, uh, is being handled by others in the Department of Justice. Yeah, but you're here testifying about this investigation today. And I am asking you directly, did any members of your team or did you interview Christopher Steele in the course of your investigation? And I am not going to answer that question, sir. You, you had two years to investigate. Not once did you consider it worthy to investigate how an un unverified document that was paid for by a political opponent was used to obtain a warrant to spy on the opposition political campaign. Did you do any investigation in that I, whatsoever? I do not accept your characterization of what occurred. 
What would you, what would be your I'm characterization? I'm not going to speak any more to it. So you can't speak any more to it, but you're not going to agree with my characterization. Is that correct? Yes. The FISA application makes reference to source one, who was Christopher Steele, the author of the Steele dossier. The FISA application says nothing sources one's reason for conducting the research into candidate one's ties to Russia based on sources one previous reporting history with FBI, whereby source one provided reliable information to the FBI. The FBI believes source one's reporting herein to be credible. Do you believe the FBI's representation that source one's reporting was credible to be accurate? I'm not going to answer that. So you're not going to respond to any of the questions regarding Christopher Steele or your interviews with them? Well, I, as I said at the outset this morning, uh, that was one of the uh, investigations that uh, I could not speak to. Well, I, I don't understand how if you interviewed an individual in the purview of this investigation that you're testifying to us today, that you've closed that investigation, how that's not within your purview to tell us about that investigation and who you interviewed. I have nothing to add. Okay, well, the, I, I can guarantee you that the American people want to know. And I'm, and I'm very hopeful and glad that AG Barr is looking into this and the Inspector General is looking into this because you're unwilling to answer the questions of the American people as it relates to the very basis of this investigation into the president and the very basis of this individual who you did interview. You're just refusing to answer those questions. Uh, can, can't the president fire the FBI director at any time without reason under Article One of the Constitution? Yes. Article Two. Yes. That's correct. Can't he also fire you as special counsel at any time without any reason? I believe that to be the case. Under Article no, 2. Well, I, I would, hold on just a second. Uh, you said without any reason. I, I know the special counsel can be fired, but I'm not certain it extends to for whatever reason uh, is given. Well, and you've testified that you weren't fired. You were able to complete your investigation in full. Is that correct? Uh, I'm not going to add to what I've stated before. Right, my time's expired. Gentlemen's time has expired. The gentlelady from Pennsylvania. From Texas. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you, Mr. Mueller, for being with us this afternoon, this af close to the afternoon now. The Direct Director Mueller, now I would like to ask you about the President's answers relating to Roger Stone. Roger Stone was indicted for multiple federal crimes, and the indictment alleges that Mr. Stone discussed future WikiLeaks email releases with the Trump campaign. Understanding there's a gag order on the Stone case, I will keep my questions restricted to publicly available information. Uh, Mr. Stone's indictment- well, Let me just say at the outset, I, I, I don't mean to <clears throat> disrupt you, but uh, uh, I'm not, uh, I, I would like some demarcation of that which is applicable to this but also in such a way that it does not hinder uh, the other prosecution that is taking place in D.C. I understand that. I'm only going to be talking about the questions that you asked uh, in writing to the president Thank you, that relate to Mr. Stone. Uh, Mr. Stone's indictment states, among other things, the following, quote, Stone was contacted by senior Trump officials to inquire about future releases of Organization One, Organization One being WikiLeaks. The indictment continues, quote, Stone thereafter told the Trump campaign about potential future releases of damaging material by WikiLeaks. So in short, the indictment alleges that Stone was asked by the Trump campaign to get information about more WikiLeaks releases and that Stone, in fact, did tell the Trump campaign about potential future releases, correct? Yes, ma'am. But uh, I I see you're quoting from the indictment, and even though the indictment is a public document, 
I feel uncomfortable discussing anything having to do with uh, the Stone uh, prosecution. Right. The uh, indictment is is of record, and I pulled we pulled it off of the. Uh, I, I, I'm reading I straight that. from it. Well, well, turning back to the president's answers to your questions, then, on this very subject, the president denied ever discussing future week, WikiLeaks releases with Stone and denied knowing whether anyone else on his campaign had those discussions with Stone. If you had learned that other witnesses put, us, put in aside the president, if other witnesses had lied to your investigators in response to Pacific's questions, whether, he, whether in writing or in an interview, could they be charged with false statement crimes? Well, I'm, I'm not going to speculate. I think you're asking for me to speculate, uh, given a, a, a set of circumstances. Well, let's put it more specific. What if I had made a false statement to an investigator on your team? Could I go to jail for up to five years? Yes. Yes. Although there's, it's Congress, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the point, though, isn't it? That, that no one is above the law. Not you, not the Congress, and certainly not the president. Uh, and I think it's just troubling to have to hear some of these things. Uh, and that's why the American people deserve to learn the full facts of the misconduct described in your report, for which any other person would have been charged with crimes. So thank you for being here. And again, this, the point has been underscored many times, but I'll repeat it. No one is above the law. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you, ma'am. The time, the, uh, gentleman, the uh, gentleman from North Dakota is recognized. Mr. Mueller, how many people did you fire, how many people on your staff did you fire during the course of the investigation? How many people did you fire? I'm not going to uh, discuss that. You fired, according to the uh, Inspector General's report, attorney number two was let go, and we know Peter Strzok was let go, correct? Yes, and there may have been other persons on other issues that have been uh, either transferred or fired. Peter Strzok testified before this committee on July 12, 2018, that he was fired because you were concerned about preserving the appearance of independence. Do you agree with his testimony? Uh, say that again, if you could. He said he was fired at least partially because you were, you were worried about, a, um, concerned about preserving the appearance of independence with the special counsel's investigation. Do you agree with that statement? The statement was by whom? Peter Strzok, at this hearing. And I am not familiar with that. Did you fire him because you were worried about the appearance of independence of the, in, of the investigation? No, he was uh, transferred as a result of instances involving uh, texts. Do, do, do you agree that your office did not only have an obligation to operate with independence, but to operate with the appearance of independence as well? Absolutely. We strove to do that over the two years. Andrew Weissman? Part, part of that was making certain that... Andrew Weissman's one of your top attorneys? Yes. Did Weissman have a role in selecting other members of your team? He had some role, but not uh, a major role. Andrew Weissman attended Hillary Clinton's election night party. Did you know that before or after he came onto the team? Don't know when I found that out. Okay. On January 30th, 2017, Weissman wrote an email to Deputy Attorney General Yates stating, I am so proud and in awe regarding her disobeying a direct order from the president. Did Weissman disclose that email to you before he joined the team? Yeah, I'm not going to talk about that. Is that not a conflict of interest? I'm not going to talk about that. Are you aware that Ms. Jeannie Rhee represented Hillary Clinton in litigation regarding personal emails originating, originating from Clinton's time as Secretary of State? Yes. Did you know that before she came on the team? No. Aaron Zelbley, the guy sitting next to you, represented Justin Cooper, a Clinton aide who destroyed one of Clinton's mobile devices. And you must be aware by now that six of your lawyers donated $12,000 directly to Hillary Clinton. 
I'm not even talking about the 49,000 they donated to other Democrats, just the donations to the opponent who is the target of your investigation. Can I speak for a second to the hiring practices? Sure. Uh, we strove to hire those individuals that could do the job. Uh, I've, been, yeah, okay. I've been in this business for almost 25 years, and nope. in those 25 years, I have not had occasion once to ask somebody about their political affiliation. It is not done. What I care about is the capability of the individual to do the job and do the job quickly and seriously and with integrity. But that's what I'm saying, Mr. Mueller. This isn't just about you being able to vouch for your team. This is about knowing that the day you accepted this role, you had to be aware no matter what this report concluded, half of the country was going to be skeptical of your team's findings. And that's why we have recusal laws that define bias and perceive bias for this very reason. 28 United States Code 528 specifically lists not just political conflict of interest, but the appearance of political conflict of interest. It's just simply not enough that you vouch for your team. The interests of justice demand that no perceived bias exists. I can't imagine a single prosecutor or judge that I have ever appeared in front of would be comfortable with these circumstances where over half of the prosecutorial team had a direct relationship to the opponent of the person being investigated. Let me one other fact that I, I put on the table, and that is we hired 19 lawyers over the period of time. Of those 19 lawyers, 14 of them were transferred from elsewhere in the Department of Justice. Only five came from outside. And so half of them had a direct relationship, political or personal, with the opponent of the person you were investigating. And that's my point. I wonder if not a single word in this entire report was changed, but rather the only difference was we switched Hillary Clinton and President Trump. If Peter Strzok had texted those terrible things about Hillary Clinton instead of President Trump, if a team of lawyers worked for, donated thousands of dollars to, and went to Trump's, Trump's parties instead of Clinton's, I don't think we'd be here trying to prop up an obstruction allegation. My colleagues would have spent the last four months accusing your team of being bought and paid for by the Trump campaign, and we couldn't trust a single word of this report. They would still be accusing the president of conspiracy with Russia, and they would be accusing your team of aiding and embedding in that, with that conspiracy. And with that, I yield back. Gentleman yields back. The gentleman from Colorado. Director Mueller. Thank you for your service to our country. I'd like to talk to you about one of the other incidents of obstruction, and that's the evidence in your report showing the president directing his son and his communications director to issue a false public statement in June of 2017 about a meeting between his campaign and Russian individuals at Trump Tower in June of 2016. According to your report, Mr. Trump Jr. was the only Trump associate who participated in that meeting and who declined to be voluntarily interviewed by your office. Is that correct? Yes. Did Mr. Trump Jr. or his counsel ever communicate to your office any intent to invoke his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination? Uh, I'm not going to answer that. You did pose written questions to the president about his knowledge of the Trump Tower meeting. Uh, you included, also asked him about whether or not uh, he had directed a false press statement. The president did not answer at all that question, correct? Uh, I don't have it in front of me. I, I take your word. Uh, I can represent to you that Appendix C, specifically C-13, states as much. According to page 100 of volume 2 of your report, your investigation found that Hope Hicks, the President's Communications Director, in June of 2017 was shown emails that set up the Trump Tower meeting, and she told your office that she was, quote, shocked by the emails because they looked, quote, really bad. True? Do you have the citation? Sure. It's page 100 of volume 2. While you're Flipping to that page, Director Mueller, I will also tell you that according to page 99 of volume 2, 
those emails in question stated, according to your report, that the Crown Prosecutor of Russia had offered to provide the Trump campaign with some official documents and information that would incriminate Hillary and her dealings with Russia as part of Russia and its government's support for Mr. Trump. Trump Jr. responded, if it's what you say, I love it. And he, Kushner, and Manafort met with the Russian attorneys and several other Russian individuals at Trump Tower on June 9, 2016, end quote. Correct? Generally accurate. Isn't it true that Ms. Hicks told your office that she went multiple times to the president to, quote, urge him that they should be fully transparent about the June 9th meeting, end quote. But the president each time said no. Correct? Accurate. And the reason was because of those emails, which the president, quote, believed would not leak. Correct? Well, I'm not certain how it's characterized, but generally correct. Did the president direct Ms. Hicks to say, quote, only that Trump Jr. took a brief meeting and it was about Russian adoption, end quote, because Trump Jr.'s statement to the New York Times, quote, said too much, according to one, page 102 of volume two. Okay. Correct? Let me, one, let me just check one thing. Yes. And according to Ms. Hicks, the president still directed her to say the meeting was only about Russian adoption, correct? Yes. Despite knowing that to be untrue. Thank you, Director Mueller. I yield back the balance of my own time. Mr. Mueller, you've been asked over here on the, on the far right, sir. Uh, you've been asked a lot of questions here today, and to be frank, uh, you performed as most of us expected. You've stuck closely to your report, and you have declined to answer many of our questions on both sides. As the closer for the Republican side, I know you're glad to get to the close, I, I want to summarize the highlights of what we have heard and what we know. You spent two years and nearly 30 million taxpayer dollars and unlimited resources to prepare a nearly 450-page report, which you describe today as very thorough. Millions of Americans today maintain genuine concerns about your work, in large part because of the infamous and widely publicized bias of your investigating team members, which we now know included 14 Democrats and zero Republicans. Campaign finance reports later uh, showed that team, excuse me, it's my time, that team of Democrat investigators you hired donated more than $60,000 to the Hillary Clinton campaign and other Democratic candidates. Your team also included Peter Strzok and Lisa Page, which have been discussed today, and they had the lurid text messages that confirmed they openly mocked and hated Donald Trump and his supporters, and they vowed to take him out. Mr. Ratcliffe asked you earlier this morning, quote, can you give me an example other than Donald Trump where the Justice Department determined that an investigated person was not exonerated because their innocence was not conclusively determined, unquote. You answered, I cannot. Sir, that is unprecedented. The president believed from the very beginning that you and your special counsel team had serious conflicts. This is stated in the report and acknowledged by everybody. And yet, President Trump cooperated fully with the investigation. He knew he had done nothing wrong, and he encouraged all witnesses to cooperate with the investigation and produced more than 1.4 million pages of information and allowed over 40 witnesses who were directly affiliated with the White House or his campaign. Your report acknowledges on page 61, volume 2, that a volume of evidence exists of the president telling many people privately, quote, the president was concerned about the impact of the Russian investigation on his ability to govern and to address important foreign relations issues and even matters of national security. And on page 174, volume 2, your report also acknowledges that the Supreme Court has held, quote, the president's removal powers 
or at their zenith with respect to principal officers, that is, officers who must be appointed by the president and who report to him directly. The president's exclusive and illimitable power of removal of those principal officers furthers the president's ability to ensure that the laws are faithfully executed, unquote. And that would even include the attorney general. Look, in spite of all of that, nothing ever happened to stop or impede your special counsel's investigation. Nobody was fired by the president, nothing was curtailed, and the investigation continued unencumbered for 22 long months. As you finally concluded in volume one, the evidence, quote, did not establish that the president was involved in an underlying crime related to Russian election interference, unquote. And the evidence, quote, did not establish that the president or those close to him were involved in any Russian conspiracies or had an unlawful relationship with any Russian official, unquote. Over those 22 long months that your investigation dragged along, the president became increasingly frustrated, as many of the American people did, with its effects on our country and, and his ability to govern. He vented about this to his lawyer and his close associates, and he even shared his frustrations, as we all know, on Twitter. But while the president's social media accounts might have influenced some in the media or the opinion of some of the American people, none of those audiences were targets or witnesses in your investigation. The president never affected anybody's testimony. He never demanded to end the investigation or demanded that you be terminated, and he never misled Congress, the DOJ, or the special counsel. Those, sir, are undisputed facts. There will be a lot of discussion, I, I predict, today and great frustration throughout the country about the fact that you wouldn't answer any questions here about the origins of this whole charade, which was the infamous Christopher Steele dossier, now proven to be totally bogus, even though it is listed and specifically referenced in your report. But as our hearing is concluding, we apparently will get no comment on that from you. Mr. Mueller, there's one primary reason why you were called here today and by the, by the Democrat majority of our committee. Our colleagues on the other side of the aisle just want political cover. They desperately wanted you today to tell them they should impeach the president. But the one thing you have said very clearly today is that your report is complete and thorough and you completely agree with and stand by its recommendations and all of its content. Is that right? True. Mr. Mueller, one last important question. Your report does not recommend impeachment, does it? I'm not going to talk about uh, rec recommendations. It does not conclude that impeachment would be appropriate here, I'm not right? Talk, I'm not going to talk uh, about, that, uh, uh, about th that issue. That's one of the many things you wouldn't talk about today, but I think we can all draw our own conclusions. I do thank you for your service to the country, and I'm glad this charade will come to an end soon, and we can get back to the important business of this committee with its broad jurisdiction of so many important issues for the country. With that, I yield back. Gentleman yields back. I want to announce that our intent was to conclude this hearing at around 11.45. All of the Republican members have now asked their questions, but we have a few remaining Democratic members. They will be limiting their questions, so with Director Mueller's indulgence, we expect to finish within 15 minutes. The gentlelady from Georgia is recognized. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you, Director Mueller. Your investigations of the Russian attack on our democracy and of obstruction of justice, justice were extraordinarily productive. In under two years, you charged at least 37 people or entities with crimes. You convicted seven individuals, five of whom were top Trump campaign or White House aides. Charges remain pending against more than two dozen Russian persons or entities, and against others. Now, let me start with those five Trump campaign or administration aides that you convicted. Uh, would you agree with me that they are Paul Manafort, President Trump's campaign manager, Rick Gates, President Trump's deputy campaign manager, Michael Flynn, President Trump's former national security advisor, Michael Cohen, the president's personal attorney, George Papadopoulos, President Trump's former campaign foreign policy advisor, correct? Correct. 
and the sixth Trump associate will, fa will face trial later this year, correct? And that person would be Roger Stone, correct? Correct. Thank you. Well, I'm not certain what you said by Stone, but he is uh, in another court system, as I indicated before. Exactly. He's still and under I, uh, still under. I want to discuss. Correct. Thank you. And there are many other charges as well, correct? Correct. So, sir, I just want to thank you so much in my limited time today for your team, the work that you did and your dedication. In less than two years, your team was able to uncover an incredible amount of information related to Russia's attack on our elections and to obstruction of justice. And there's still more that we have to learn. Despite facing unfair attacks by the president, and even here today, your work has been substantive and fair. The work has laid the critical foundation for our investigation, and for that, I thank you. I thank you. And with that, I yield back the balance of my time. The lady yields back. The gentleman from Arizona. Thank you. Director Mueller, I'm disappointed that some have questioned your motives throughout this process, and I want to take a moment to remind the American people of who you are and your exemplary service to our country. You are a Marine. You served in Vietnam and earned a Bronze Star and a Purple Heart, correct? Correct. Which president appointed you to become the United States Attorney for Massachusetts? Which senator? Which president? Oh, which president? I think that was President Bush. Um, According to my notes, it was President Ronald Reagan had the honor to do so. Under whose my mistake. <laughs> <laughs> Under whose administration did you serve as the Assistant Attorney General in charge of the DOJ's criminal division? Under which president? Yep. That would be George Bush one. That is correct, President George H.W. Bush. After that, you took a job at a prestigious law firm, and after only a couple years, you did something extraordinary. You left that lucrative position to re-enter public service, prosecuting homicides here in Washington, D.C. Is that correct? Correct. When you were named director of the FBI, which president first appointed you? Bush. And the Senate confirmed you with a vote of 98 to 0, correct? Surprising. <laughs> and you were sworn in as director just one week before the September 11th attacks. True. You helped to protect this nation against another attack. You did such an outstanding job that when your 10-year term expired, the Senate unanimously voted to extend your term for another two years, correct? True. When you were asked in 2017 to take the job as special counsel, the President had just fired FBI Director James Comey. The Justice Department and the FBI were in turmoil. You must have known there would be an extraordinary challenge. Why did you accept? I'm not going to get into that's a little bit off track. <laughs> some, I, I, it was a challenge, period. Some people have attacked the political motivations of your team, even suggested your investigation was a witch hunt. When you considered people to join your team, did you ever even once ask about their political affiliation? Never once. In your entire career as a law enforcement official, have you ever made a hiring decision based upon a person's political affiliation? No. I'm not surprised. And, uh, if I might just interject, uh, the, the capabilities that we have shown in the report that's been discussed here today was a result of a, a team of agents and, and uh, lawyers who were absolutely exemplary and uh, were hired because of the value they could contribute to getting the job done and getting it done expeditiously. Sir, you're a patriot. And clear to me in reading your report and listening to your testimony today, 
you acted fairly and with restraint. There were circumstances where you could have filed charges against other people, mentioned the report, but you declined. Not every prosecutor does that, certainly in a one-on-one -on -one witch hunt. The attacks made against you and your team intensified because your report is damning. And I believe you did uncover substantial evidence of high crimes and misdemeanors. Let me also say something else that you are right about. The only remedy for this situation is for Congress to take action. I yield back. Gentleman yields back. The gentlelady from Pennsylvania. Good morning, Director Mother, Mueller, Madeline Dean. Ah, gotcha. Sorry. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I wanted to ask you about public confusion connected with Attorney General Barr's release of your report. I will be quoting your March 27th letter. Sir, in that letter and at several other times, did you convey to the Attorney General that the, quote, introductions and executive summaries of our two-volume report accurately summarize this office's work and conclusions, end quote? And I have to... Uh, say that the letter itself uh, speaks for itself. And those were your words in that letter. Continuing with your letter, you wrote to the Attorney General that, quote, the summary letter, letter that the Department sent to Congress and released to the public late in the afternoon of March 24th did not fully capture the context, nature, and substance of this office's work and conclusions, end quote. Is that correct? Again, I rely on the uh, letter itself for uh, its terms. Thank you. What was it about the report's context, nature, substance that the Attorney General's letter did not capture? I think we captured that in the uh, March 27th uh, responsive letter. And this is from the 27th letter. What were some of the specifics that uh, you thought? I, I, I uh, directed to the letter itself. Okay. Uh, you finished that letter by saying there is now public confusion about critical aspects as a result of our investigation. Could you tell us specifically some of the public confusion you identified? Not generally. Again, I go back to the letter, and the letter speaks for itself. And could Attorney General Barr have avoided public confusion if he had released your summaries and executive uh, introduction and summaries? And I don't feel comfortable speculating on that. Shifting to May 30th, the Attorney General, in an interview with CBS News, said that you could have reached, quote, you could have reached a decision as to whether it was criminal activity, end quote, on the part of the president. Did the attorney general or his staff ever tell you that he thought you should make a decision on whether the president engaged in criminal activity? I'm not going to speak to uh, what the uh, uh, attorney general was thinking or saying. If the attorney general had directed you or ordered you to make a decision on whether the president engaged in criminal activity, would you have so done? Uh, can't uh, answer that question in the uh, vacuum. Director Mueller, again, I thank you for being here. I agree with your March 27th letter. There was public confusion, and the President took full advantage of that confusion by falsely claiming your report found no obstruction. Let us be clear, your report did not exonerate the President. Instead, it provided substantial evidence of obstruction of justice, leaving Congress to do its duty. We shall, shall not shrink from that duty. I yield back. The gentlelady yields back. Mr. The Chairman, Mr. Chairman, I have a point of inquiry over on your left. Gentleman will state his point of inquiry. Was the point of this hearing to get Mr. Mueller to recommend impeachment? That is not a fair point of inquiry. The uh, gentlelady from Florida is recognized. Mr. Chairman, wait Director Mueller, Mr. Chairman, to your the point, the gentlelady from so Florida much is recognized. For coming here, you're a patriot. Uh, I want to refer you now to Volume Two, Page One Fifty Eight. 
you wrote that, quote, the president's efforts to influence the investigation were mostly unsuccessful, but that is largely because the persons who surrounded the president declined to carry out orders or accede to his requests. Is that right? That is accurate, and that is what we found. And you're basically referring to senior advisors who disobeyed the president's orders, like White House uh, counsel Don McGahn, former Trump campaign manager Corey Lewandowski. Is that right? Well, we have not specified uh, the person's mentioned. Well, in, in page 158, White House counsel Don McGahn, quote, did not tell the acting attorney general that the special counsel must be removed, but was instead prepared to resign over the president's orders. You also explained that an attempt to obstruct justice does not have to succeed to be a crime, right? True. Simply attempting to obstruct justice can be a crime, correct? Yes. So even though the president's aides refused to carry out his orders to interfere with your investigation, that is not a defense to obstruction of justice by this president, is it? I'm not going to speculate. So to reiterate, simply trying to obstruct justice can be a crime, correct? Yes. And you say that the president's efforts to influence the investigation were, quote, mostly unsuccessful. And that's because not all of his efforts were unsuccessful, right? Now you're reading into what, I, uh, uh, what we have written in the report. Um, I was going to ask you if you could just tell me which ones you had in mind as successful when you wrote that sentence. I'm, I'm, I'm going to pass on that. Yeah. Um, Director Moeller, today we've talked a lot about the separate acts by this president, but you also wrote in your report that, quote, the overall pattern of the president's conduct towards the investigations can shed light on the nature of the president's acts and the inferences can be drawn about his intent. Correct? Accurate recitation from the from and, the uh, report. Right, and, and on page 158 again, I think it's important for everyone to note that the president's conduct had a significant change when he realized that it was, the investigations were um, conducted to investigate his obstruction acts. So in other words, when the American people are deciding whether the president committed obstruction of justice, they need to look at all of the president's conduct and overall pattern of behavior. Is that correct? I don't disagree. Thank you. Dr. Moeller, Director Moeller, doctor also, I'll designate that too. Um, I have certainly made up my mind about whether we, what we have reviewed today meets the elements of obstruction, including whether there was corrupt intent. And what is clear is that anyone else, including some members of Congress, would have been charged with crimes for these acts. We would not have allowed this behavior from any of the previous 44 presidents. We should not allow it now or for the future to protect our democracy. And yes, we will continue to investigate because as you clearly state at the end of your report, no one is above the law. I yield back my time. The gentlelady yields back. The gentlelady from Texas. Director Muller. You wrote in your report that you, quote, determined not to make a traditional prosecutorial judgment, end quote. Was that in part because of an opinion by the Department of Justice, Office of Legal Counsel, that a sitting president can't be charged with a crime? Yes. 
Director Mueller, at your May 29, 2019 press conference, you explained that, quote, the opinion says that the Constitution requires a process other than the criminal justice system to formally accuse a sitting president of wrongdoing, end quote. That process other than the criminal justice system for accusing a president of wrongdoing, is that impeachment? Uh, I'm not going to uh, comment on that. In your report, you also wrote that you did not want to, quote, potentially preempt constitutional processes for addressing presidential misconduct, end quote. For the non-lawyers in the room, what did you mean by, quote, potentially preempt constitutional processes? I'm not going to try to explain that. Uh, that actually is coming from page one of volume two. Uh, in the footnote is the, the reference to this. Um, what are those constitutional processes? Uh, I think I heard you mention at least one. Impeachment, correct? I'm not going to comment. Uh, okay. That is one of the constitutional processes listed in the report in the footnote in Volume 2. Your report documents the many ways the President sought to interfere with your investigation. And you state in your report on page 10, Volume 2, that with a interfering with a congressional inquiry or investigation with corrupt intent can also constitute obstruction of justice. True. Well, the president has told us that he intends to fight all the subpoenas. His continued efforts to interfere with investigations of his potential misconduct certainly reinforce the importance of the process the Constitution requires to, quote, formally accuse a sitting president of wrongdoing, as you cited in the report. And, in this, and this hearing has been very helpful to this committee as it exercises its constitutional duty to determine whether to recommend articles of impeachment against the president. I agree with you, Director Mueller, that we all have a vital role in holding this president accountable for his actions. More than that, I believe we in Congress have a duty to demand accountability and safeguard one of our nation's highest principles, that no one is above the law. From everything that I have heard you say here today, it's clear that anyone else would have been prosecuted based on the evidence available in your report. It now falls on us to hold President Trump accountable. Thank you for being here. Chairman, I yield back. Mr. Chairman, gentlelady yields back. Just a point of privilege, you and I agree. personal privilege. I just want to thank the chairman. We did get in our time after this was first developed to us. We did both get in time. Our side got our five minutes in. Also, uh, Mr. Mueller, thank you for being here. And I join the chairman and thank you for being here. Thank you. Director Mueller, we thank you for attending today's hearing. Before we conclude, I ask everyone to please remain seated and quiet while the, while the witness exits the room. Without objection, all members will have five legislative days to submit additional written questions for the witness or additional materials for the record. And without objection, the hearing is now adjourned.
This is a special report on the Jay Doherty Podcast. Well, there you have it there. Uh, Robert Mueller, the former special counsel, testifying there in front of Congress, as you can hear. Uh, coming back right here right now uh, to discuss it. And uh, we are live right now broadcasting about four hours into the full broadcast, live here doing our special coverage of the Robert Mueller testimony. It was very, very eventful. Uh, that, of course, that whole hearing focused on the 10 uh, counts of obstruction that are that could be potentially filed against the president once he leaves office. And uh, we are monitoring everything that is happening. Of course, uh, there's a lot that has not happened yet. We'll see uh, Robert Mueller go into a different building he just exited the uh the uh hearing room that he uh testified in just right now with in front of the uh, house judiciary committee uh, that is of course the chaired by uh, J- uh jerry nadler from new york and now we're going to go go ahead and uh, see him from uh see him go into uh the testimony with uh, the uh, house intelligence committee uh, and there's a lot of uh, Illinois senators uh, from this fine state on that uh, uh, in that committee. One of them being Mike Quigley, who I've actually interviewed in the past, and also uh, Raja Krishnamurthy, who is a uh, Illinois uh, U.S. representative for Illinois. He'll be asking uh, some questions on that committee. As well, I want to point out a couple of people on the Judiciary Committee, of course, which we just heard. Val Dennings uh, asked very good questions, uh, but one of the things that stood out to me in her um, uh, testimony that I just wrote down, she's a Democrat from Florida, she asked uh, Mueller basically, point blank, true or false, lies by Trump campaign officials and administration officials impeded your investigation. Mueller responds with the famous phrase, generally I agree. I think there there's a spectrum of witnesses in terms of those who are not telling the full truth and those are outright liars. So that's what he said. It could be more point blank on the question and the answer. I thought that was really good. The other one on the Judiciary Committee, uh, Zoe Lofgren, Democrat from California, asked Mueller, did your investigation find that the Russian government perceived it would benefit from one of the candidates winning? Mueller says yes. And she said, who would that candidate be? And he said, uh, Donald Trump. So there clearly was a motive for Russia, by Russia, to Russia, and for the Trump campaign, but there's no evidence of a criminal criminal conspiracy, at least from what we've heard so far. We'll hear more about the intelligence aspect side of this uh, as we hear the Intelligence Committee hearing uh, on that uh, in, in this next uh, hearing. And uh, with the House Intelligence Committee, I think this one will be really interesting for the uh, national security folks. Nerds who like that stuff, if you're listening just for that, we'll put a timestamp on the website, jet-dory.com, so you can skip right to the testimony. Robert Mueller's had a long day so far, and it's about to get much longer, so you got to stay tuned to the Jay Doherty Podcast. We are broadcasting live. we got a good crowd uh, watching now on the live stream, and we hope to be back, and we are going to be back for Robert Mueller's next testimony. Again, this is all going to be available as a podcast on j-d-o-h-e-r-t-y, j-a-y-d-o-h-e-r-t-y.com. You can listen over there on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll be right back with uh, Robert Mueller's uh, coverage and our testimony, and of his testimony, right here on the Jay Doherty Podcast.
This is a special report on the Jay Doherty Podcast. This is indeed a special report, and we're coming back right here, right now, on the air to talk about Robert Mueller's testimony. That's what's happening right now. It's big news, and we are covering it live. We're in about uh, just close to our hour five of our live coverage here. There are, uh, well, actually a little bit uh, earlier. It's probably an overestimation, but uh, there are a couple members, actually a lot of members, who are uh, the... Uh, on this next committee in which Robert Mueller will testify in front of, of course, the notorious Adam Schiff. He's the uh, chairman of this uh, fine uh, committee on the House, uh, in the House of Representatives in the 116th Congress. He's the chairman. Uh, his direct opponent, the ranking member on this committee, is Devin Nunes. He's a ranking member from California, both from California, both different parties. So Devin Nunes, a Republican in the minority, Adam Schiff, a Democrat in the majority. Uh, I believe there are more. Actually, I know there are more, uh, four more Democrats than there are Republicans on this committee. Uh, just to go through while we're waiting for Mueller to actually uh, sit down and be sworn in once again in front of this committee. Adam Schiff, of course, the big man himself, making all the news for this committee. Um, you know, he's very political. He hates Trump, and that's basically all you really need to know about him. The only power he has really is uh, the congressional aspect of this whole investigation as it relates to Russia, not so much as it relates to uh, Trump's motives and Trump's overall uh, past legal efforts in terms of obstruction of justice. He doesn't have much say over that. Jim Himes from Connecticut is also on here. You may not know him. Another couple other uh, congressmen you may not know who are on this committee. Terry Sewell from Alabama. He's a Democrat. Andre Carson from Indiana, a Democrat. Jackie Spear from California. You probably know her. She is from California. Mike Quigley, my representative in this fine state of Illinois, is a Democrat. I interviewed him once, and he was very good to be with. I actually sat in on a hearing uh, in Washington uh, about uh, the General Services Administration. They had the chairman, uh, chairwoman, the head of that um, uh, division of government testify in front of his subcommittee, the, the subcommittee in which he is a chair of. Former presidential candidate Derek Swalwell from California is also on this committee. Uh, Joaquin Castro from Texas, not to be confused with Julian Castro from Texas, is a Democrat on this fine committee. Denny Heck from Washington, you may not know him. Senator, or sorry, Sean Patrick Maloney from New York, I don't know him. Uh, Val Dennings from Florida is on this committee. Uh, and Rajna Krishnamurthy, as I said, from Illinois, uh, he is on, that com- on this committee, as well as Peter Welch from Vermont. Uh, and those are all the members in the House uh, Intelligence Committee. We're gonna we're looking forward to see uh, exactly who and what uh, happen, happens in this, um, and you know what what actually uh, goes on here. Uh, so uh, I also want to point out a quick correction. I said Val Demings was on the uh, House. What did I say? The House Judiciary Committee. She's actually on the House Intelligence Committee. I said that earlier in the broadcast. I just want to correct myself. I thought she was on both. But I was incorrect. On the Republican side, in the minority of this, the people that are going to probably be ranting at Mueller the most in this, the loud ones as opposed to the quiet ones on the Democrat side, Devin Nunes, he's a ranking member from California, the functional equivalent of a chairman for the minority. They call it the ranking member, of course. Mike Conaway from Texas, Mike Turner from Ohio, Brad Wenstrup from Ohio, Chris Stewart from Utah, Rick Crawford from Arkansas, Elise Stefanik 
from New York, Will Hurd from Texas. Now, you may know Will Hurd. He was one of the four Republicans who stood up, who condemned formally in the House of Representatives Trump's racist tweets against the squad, of course, that being Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Democrat from New York, Ilhan Omar, Ayanna Presley, and Rashida Tlaib, all women of color. Trump said that they should go back, if you haven't heard it already. And uh, he is on this committee, so it'll be interesting to see what he says. John Radcliffe from Texas is also on this committee. And uh, overseeing all of them, all those Republicans, is uh, Kevin McCarthy. And, of course, on the Democratic side, Nancy Pelosi. Now, I'm just basically stalling here uh, and just going to tell you a little bit about the history of this. Of course, last year in the 115th Congress, or last uh, term, I should say, uh, and even the term before that in the 114th Congress, it has been uh, basically the same leadership. Devin Nunes has, since the uh, 114th Congress, uh, once this committee was formed, uh, has always been the uh, chairman or the ranking member, depending on who has the who has had the uh, majority in the in the set in the House of Representatives. Uh, 114th, 115th, the Republicans have had the majority, and the Democrats having the minority. Adam Schiff has always been the ranking member opposing. Now he is for the first time in uh, his congressional history the chairman, which gives him a lot more say over the president, especially given that he hates him so much. Their subcommittees include, and I only point this out because Eric Swalwell is the chairman of the Intelligence Modernization and Readiness Subcommittee, uh, and he is a uh, just dropped out of the presidential race. He was on there. He's on the debate stage. Even he made a, he got a lot of time. Surprisingly, he uh, dropped out recently, and uh, the ranking member on that committee is Will Hurd, Republican from Texas, who I just uh, mentioned. It's actually very ironic. Two very important people in the headlines, both of them uh, who are chairs and ranking members of the uh, committees here, subcommittees. What I find interesting, there's uh, two two very interesting uh, subcommittees on this uh, committee. Strategic Technologies and Advanced Research Subcommittee, chaired by Jim Himes and ranking membered by Chris Stewart. Stewart is a Republican of Utah. Jim Himes is a Democrat of Connecticut. And uh, it is a very interesting uh, committee. It has been in the news. Talk about Russia. They talk about Russia specifically. They don't focus, as I said before, on uh, the general side of uh, you know obstruction and the ten potential cases of obstruction that uh, Trump outlined in the Mueller report, or that Mueller outlined in the Mueller report about Trump. So, uh, very interesting. They have a lot of jurisdiction in this committee. Uh, they see they they basically see the over they oversee all of the congressional sides in the Department of Defense, the Department of Energy, Homeland Security, the Department of Justice, Treasury, all of the, all anything that um, relates to national security. They oversee the congressional aspect of that. So without further ado, I see Robert Mueller walking into that room, standing at that desk where he is going to testify probably for the next uh, two three hours. Probably closer to three, maybe not full three. He'll be testifying in front of there, and we're going to continue our live coverage right here on episode 93 of the Jay Doherty Podcast. Here he is. We will come to order. At the outset, and on behalf of my colleagues, I want to thank you, Special Counsel Mueller, for a lifetime of service to the country. Your report, for those who have taken the time to study it, is methodical, and it is devastating. 
or tells the story of a foreign adversary's sweeping and systematic intervention in a close U.S. presidential election. That should be enough to deserve the attention of every American, as you well point out. But your report tells another story as well. The story of the 2016 election is also a story about disloyalty to country, about greed, and about lies. Your investigation determined that the Trump campaign, including Donald Trump himself, knew that a foreign power was intervening in our election and welcomed it, built Russian meddling into their strategy, and used it. Disloyalty to country. Those are strong words, but how else are we to describe a presidential campaign which did not inform the authorities of a foreign offer of dirt on their opponent, which did not publicly shun it or turn it away, but which instead invited it, encouraged it, and made full use of it? That disloyalty may not have been criminal, constrained by uncooperative witnesses, the destruction of documents, and the use of encrypted communications, your team was not able to establish each of the elements of the crime of conspiracy beyond a reasonable doubt. So not a provable crime in any event. But I think maybe something worse. A crime is the violation of law written by Congress. But disloyalty to country violates the very oath of citizenship, our devotion to a core principle on which our nation was founded, that we, the people and not some foreign power that wishes us ill, we decide who governs us. This is also a story about money, about greed and corruption, about the leadership of a campaign willing to compromise the nation's interest, not only to win, but to make money at the same time. About a campaign chairman indebted to pro-Russian interests who tried to use his position to clear his debts and make millions about a national security advisor using his position to make money from still other foreign interests, and about a candidate trying to make more money than all of them put together through a real estate project that to him was worth a fortune, hundreds of millions of dollars, and the realization of a lifelong ambition, a Trump Tower in the heart of Moscow. A candidate who, in fact, viewed his whole campaign as the greatest infomercial in history. Donald Trump and his senior staff were not alone in their desire to use the election to make money. For Russia, too, there was a powerful financial motive. Putin wanted relief from U.S. economic sanctions imposed in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and over human rights violations. The secret Trump Tower meeting between the Russians and senior campaign officials was about sanctions. The secret conversations between Flynn and the Russian ambassador were about sanctions. Trump and his team wanted more money for themselves, and the Russians wanted more money for themselves and for their oligarchs. But the story doesn't end here either, for your report also tells a story about lies. Lots of lies. Lies about a gleaming tower in Moscow and lies about talks with the Kremlin. Lies about the firing of FBI Director James Comey and lies about efforts to fire you, Director Mueller, and lies to cover it up. Lies about secret negotiations with the Russians over sanctions and lies about WikiLeaks. Lies about polling data and lies about hush money payments. Lies about meetings in the Seychelles to set up secret back channels and lies about a secret meeting in New York Trump Tower. Lies to the FBI, lies to your staff, 
and lies to this committee. Lies to obstruct an investigation into the most serious attack on our democracy by a foreign power in our history. That is where your report ends, Director Mueller, with a scheme to cover up, obstruct, and deceive every bit as systematic and pervasive as the Russian disinformation campaign itself, but far more pernicious since this rot came from within. Even now, after 448 pages and two volumes, the deception continues. The president and his acolytes say your report found no collusion, though your report explicitly declined to address that question, since collusion can involve both criminal and non-criminal conduct. Your report laid out multiple offers of Russian help to the Trump campaign, the campaign's acceptance of that help, and overt acts in furtherance of Russian help. To most Americans, that is the very definition of collusion, whether it is a crime or not. They say your report found no evidence of obstruction, though you outline numerous actions by the president intended to obstruct the investigation. They say the president has been fully exonerated, though you specifically declare you could not exonerate him. In fact, they say your whole investigation was nothing more than a witch hunt, that the Russians didn't interfere in our election, that it's all a terrible hoax. The real crime, they say, is not that the Russians intervened to help Donald Trump, but that the FBI had the temerity to investigate it when they did. But worst of all, worse than all the lies and the greed is the disloyalty to country. For that too continues. When asked if the Russians intervene again, will you take their help, Mr. President? Why not? was the essence of his answer, everyone does it. No, Mr. President, they don't. Not in the America envisioned by Jefferson, Madison, and Hamilton. Not for those who believe in the idea that Lincoln labored until his dying day to preserve. The idea animating our great national experiments, so unique then, so precious still, that our government is chosen by our people through our franchise and not by some hostile foreign power. This is what is at stake. Our next election and the one after that for generations to come, our democracy. This is why your work matters, Director Mueller. This is why our investigation matters, to bring these dangers to light. Ranking Member Nunes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Welcome everyone to the last gasp of the Russia collusion conspiracy theory. As Democrats continue to foist this spectacle on the American people, as well as you, Mr. Mueller, the American people may recall the media first began spreading this conspiracy theory in the spring of 2016, when Fusion GPS funded by the DNC and the Hillary Clinton campaign started developing the Steele dossier, a collection of outlandish accusations that Trump and his associates were Russian agents. Fusion GPS, Steele, and other Confederates fed these absurdities to naive or partisan reporters and to top officials in numerous government agencies, including the FBI, the Department of Justice, and the State Department. 
Among other things, the FBI used dossier allegations to obtain a warrant to spy on the Trump campaign. Despite acknowledging dossier allegations as being salacious and unverified, former FBI Director James Comey briefed those allegations to President Obama and President-elect Trump. Those briefings conveniently leaked to the press, resulting in the publication of the dossier and launching thousands of false press stories based on the word of a foreign ex-spy, one who admitted he was desperate that Trump lose the election and who was eventually fired as an FBI source for leaking to the press. After Comey himself was fired by his own admission, he leaked derogatory information on President Trump to the press for the specific purpose, and successfully so, of engineering the appointment of a special counsel who sits here before us today. The FBI investigation was marred by further corruption and bizarre abuses. Top DOJ official Bruce Orr, whose own wife worked on Fusion GPS's anti-Trump operation, fed Steele's information to the FBI even after the FBI fired Steele. The top FBI investigator and his lover, another top FBI official, constantly texted about how much they hated Trump and wanted to stop him from being elected. And the entire investigation was open based not on Five Eyes intelligence, but on a tip from a foreign politician about a conversation involving Joseph Mifsud. He's a Maltese diplomat who's widely portrayed as a Russian agent, but seems to have far more connections with Western governments, including our own FBI and our own State Department, than with Russia. Raisingly ignoring all these red flags, as well as the transparent absurdity of the claims they are making, the Democrats have argued for nearly three years that evidence of collusion is hidden just around the corner. Like the Loch Ness Monster, they insist it's there, even if no one can find it. Consider this, in March 2017, Democrats on this committee said they had more than circumstantial evidence of collusion, but they couldn't reveal it yet. Mr. Mueller was soon appointed, and they said he would find the collusion. Then when no collusion was found in Mr. Mueller's indictments, the Democrats said we'd find it in his final report. Then when there was no collusion in the report, we were told Attorney General Barr was hiding it. Then when it was clear Barr wasn't hiding anything, we were told it will be revealed through a hearing with Mr. Mueller himself. And now that Mr. Mueller is here, they are claiming that the collusion has actually been in his report all along, hidden in plain sight. And they're right. There is collusion in plain sight. Collusion between Russia and the Democratic Party. The Democrats colluded with Russian sources to develop the Steele dossier. And Russian lawyer Natalia Vesnoskaya colluded with the dossier's key architect, Fusion GPS head Glenn Simpson. The Democrats have already admitted, both in interviews and through their usual anonymous statements to reporters, that today's hearing is not about getting information at all. They said they want to, quote, bring the Mueller report to life and create a television moment through ploys like having Mr. Mueller recite passages from his own report. In other words, this hearing is political theater. It's a Hail Mary attempt to convince the American people that collusion is real 
and that it's concealed in the report. Granted, that's a strange argument to make about a report that is public. It's almost like the Democrats prepared arguments accusing Mr. Barr of hiding the report and didn't bother to update their claims once he published the entire thing. Among congressional Democrats, the Russia investigation was never about finding the truth. It's always been a simple media operation. By their own accounts, this operation continues in this room today. Once again, numerous pressing issues this committee needs to address are put on hold to indulge the political fantasies of people who believed it was their destiny to serve Hillary Clinton's administration. It's time for the curtain to close on the Russia hoax. The conspiracy theory is dead. At some point, I would argue, we're going to have to get back to work. Until then, I yield back the balance of my time. To uh, ensure fairness and make sure that our hearing is prompt, I know we got a late start, uh, Director Mueller. Uh, the hearing will be structured as follows. Each member of the committee will be afforded five minutes to ask questions, beginning with the chair and ranking member. Uh, as chair, I will recognize thereafter in alternating fashion and descending order of seniority members of the majority and minority. After each member has asked his or her questions, the ranking member will be afforded an additional five minutes to ask questions, uh, followed by the chair who will have additional five questions, five minutes for questions. The ranking member and the chair will not be permitted to delegate or yield our final round of questions to any other member. Uh, after six members of the majority and six members of the minority have concluded their five-minute rounds of questions, we'll take a five- or ten-minute break uh, that we understand you've requested before resuming the hearing with Congressman Swalwell starting his round of questions. Special Counsel Mueller is accompanied today by Aaron Zebley, who served as Deputy Special Counsel from May 2017 until May 2019 and had day-to-day -day oversight of the Special Counsel's investigation. Mr. Mueller and Mr. Zebley resigned from the Department of Justice at the end of May 2019 when the Special Counsel's office was closed. Both Mr. Mueller and Mr. Zebley will be available to answer questions today and will be sworn in consistent with the rules of the House and the committee. Mr. Mueller and Mr. Zebley's appearance today before the committee is in keeping with the committee's longstanding practice of receiving testimony from current or former Department of Justice and FBI personnel regarding open and closed investigative matters. As this hearing is under oath and before we begin your testimony, Mr. Mueller and Zebley, would you please rise and raise your right hands to be sworn. Swear them in. Do you swear or affirm that the testimony you are about to give at this hearing is the whole truth and nothing but the truth? Thank you. The record will reflect that the witnesses have been duly sworn. Ranking member. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chair. I just want to clarify that uh, this is highly unusual for uh, Mr. Zelby to be sworn in. Uh, we're here to uh, ask uh, Director Moeller uh, questions. Um, he's here as counsel. Um, our side is not going to be directing any questions to Mr. Zebley, um, and we have concerns about his prior representation uh, of the Hillary Clinton campaign aid. So I just want to voice that concern that we do have. Uh, we will not be addressing any questions to Mr. Zebley today. I thank the ranking member. Um, I realize, uh, as you probably do, Mr. Zebley, that there is a 
angry man down the street who's not happy about your being here today. But it is up to this committee and not uh, anyone else who will be allowed to be sworn in and testify. And you are welcome as a private citizen uh, to testify and members may direct their questions to whoever they choose. Uh, with that, uh, Director Muller, you are recognized for any opening remarks you'd like to make. Uh, good afternoon, Chairman Schiff, uh, Ranking Member Nunes, and members of the committee. I testified this morning before the House Judiciary Committee. I ask that the opening statement I made before that committee be incorporated into the record here. Without objection, Director. I understand that this committee has a unique jurisdiction and that you are interested in further understanding the counterintelligence implications of our investigation. So let me say a word about how we handled the potential impact of our investigation on counterintelligence matters. As we explained in our report, the special counsel regulations effectively gave me the role of United States attorney. As a result, we structured our investigation around evidence for possible use in prosecution of federal crimes. We did not reach what you would call counterintelligence conclusions. We did, however, set up processes in the office to identify and pass counterintelligence information onto the FBI. Members of our office periodically briefed the FBI about counterintelligence information. In addition, there were agents and analysts from the FBI who were not on our team, but whose job it was to identify counterintelligence information in our files and to, and, and to disseminate that information to the FBI. For these reasons, questions about what the FBI has done with the counterintelligence information obtained from our investigation should be directed to the FBI. I also want to reiterate a few points that I made this morning. I am not making any judgments or offering opinions about the guilt or innocence in any pending case. It is unusual for a prosecutor to testify about a criminal investigation, and given my role as a prosecutor, there are reasons why my testimony will necessarily be limited. First, public testimony could affect several ongoing matters. In some of these matters, court rules or judicial orders limit the disclosure of information to protect the fairness of the proceedings. And consistent with longstanding Justice Department policy, it would be inappropriate for me to comment in any way that could affect an ongoing matter. Second, the Justice Department has asserted privileges concerning investigative information and decisions, ongoing matters within the Justice Department, and deliberations within our office. These are Justice Department privileges that I will respect. The department has released a letter discussing the restrictions on my testimony. But I therefore will not be able to answer questions about certain areas that I know are of public interest. For example, I am unable to address questions about the opening of the FBI's Russia investigation, which occurred months before my appointment or matters related to the so-called Steele dossier. These matters are the subject of ongoing review by the department. Any questions on these topics should therefore be directed to the FBI or the Justice Department. Third, as I explained this morning, it is important for me to adhere to what we wrote in our report. 
The report contains our findings and analysis and the reasons for the decisions we made. We stated the results of our investigation with precision. I do not intend to summarize or describe the results of our work in a different way in the course of my testimony today. And as I stated in May, I also will not comment on the actions of the Attorney General or of Congress. I was appointed as a prosecutor, and I intend to adhere to that role and to the department standards that govern. Finally, as I said this morning, over the course of my career, I've seen a number of challenges to our democracy. The Russian government's efforts to interfere in our election is among the most serious. And I am sure that the committee agrees. Now, before we go to questions, I want to add one correction to my testimony this morning. I want to go back to one thing that was said this morning by Mr. Liu, who said, and I quote, you didn't charge the president because of the OLC opinion. That is not the correct way to say it. As we say in the report, and as I said at the opening, we did not reach a determination as to whether the president committed a crime. And with that, Mr. Chairman, uh, ready to answer questions. Thank you, Director Mueller. I recognize myself for five minutes. Director Mueller, your report describes a sweeping and systematic effort by Russia to influence our presidential election. Is that correct? That is correct. And during the course of this Russian interference in the election, the Russians made outreach to the Trump campaign, did they not? Uh, that occurred over the course of, uh, yeah, that occurred. It's also clear from your report that during that Russian outreach to the Trump campaign, no one associated with the Trump campaign ever called the FBI to report it. Am I right? I don't know that for sure. In fact, the campaign welcomed the Russian help, did they not? I think we have, we report in our, uh, in the report, uh, indications that that occurred, yes. The president's son said when he was approached about dirt on Hillary Clinton that the Trump campaign would love it? Uh, that is uh, generally what was said, yes. The president himself called on the Russians to hack Hillary's emails? Uh, there was a statement by the president and those general lines. And numerous times during the campaign, the president praised the releases of the Russian hacked emails through WikiLeaks. That, that did occur. Your report found that the Trump campaign planned, quote, a press strategy, communications campaign, and messaging, unquote, based on that Russian assistance. I am not familiar with that. That language comes from volume one, page 54. Apart from the Russians wanting to help Trump win, several individuals associated with the Trump campaign were also trying to make money during the campaign and transition. Is that correct? That is true. Paul Manafort was trying to make money or achieve debt forgiveness from a Russian oligarch? Generally, that is accurate. Michael Flynn was trying to make money from Turkey? True. Donald Trump was trying to make millions from a real estate deal in Moscow? To the extent you're talking about the, uh, the uh, hotel in uh, Moscow? Yes. Yes. When your investigation looked into these matters, numerous Trump associates lied to your team, the grand jury, and to Congress? Number uh, of persons that we interviewed in uh, our investigation, it turns out, did lie. Mike Flynn lied? Uh, he was convicted of lying, yes. George Papadopoulos was convicted of lying? True. Paul Manafort was convicted of lying? True. Paul Manafort was, in fact, went so far as to encourage other people to lie? That is accurate. 
Manafort's deputy, Rick Gates, lied? That is accurate. Michael Cohen, the president's lawyer, was indicted for lying? True. He lied to stay on message with the president? Allegedly by him. And when Donald Trump called your investigation a witch hunt, that was also false, was it not? I'd like to think so, yes. Well, your investigation is not a witch hunt, is it? It is not a witch hunt. When the president said the Russian interference was a hoax, that was false, wasn't it? True. When he said it publicly, it was false? Uh, he, he did uh, say publicly that it was false, yes. And when he told it to Putin, that was false too, wasn't it? That I'm not familiar with. When the president said he had no business dealings with Russia, that was false, wasn't it? I'm not going to go into the details of uh, the report that uh, uh, along those lines. Well, when the, pressure, when the president said he had no business dealings with Russia, in fact, he was seeking to build a Trump Tower in Moscow, is he not? I think there, there are some questions about when this was uh, accomplished. Well, you would consider a billion-dollar deal to build a tower in Moscow to be business dealings, wouldn't you, Director Mueller? Yeah, absolutely. In short, your investigation found evidence that Russia wanted to help Trump win the election, right? I think generally uh, that would be accurate. Russia informed campaign officials of that? I'm not certain to what uh, conversations you're referring to. Well, through an intermediary that informed Papadopoulos that they could help with the anonymous release of stolen emails? Accurate. Russia committed federal crimes in order to help Donald Trump? Uh, when you're talking about the computer crimes uh, in the charge yes. in our case, absolutely. The Trump campaign officials built their strategy, their messaging strategy around those stolen documents? Uh, I'm, I, generally, that's true. And then they lied to cover it up? And generally, that's true. Thank you, uh, Mr. Nunes. Thank you. Welcome, Director. As a former FBI director, you'd agree that the FBI is the world's most capable law enforcement agency? I would say we're, yes. The FBI claims the counterintelligence investigation of the Trump campaign began on July 31st, 2016. But in fact, it began before that. In June 2016, before the investigation officially opened, Trump campaign associates Carter Page and Stephen Miller, a current Trump advisor, were invited to attend a symposium at Cambridge University in July 2016. Your office, however, did not investigate who was responsible for inviting these Trump associates to this symposium. Your investigators also failed to interview Stephen Schrage, an American citizen who helped organize the event and invited Carter Page to it. Is that correct? Uh, can you repeat the question? Whether or not uh, you uh, interviewed Stephen Schrage, who organized the Cambridge. Okay, I'm, in those areas, I am going to uh, stay away from. The first Trump associate to be investigated was General Flynn. Many of the allegations against him stem from false media reports that he had an affair with a Cambridge academic, Svetlana Lokova, and that Lokova was a Russian spy. Some of these allegations were made public in a 2017 article written by British intelligence historian Christopher Andrew. Your report fails to reveal how or why Andrew and his collaborator Richard Dearlove, former head of Britain's MI6, spread these allegations. And you failed to interview Svetlana Lokova about these matters. Is that correct? I'm, gonna get, I'm not going to get into those uh, matters to which you uh, 
uh, refer. You had a team of 19 lawyers, uh, 40 agents, uh, and an unlimited budget, correct, Mr. Mueller? I would not say we had an unlimited budget. Let's continue with the ongoing, or the opening of the investigation, supposedly on July 31st, 2016. The investigation was not open based on an official product from Five Eyes Intelligence, but based on a rumor conveyed by Alexander Downer. On volume one, page 89, your report describes him blandly as a representative of a foreign government. But he was actually a longtime Australian politician, not a military or intelligence official, who had previously arranged a $25 million donation to the Clinton Foundation and has previous ties to Dear Love. So Downer conveys a rumor he supposedly heard about a conversation between Papadopoulos and Joseph Mifsud. James Comey has publicly called Mifsud a Russian agent, yet your report does not refer to Mifsud as a Russian agent. Mifsud has extensive contacts with Western governments and the FBI. For example, there is a recent photo of him standing next to Boris Johnson, the new prime minister of Great Britain. What we're trying to figure out here, Mr. Mueller, is if our NATO allies or Boris Johnson have been compromised. So we're trying to figure out, Comey says Mifsud is a Russian agent, you do not. So is, do you stand by what's in the report? I'd stand by that which is in the report and not so necessarily with that which is, un, uh, which is not in the report. I wanna to return to Mr. Downer. He denies that Papadopoulos mentioned anything to him about Hillary Clinton's emails. And in fact, Mifsud denies mentioning to them pop to, that to Papadopoulos. He denies that Papadopoulos mentioned anything to him about Hillary Clinton's emails. And in fact, Mifsud denies mentioning to them to Papadopoulos in the first place. So how does the FBI know to continually ask Papadopoulos about Clinton's emails for the rest of 2016? Even more strangely, your sentencing memo on Papadopoulos blames him for hindering the FBI's ability to potentially detain or arrest Mifsud. But the, tr the truth is, Mifsud waltzed in and out of the United States in December 2016. The U.S. media could find him, the Italian press found him, and he's a supposed Russian agent at the epicenter of the purported collusion conspiracy. He's the guy who knows about Hillary Clinton's emails and that the Russians have them. But the FBI failed to question him for a half a year after officially opening the investigation. And then according to volume one, page 193 of your report, once Mifsud finally was questioned, he made false statements to the FBI. But you declined to charge him. Is that correct? You did not indict Mr. Mifsud? Well, I, I'm not gonna speak to the series of uh, happenings as you articulated them. But you did not indict Mr. Mifsud. The time of the gentleman has expired. Uh, pardon? You did not indict Mr. Mifsud. True. Mr. Himes. Director Mueller, thank you for your lifetime of service to this country and thank you for your perseverance and patience today. Director, your report opens with two statements of remarkable clarity and power. The first statement is one that is, as of today, not acknowledged by the President of the United States, and that is, quote, the Russian government interfered in the 2016 presidential election in sweeping and systematic fashion. The second statement remains controversial amongst members of this body, same page on your report, and I quote, 
the Russian government perceived it would benefit from a Trump presidency and work to secure that outcome. Do I have that statement right? I believe so. Director Mueller, this attack on our democracy involved, as you said, two operations. First, a social media disinformation campaign. This was tar a targeted campaign to spread false information on places like Twitter and Facebook. Is that correct? That's correct. Facebook estimated, as per your report, that the Russian fake images reached 126 million people. Is that correct? I believe that's the sum that we record. Director, who did the Russian social media campaign ultimately intend to benefit? Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump? Donald Trump. The second operation, Director... Let me just say, Donald Trump, but there were instances where Hillary Clinton was subject to much the same behavior. The second operation in the Russian attack was a scheme, what we call the, the hack and dump, to steal and release hundreds of thousands of emails from the Democratic Party and the Clinton campaign. Is that a fair summary? That is. Did your investigation find that the releases of the hacked emails were strategically timed to maximize impact on the election? I'd have to refer you to the, uh, our report uh, on that question. Page 36, I quote, the release of the documents was designed in time to interfere with the 2016 U.S. presidential election. Mr. Mueller, which presidential candidate was Russia's hacking and dumping operation designed to benefit, Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump? Uh, Mr. Mr. Trump. Mr. Mueller, is it possible that this sweeping and systematic effort by Russia actually had an effect on the outcome of the presidential election? Those issues are being uh, or have been uh, investigated by other entities. 126 million Facebook impressions, fake rallies, attacks on Hillary Clinton's health. Um, would you rule out that it might have had some effect on the election? Uh, I'm not going to speculate. Mr. Mueller, your report describes a third avenue of attempted Russian interference. That is the numerous links and contacts between the Trump campaign and individuals tied to the Russian government. Is that correct? Could you repeat that question? Your report describes what is called a third avenue of Russian interference, and that's the links and contacts between the Trump campaign and individuals tied to the Russian government. Yes. Let's bring up slide one, which is uh, about George Papadopoulos, and it reads, on May 6, 2016, 10 days after that meeting with Mifsud, much discussed today, Papadopoulos suggested to a representative of a foreign government that the Trump campaign had received indications from the Russian government that it could assist the campaign through the anonymous release of information that would be damaging to Hillary Clinton. And, Director, that's exactly what happened two months later, is it not? Well, I can speak to the, the excerpt that you have on the screen as being accurate from the report, but not the second half of your question. Well the, well, the second half, just to refer to page six of the report, is that on July 22nd, through WikiLeaks, thousands of these emails that were, that were stolen by the Russian government appeared, correct? That's on page six of the report. This is the WikiLeaks posting of those emails. I, I can't find it quickly, but I'm, uh, I'm, please continue. Okay. So just to be clear, before the public or the FBI ever knew, the Russians previewed for a Trump campaign official, George Papadopoulos, that they had stolen emails that they could release anonymously to help Donald Trump and hurt Hillary Clinton. Is that correct? I'm not going to speak to, uh, to, to that. Director... 
Rather than report this contact with Joseph Massoud and the notion that there was dirt that the campaign could use, rather than report that to the FBI that I think most of my constituents would expect an individual to do, Papadopoulos in fact lied about his Russian contacts to you. Is that not correct? That's true. <clears throat> we have an election coming up in 2020, Director. If a campaign receives an offer of dirt from a foreign individual or a government, generally speaking, should that campaign report those contacts? Should be, it can be, depending on the circumstances of crime. But, um, I, I will yield back the balance of my time. <clears throat> Mr. Conaway. Thank you. <clears throat> Mr. Baller, did anyone ask you to exclude anything from your report that you felt should have been in the report? I, I, I don't think so, but uh, it was a, it's, it's not a small report. But don't want to ask you specifically to, to exclude something that you believe should have been in there. That you were, not that I can recall, no. I yield the balance of my time to Mr. Ratcliffe. Thank you. Thank the gentleman for yielding. Good afternoon, Director Mueller. Uh, in your May 29th press conference, and again in your opening remarks this morning, you made it pretty clear you wanted the special counsel report to speak for itself. Uh, you said at your press conference that uh, that was the office's final position and we will not comment on any other conclusions or hypotheticals about the president. Now, you spent the last few hours of your life um, from Democrats trying to get you to answer all kinds of uh, hypotheticals about the president, and I expect that it may continue for the next few hours of your life. Um, I think you've stayed pretty much true to what your intent and desire uh, was, but I guess regardless of that, the special counsel's office is closed and it has no continuing jurisdiction or authority. So what would be your authority or jurisdiction for adding new conclusions or determinations to the special counsel's written report? As to the latter, uh, I don't uh, know or expect uh, changes in conclusions that we uh, included in our, uh, in our report. So to that point, you addressed one of the issues that, that I needed to, which was from your testimony this morning, which some construed as a change to the written report. You talked about the exchange that you had with Congressman Liu. I wrote it down a little bit different. I want to ask you about it so that the record's perfectly clear. I recorded that he asked you, quote, the reason you did not indict Donald Trump is because of the OLC opinion stating you cannot indict a sitting president, to which you responded, that is correct. That, that response is inconsistent. I think you'll agree with uh, your written report. Uh, I want to be clear that it is not your intent to change your written report. It is your intent to clarify the record to that. Well, as I started uh, today, this afternoon, and uh, added a, a, either a footnote or an endnote, um, uh, what I wanted to clarify is the fact that we did not make any determination. Uh, with regard to culpability in any way. We did not start that process down, uh, down the road. Terrific. Thank you for clarifying the record. A stated purpose of your appointment as special counsel was to ensure a full and thorough investigation of the Russian government efforts to interfere in the 2016 presidential election. As part of that full and thorough investigation, what determination did the special counsel office make about whether the Steele dossier was part of the Russian government efforts to interfere in the 2016 presidential election? Uh, again, when it comes to Mr. Steele, uh, I defer to the Department of Justice. Well, first of all, Director, I, I very much agree with your determination that Russia's efforts were sweeping and systematic. I think it should concern every American. 
That's why I want to know just how sweeping and systematic those efforts were. I want to find out if Russia interfered with our election by providing false information through sources to Christopher Steele about a Trump conspiracy that you determined didn't exist. Well, I, as again, I'm not going to uh, discuss the issues with regard to uh, Mr. Steele. Uh, the, uh, and in terms of a portrayal of the conspiracies, uh, we returned two indictments in the uh, computer crimes arena, uh, one uh, GRU and another uh, active measures in which we lay out in excruciating detail I, I uh, what occurred uh, in those two and I rather large conspiracies. I, I agree with respect to that. But why this is important is an application and three renewal applications were submitted by the United States government to spy or surveil on Trump campaign Carter Associate uh, or Carter Page, and on all four occasions, the United States government uh, submitted the Steele dossier as a central piece of evidence with respect to that. Now, the basic premise of the d dossier, as you know, was that there was a well-developed conspiracy of cooperation between the Trump campaign and the Russian government, but the special counsel investigation didn't establish any conspiracy, correct? Well, I, I, what I can tell you is that the, the events that you are characterizing here now is part of another matter that is being handled by the Department of Justice. But you did not establish any conspiracy, much less a well-developed one. Uh, uh, again, I, I pass on uh, answering that question. The special counsel did not charge Carter Page with anything, correct? The special counsel did not. All right. Uh, my time has expired. I yield back. Ms. Sewell. Director Mueller, I'd like to turn your attention to the June 9th, 2016 Trump Tower meeting. Um, slide two, uh, which should be on the screen now, is part of an email chain between Don Jr., Don, Donald Trump Jr. and a publicist representing the son of a Russian oligarch. The email exchange ultimately led to the now infamous June 9th, 2016 meeting. The email from the publicist to Donald Trump Jr. reads in part, the Crown Prosecutor of Russia offered to provide the Trump campaign with some official documents and information that would incriminate Hillary and her dealings with Russia and is a part of Russia and its government's support of Mr. Trump. In this email, Donald Trump Jr. is being told that the Russian government wants to pass along information which would hurt Hillary Clinton and help Donald Trump. Is that correct? That's correct. Now. Trump Jr.'s response to that email is slide three. He said, and I quote, if it is what you say, I love it, especially later in the summer. Then Donald Jr. Uh, invited senior campaign officials, Paul Manafort and, and Jared Kushner, to the meeting, did he not? He did. This email exchange is evidence of an offer of illegal assistance, is it not? I cannot adopt that characterization. But isn't it against the law for a presidential campaign to accept anything of value from a foreign government? Generally speaking, yes, but they're, generally the cases are, circums are uh, uh, unique. <laughs> well, you say in uh, page 184 in volume one that the federal campaign finance law bro broadly prohibits foreign nationals from making contributions, et cetera. And then you say that foreign nationals may not make a contribution or donation of money or anything of value. It says uh, clearly in the report itself. Yeah, thank you. Uh, now, let's turn to what actually happened at the meeting. When Donald Trump Jr. and the others got to the June 9th meeting, they realized that the Russian delegation didn't have the promised, quote unquote, dirt. Uh, in fact, they got upset about that, did they not? 
Uh, generally, yes. Uh, you say in volume one, page 118, that Trump Jr. asked, what, what, what are we doing here? Uh, what, what, uh, what do they have on Clinton? And during the meeting, Kirshner actually texted Manafort saying it was, quote, a waste of time, end quote. Is that correct? I believe it's in the report uh, along the lines you specify. So to be clear, top Trump campaign officials learned that Russia wanted to help Donald Trump's campaign by giving him dirt on his opponent. Trump Jr. said loved it. Then he and senior officials held a meeting with the Russians to try to get that Russian help. But they were disappointed because the dirt wasn't as good as they had hoped. So to the next step, uh, did anyone, to your knowledge, in the Trump campaign ever tell the FBI of this offer? I don't believe so. Did Donald Trump Jr. tell the FBI that they received an offer of help from the I, Russians? I, I'm going to, uh, uh, that's about all I'll say on, uh, on this aspect of it. Wouldn't it be true, sir, that if, uh, if they had reported it to the FBI or anyone in that campaign during the course of your two-year investigation, you would have uncovered such a— I, I would hope, yes. Yes. Um, sir, is it not uh, the responsibility of political campaigns to inform the FBI if they receive information from a foreign government? I would think that uh, that's uh, something they would and should do. Well, not only did the campaign not tell the FBI, uh, they, they sought to hide the existence of the June 9th uh, meeting for over a year. Is that not correct? On the general characterization, I, I would question it. Uh, if you're referring to later uh, uh, initiative uh, uh, that flowed from uh, the media, then no, what I'm suggesting is that you've said in volume two, page five, on several occasions the president directed aides not to publicly disclose the email setting up the, the June 9th meeting. Yes, that's accurate. Thanks. Um, sir, given this illegal assistance by Russians, uh, you chose, even given that, you did not charge uh, Donald Trump Jr. or any of the other senior officials uh, with conspiracy. Is that right? Correct. And while I mean, it when may you're not— talking about, uh, If you're talking about other individuals, you're talking about the attendees yes, that's on right. June 9, and that's, that's accurate. Right. So, Mr. Mueller, even though it didn't, you didn't charge them with conspiracy, don't you think that the American people would be concerned that these three senior uh, campaign officials eagerly sought a foreign adversary's help to win elections? And don't I, you think that reporting that is important, that we don't set a precedent for future elections? I, I can't accept that kind of characterization. Um, well, listen, I think that uh, it seems like a portrayal of American values to me, sir, that someone would, uh, if not being criminal, is definitely unethical and wrong. And I would think that we would not want to set a precedent that political campaigns should not divulge of information if it's foreign government's assistance. Thank you, sir. Mr. Turner. Mr. Mueller, I have your opening statement, and in the beginning of your opening statement, uh, you indicate that pursuant to Justice Department regulations that you submitted a confidential report to the Attorney General at the conclusion of the investigation. What I'd like you to confirm is the report that you did that is the subject matter of this hearing was to the Attorney General. Yes. Now, you also state in this opening statement that you threw overboard the word collusion because it's not a legal term. You would not conclude because collusion was not a legal term. Well, it depends on how you want to use the, the word. In the general parlance, people can think of it that way. But if you're talking about in the criminal uh, statute arena, uh, you can't because uh, some uh, it really uh, uh, 
uh, is much more aptly and accurately described as conspiracy. Right. So in your words are it's not a legal term, so you didn't put it in your conclusion, correct? That's what you're That's correct. Is. Mr. Mueller, I want to talk about your powers and authorities. Now, the attorney general and the appointment order gave you powers and authorities that reside in the attorney general. Now, the attorney general has no ability to give you powers and authority greater than the powers and authority of the attorney general, correct? No, I don't believe, I, yeah, I think that out. Yeah, is correct. <clears throat> Mr. Mueller, I want to focus on one word in your report. It's the second to the last word in the report. It's exonerate. The report states, accordingly, while this report does not conclude that the president committed a crime, it does not exonerate him. Now, in the judiciary hearing, in your prior testimony, you've already agreed with Mr. Radcliffe that exonerate is not a legal term, that there is not a legal test for this. So I have a question for you, Mr. Mueller. Mr. Mueller, does the attorney general have the power or authority to exonerate? Now, what I'm putting up here is the United States Code. This is where the attorney general gets his power and the Constitution and the annotated ver cases of these, which we've searched. We even went to your law school, because I went to Case Western, but I thought maybe your law school teaches it differently. And we got the criminal law textbook from your law school. Mr. Mueller, nowhere in these, because we had them scanned, is there a process or description on exonerate? There's no office of exoneration at the Attorney General's office. There's no certificate at the bottom of his desk. Mr. Mueller, would you agree with me that the Attorney General does not have the power to exonerate. Uh, I'm going to pass on that. Why? Because it embroils us in a legal discussion, and I'm not prepared to do a legal discussion in that arena. Well, Mr. Mr. Mueller, you would, you would not disagree with me when I say that there is no place that the Attorney General has the power to exonerate, and he's not been given that authority. You would not Again, I'm not going to. I, I take your question. Great. Well, the one thing that I guess is that the Attorney General probably knows that he can't exonerate either. And, and that's the part that kind of confuses me. Because if the attorney general doesn't have the power to exonerate, then you don't have the power to exonerate. And I believe he knows he doesn't have the power to exonerate. And so this is the part that I don't understand. If your report is to the attorney general, and the attorney general doesn't have the power to exonerate, and he does not, and he knows that you do not have that power, you don't have to tell him that you're not exonerating the president. He knows this already. So then that kind of changed the context uh, I'm, of the I'm, report. I, no, we included in the report for exactly that reason. He may not know it, and he should know it. So you believe that the attorney, Bill Barr, believes that somewhere in the hallways of the Department of Justice, there's an office of exoneration? No, that's not what I said. Well, I believe he knows, and I don't believe you put that in there for, for Mr. Barr. I think you put that in there for exactly what I'm going to discuss next. And that is, so the Washington Post yesterday, when speaking of your report, the article said Trump could not be exonerated of trying to obstruct the investigation itself. Trump could not be exonerated. Now, that statement is correct, Mr. Mueller, isn't it, in that no one can be exonerated? The reporter wrote this. This reporter can't be exonerated. Mr. Mueller, you can't be exonerated. In fact, in our criminal justice system, there is no power or authority to exonerate. Now, this is my concern, Mr. Mueller. This is the headline on all of the news channels while you were testifying today. <clears throat> Mueller, Trump was not exonerated. Now, Mr. Mueller, what you know is that this can't say Mueller exonerated Trump. Because you don't have the power or authority to exonerate Trump. You have no more power to declare him exonerated than you have the power to declare him Anderson Cooper. So the problem that I have here is that since there's no one in the criminal justice system that has that power, the president pardons, he doesn't exonerate. Courts and juries don't declare innocent, they declare not guilty. 
They don't even declare exoneration. The statement about exoneration is misleading, and it's meaningless, and it, it colors this investigation one word out of the entire portion of your report, and it's a meaningless word that has no legal meaning, and it has colored your entire Time report. The gentleman has expired. Mr. Carson. Thank you, Chairman. Thank you, Director Mueller, for your years of service to our country. Uh, I want to look more closely, sir, at uh, the Trump campaign chairman, Paul Manafort, uh, an individual who I believe betrayed our country, uh, who lied to a grand jury, who tampered uh, with witnesses, and who repeatedly tried to use his position with the Trump campaign to make more money. Let's focus on the betrayal and greed. Your investigation, sir, found a number of troubling contacts between Mr. Manafort and Russian individuals during and after the campaign. Is that right, sir? Correct. Correct. In addition to the June 9th meeting just discussed, Manafort also met several times with a man named Konstantin Kalimnik, who the FBI assessed to have ties with Russian intel agencies. Is that right, sir? Correct. In fact, Mr. Manafort didn't just meet with him. He shared private Trump campaign polling information with this man linked to Russian intelligence. Is that right, sir? That is correct. And in turn, the information was shared with a Russian oligarch tied to Vladimir Putin. Is that right, sir? Allegedly. Director Mueller, uh, meeting with him wasn't enough. Sharing internal polling information wasn't enough. Mr. Manafort went so far as to offer this Russian oligarch tied to Putin a private briefing on the campaign. Is that right, sir? Yes, sir. And finally, Mr. Manafort also discussed internal campaign strategy on four battleground states, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Minnesota, with the Russian intelligence-linked individual. Did he not, sir? And that's reflected in the report, as were the items you listed previously. Director Mueller, based on your decades of years of experience at the FBI, would you agree, sir, that it creates a national security risk when a presidential campaign chairman shares private polling information on the American people, private political strategy related to winning the votes of the American people, and private information about American battleground states with a foreign adversary? Is that the question, sir? Yes, sir. Uh, I'm not going to speculate along those lines. Uh, to the extent that it's within the lines of the report, then I support it. Anything beyond that uh, uh, is not part of uh, that which I uh, would support. Well, I think it does, sir. I think it shows an infuriating lack of patriotism from the very people seeking the highest office in the land. Director Mueller, Manafort didn't share this information in exchange for nothing, did he, sir? Uh, uh, I can't answer that question without knowing more about the, the uh, question. Well, I, it's clear that he hoped to be paid back money he was owed by Russian or Ukrainian oligarchs in return for the passage of private campaign information, correct? That, that is true. Uh, Director Mueller, as my colleague Mr. Heck will discuss later, uh, greed corrupts. Uh, would you agree, sir, that the sharing of private campaign information in exchange for money represents a particular kind of corruption, uh, one that presents a national security risk to our country, sir? I'm not going to opine on that. I'm, I don't have the expertise in that arena to really opine. Would you agree, sir, that Manafort's contacts with Russians close to Vladimir Putin and his efforts to exchange private information on Americans for money left him vulnerable to blackmail by the Russians? I think generally uh, so. That would be the case. Would you agree, sir, uh, that these acts demonstrated a betrayal 
of the democratic values of our country rests on. I, I can't agree with that. Director not, that Mueller, it, not that it's not true, but I cannot agree with it. Yes, sir. Director Mueller, well, I can tell you that in my years of experience as a law enforcement officer and as a member of Congress, uh, fortunate to serve on the Intel Committee, I know enough to say yes. Uh, trading political secrets for money with a foreign adversary can corrupt, and it can leave you open to blackmail. And it certainly represents a betrayal of the values underpinning our democracy. I want to thank you for your service again, Director Mueller. We appreciate you for coming today. I yield back, Chairman. Dr. Wenstrup. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Mr. Mueller, for being here today. Mr. Mueller, is it accurate to say your investigation found no evidence that members of the Trump campaign were involved in the theft or publication of Clinton campaign-related emails? Yeah. Can you read uh, or can you repeat the question? Is it accurate to say your investigation found no evidence that members of the Trump campaign were involved in the theft or publication of the Clinton campaign-related emails? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, uh, what they well well volume one page five the investigation did not establish that members of the Trump campaign conspired or coordinated with the Russian government in its election interference activities so it would uh, therefore be inaccurate based on this to describe uh, that finding as open to doubt and that finding being uh, that a Trump campaign was involved with theft or publication of the Clinton campaign emails. Are you following that, sir? I, I do believe I'm following it, but it is uh, uh, that portion of that matter it does not fall within our jurisdiction or, I, or I, I fall within our investigation. Well, based on which, what you, your report says, volume one, page five, I just want to be clear that open to doubt is how the committee Democrats described this finding in their minority views to, uh, of our 2018 report. And it, it, it kind of flies in the face of what you have in, in your report. But, so is it accurate to also to say uh, the investigation found no documentary evidence that George Papadopoulos told anyone affiliated with the Trump campaign about Joseph Smith's claims that the Russians had dirt on Canada Clinton? Let me uh, turn that over to Mr. Sabley. Uh, I'd like to ask you, sir, uh, this is your report, and, and that's what I'm basing this on. And then could you repeat the question for me again? Yeah, is it accurate to say the investigation found no documentary evidence that George Papadopoulos told anyone affiliated with the Trump campaign about Joseph Misfit's claims that the Russians had dirt on candidate Clinton? I believe uh, it appearing in the report that it's uh, accurate. Okay, so it, yeah, in the report, it says no documentary evidence that Papadopoulos shared this information with the campaign. It's therefore inaccurate to conclude that by the time of the June 9, 2016 Trump Tower meeting, quote, the campaign was likely already on notice via George Papadopoulos' contact with Russian agents that Russia, in fact, had damaging information on Trump's opponent. Would you say that that is inaccurate to say that it's, it's likely already on, I, I direct you to, I could direct you to the report. Well, I appreciate that because the Democrats jumped to this incorrect, incorrect collusion in their minority views, again, which contradicts what you have in, in your report. I'm concerned about a number of statements I'd like you to clarify because a number of Democrats have made some statements that I have concerns with and, and maybe you can clear them up. So a member of this committee said President Trump was a Russian agent after your report was publicly released. 
That statement is not supported by your report, correct? Uh, that is accurate. It's not supported. Multiple Democrat members have asserted that Paul Manafort met with Julian Assange in 2016 before WikiLeaks released DNC emails, implying Manafort colluded with Assange. Because your report does not mention finding evidence that Manafort met with Assange, I would assume that means you found no evidence of this meeting. Is that assumption correct? I'm, I'm not certain I agree with that assumption. But you make no mention of it in your report. Would you agree with that? Uh, yes, I would agree with that. Okay, Mr. Mueller, does your report contain any evidence that President Trump was enrolled in the Russian system of compromat as a member of this committee once claimed? Well, to uh, what I can speak to is uh, information and evidence that we picked up as the uh, special counsel, and I think that's accurate uh, as far as it goes. Thank you. I appreciate that. So let, let's go for a second to, to scope. Did you ask the Department of Justice to expand the scope of the special counsel's mandate related to August 2nd, 2017, or August 20th, 2017 scoping memoranda? Well, there, uh, 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 without looking at the memoranda, I could not answer that. Well, let me ask you, did you ever make a request to expand your office's mandate, which, at all? Uh, generally, uh, yes. And was that ever denied? Uh, I'm not going to speak to that. Not it, it goes to, to no internal deliberations. Well, I'm just trying to understand process. Does expanding the scope come from the acting attorney general uh, or uh, I'm, I'm not, Rosenstein, or does it come from you, or can it come from either? I'm not going to discuss uh, any, uh, any other alternatives. Thank you, Mr. Mueller. Ms. Spear. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, Mr. Mueller, I think I can say without fear of contradiction that you're the greatest patriot in this room today, and I want to thank you for being here. Thank you. You um, said in your report, and I'm going to quibble with your words, that um, the Russian intervention was sweeping and systematic. Um, I would quibble with that because I don't think it was just an intervention. I think it was an invasion. And I don't think it was just sweeping and systematic. I think it was sinister and scheming. But having said that, one of my colleagues earlier here uh, referred to this Russian intervention as a hoax. And I'd like to get your uh, comment on that. On page 26 of your report, you talk about the Internet Research Agency and how tens of millions of U.S. persons became engaged with uh, the posts that they made, that there were some 80,000 posts on Facebook, uh, that uh, Facebook itself admitted that 126 million people had probably seen the posts that were put up by the Internet Research Agency, uh, that they had 3,800 Twitter accounts and had designed more than 175,000 tweets that probably reached 1.4 million people. Uh, the Internet Research Agency was spending about $1.25 million a month on all of this social media in the United States in what I would call an invasion in our country. Um, would you agree that it was not a hoax that the Russians were engaged in trying to uh, impact our election? Absolutely. That was not a hoax. Uh, the indictments we returned against the Russians, two different ones, were uh, uh, substantial in, in their scope, using that scope word again. Uh, and I think one of the 
we have underplayed to a certain extent in that aspect of our investigation that has and would have long-term damage to the United States that we need to move quickly to uh, address. Thank you for that. I'd like to drill down on that a little bit more. The uh, Internet Research Agency actually started in 2014 by sending over staff as tourists, I guess, to start looking at uh, where they wanted to engage. And there are many that suggest, and I'm interested in your opinion, uh, as to whether or not Russia is presently in the United States uh, looking for ways to impact the 2020 election. I, I can't speak to that. That would be uh, uh, in levels of classification. All right. Um, let me ask you this. Uh, oftentimes, when we engage in these uh, hearings, we forget the forest for the trees. You have a uh, very large report here of over 400 pages. Most Americans have not read it. Uh, we have read it. Actually, the FBI, FBI director yesterday said he hadn't read it, which was a little discouraging. But um, on behalf of the American people, I want to give you a minute and 39 seconds um, to tell the American people what you would like them to glean from this report. Well, uh, uh, we spent substantial time assuring the integrity of the report, understanding that it would be our living uh, message to those who, uh, who come after us. But it also is a signal, a flag to those of us who have some responsibility in this area to exercise those responsibilities swiftly and don't let this problem continue to linger as it has over so many years. All right. Um, you didn't take the whole amount of time, so I'm going to yield the rest of my time to the chairman. I thank the gentleman for yielding. Um, Director Mueller, I wanted to ask you about conspiracy. Uh, generally, a conspiracy requires an offer of something illegal, the acceptance of that offer and an overt act in furtherance of it. Is that correct? Uh, correct. And Don Jr. was made aware that the Russians were offering dirt on his opponent, correct? I don't know that for sure, but one would assume, given uh, his presence at the meeting. And, uh, and when you say that you would love to get that help, that would constitute an acceptance of the offer? It's a wide open uh, request. And it would certainly be evidence of an acceptance if you say, when somebody offers you something illegal and you say, I would love it, that would consider, be considered evidence of an acceptance. I'm going to stay away from any uh, addressing one particular or two particular situations. Well, this particular situation, well, I, I'll have to continue in a bit. Um, now yield to uh, Mr. Stewart. Mr. Mueller, it's been a long day. Thank you for being here. I do have a series of important questions for you, but before I do that, I want to take a moment to reemphasize something that my friend Mr. Turner has said. I've heard many people state no person is above the law, and many times recently they add not even the president, which I think is blazingly obvious to most of us. I, I'm having a little problem hearing you, sir. Is this better? That is better. Thank you. I want you to know I agree with this statement that no person is above the law. But there's another principle that we also have to defend, and that is the presumption of innocence. And I'm sure you agree with this principle, though I think the way that your office phrased some parts of your report, it does make me wonder, I have to be honest with you. For going on three years, innocent people have been accused of very serious crimes, including treason. 
accusations made even here today. They have had their lives disrupted and in some cases destroyed by false accusations for which there is absolutely no basis other than some people desperately wish that it was so. But your report is very clear. No evidence of conspiracy, no evidence of coordination. And I believe we owe it to these people who have been falsely accused, including the president and his family, to make that very clear. Mr. Mueller, the credibility of your report is based on the integrity of how it is handled. And there's something that I think bothers me and other Americans. I'm holding here in my hand a binder of 25 examples of leaks that occurred from the special counsel's office from those who associated with your work, dating back to as early as a few weeks after your inception and the beginning of your work, and continuing up to just a few months ago. All of these, all of them have one thing in common. They were designed to weaken or to embarrass the president, every single one. Never was it leaked that you'd found no evidence of collusion. Never was it leaked that the Steele dossier was a complete fantasy, nor that it was funded by the Hillary Clinton campaign. I could go on and on. Mr. Mueller, are you aware of anyone from your team having given advanced knowledge of the raid on Roger Stone's home to any person or the press, including CNN? Well, I'm not going to talk about uh, specifics. Uh, I will mention, uh, but talk for a moment about persons who uh, become involved in an investigation and the understanding that uh, in a lengthy, thorough investigation, uh, some persons uh, will be under a cloud that they should not be under a cloud. And one of the reasons for emphasizing, as I have, the speed of an election, or not an election, the speed of an investigation, uh, is that so uh, those persons who are disrupted as a result I, I, of the... I, I appreciate that, but I do have a series of questions. I, may, uh, with the result of that investigation. Thank you. And you're right. It is a cloud, and it's an unfair cloud for dozens of people. But to my point, are you aware of anyone providing information to the media regarding the raid on Roger Stone's home, including CNN? Uh, I'm not going to speak to that. Okay. Mr. Mueller, you sent a letter dated March 27th to Attorney General Barr in which you claimed the Attorney General's memo to Congress did not fully capture the context of your report. You stated earlier today that response was not authorized. Did you make any effort to determine who leaked this confidential letter? Uh, no, and I'm not certain. Uh, this is the letter of March 27th? Yes, sir. I, I'm not certain when it was publicized. I didn't know it was publicized, but I do not believe we would be responsible for the leaks. Well, I do, I do believe that we have done a good job in assuring that uh, no leaks occur. And we have, we have no 25 examples here of where you did not do a good job. Not you, sir. I'm not accusing you at all. But where your office did not do a good job in protecting this information. One more example. Do you know anyone who anonymously made claims to the press that Attorney General Barr's March 24th letter to Congress had been misrepresented or misrepresented your, the uh, basis of your report? And what was the question? Do you know who anonymously made claims to the press that Attorney General Barr's March 24th letter to Congress had misrepresented the findings of your report? No. Sir, given these examples, as well as others, you must have realized that leaks were coming from someone associated with the special counsel's office. What I, I, I'd like to ask is, did I you, do not believe that. Well, well, sir, this was your work. You're the only one, your office is the only one who had information regarding this. It had to come from your office. Putting that aside, which leads me to my final question, did you do anything about it? Uh, from the outset, we've... Uh, 
uh, undertaken to make certain that we minimize the possibility of leaks. And I think we were successful over the, tar over the two years that we were in operation. Well, I wish you'd been more successful, sir. I think it was disruptive to the American people. My time has expired. I yield back. <clears throat> Mr. Quigley. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Director, thank you for being here. This too shall pass. Earlier today and throughout the day, you have uh, stated the, the policy that a seated president cannot be indicted, correct? Correct. And upon questioning this morning, uh, you were asked, uh, could that, could a president be indicted uh, after their service, correct? Yes. And your answer was that they could. They could. Director, please uh, speak into the microphone. I'm sorry. Thank you. So uh, They could. The follow-up question that should be concerning is, what if a president serves beyond the statute of limitations? I don't know the answer to that one. Would it not indicate that if the statute of limitations on federal crimes such as this are five years, that a president who serves a second term is therefore under the policy above the law? I'm not certain I would agree with the. I'm not certain I would agree with the conclusion. I'm not certain that I can see. Uh, but the, the possibility uh, that you suggest. But the statute doesn't toll. Is that correct? I don't know specifically. It it clearly doesn't. And I, I just want as, as the the American public is watching this and, and perhaps learning about many of these for the first time, we need to consider that and that the other alternatives are perhaps all that we have. Uh, but I appreciate your, your response. Earlier in questioning, uh, someone mentioned that it was a question involving whether anyone in the Trump political world publicized the emails, whether or not that was the case. I, I just want to refer to volume one, page 60, where we learned that Trump Jr. publicly tweeted a link to the leak of stolen Podesta emails in October of 2016. You're familiar with that? I am. So that would at least be a republishing of this information, would it, would it not? I'm not certain I would agree. I'm not certain I would agree with that. Director Pompeo assessed WikiLeaks in one point as a hostile intelligence service. Uh, given your law enforcement experience and your knowledge of what WikiLeaks did here and what they do generally, would you assess that to be accurate or something similar? How would you assess what WikiLeaks does? Uh, absolutely. And they uh, are currently under indictment. It's uh, Julian Assange. Would it be fair to describe them as you would agree with Mr. Director Pompeo? That's when he, what he was when he made that remark, that it's a hostile intelligence service, correct? Yes. If we could put up slide six. This just came out, WikiLeaks. I love WikiLeaks. Donald Trump, October 10th, 2016. This WikiLeaks stuff is unbelievable. It tells you the inner heart. You got to read it. Donald Trump, October 12th, 2016. This WikiLeaks is like a treasure trove. Donald Trump, October 31st, 2016. Boy, I love reading those WikiLeaks. Donald Trump, November 4th, 2016. Do any of those quotes disturb you, Mr. Director? I'm not certain I would say. Uh, How do you react to that? Well, it's probably problematic is an understatement in terms of what it displays, in terms of uh, uh, giving some 
uh, I don't know, hope or some boost to what is and should be illegal activity. Volume one, page 59. Donald Trump Jr. had direct electronic communications with WikiLeaks during the campaign period. On October 3rd, 2016, WikiLeaks sent another direct message to Trump Jr. asking you guys to help disseminate a link alleging candidate Clinton had advocated a drone to attack Julian Assange. Trump Jr. responded that, quote, he had already done so. Same question. This behavior, at the very least, disturbing so, your reaction? I, I, I disturbing and also in, in, uh, subject to investigation. Could it be described as aid and comfort to a hostile intelligence service, sir? I, I wouldn't categorize it in any, with any specificity. I yield the balance to the chairman, please. Not sure I can make good use of 27 seconds, but uh, Director, I think you uh, made it clear that you think it unethical, to put it politely, to tout a foreign service like WikiLeaks publishing stolen political documents in a presidential campaign. Certainly uh, calls for investigation. Thank you, Director. Um, we're going to go now to Mr. Crawford, uh, and then after Mr. Crawford's five minutes, we'll take a five or ten minute break. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Mr. Mueller, for being here. Um, days after your appointment, Peter Strzok texted about his concern that there's, quote, no big there there in the Trump campaign investigation. Did Strzok or anyone else who worked on the FBI's investigation tell you that around 10 months into the investigation, the FBI still had no case for collusion? I, who? Can you repeat that? Uh, Peter Strzok. Could you, I, I'm sorry, can you move the microphone a little closer? Sure, there's, uh, there's a, a quote attributed to Peter Strzok. He texted about his concern that there is, quote, no big there there in the Trump campaign investigation. Did he or anyone else who worked on the FBI's investigation tell you that around 10 months into the investigation, the FBI still had no case for collusion? No. Uh, is the Inspector General report correct that the text messages from Peter Strzok and Lisa Page's phones from your office were not retained after they left the special counsel's office? Well, uh, I, uh, I don't, it depends on what you're talking about. The investigation into uh, those, uh, uh, Peter Strzok uh, went on for a period of time and I'm not certain what it encompasses. It may well have encompassed what you're adverting to. Okay, let me move on just real quickly. Did you ask the department to authorize your office to investigate the origin of the Trump-Russia investigation? Uh, I'm not going to get into that. Um, it goes uh, to uh, internal deliberations. So the circumstances surrounding the origin of the investigation have yet to be fully vetted then. I'm certainly glad that Attorney General Barr and U.S. Attorney Dun uh, Durham are looking into this matter. With that, I'd like to yield the balance of my time to the Ranking Member Nunes. Thank the gentleman uh, for yielding. Mr. Mueller, I want to make sure you're aware of who Fusion GPS is. Fusion GPS is a political operations firm that was working directly for the Hillary Clinton campaign and the Democrat National Committee. They produced the dossier, so they paid Steele, who then went out and got the dossier. And I know you don't want to ask answer any dossier questions, uh, so I'm not going there. but. Your report mentions Natalia Vlesnitskaya 65 times. She meets in the Trump Tower. It's this infamous Trump Tower meeting. It's in your report. You've heard many of the Democrats refer to it today. The meeting was 
shorter than 20 minutes, I believe. Is that correct? I think uh, 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 what we have in our report reflects it was about that length. So do you know, so Fusion GPS, the main actor at Fusion GPS, the president of the company, or the owner of the company, is a guy named Glenn Simpson who's working for Hillary Clinton. Glenn Simpson, do you know how many times Glenn Simpson met with Natalia Vlesenskaya? Myself? No. Would it surprise you that the Clinton campaign dirty ops arm met with Natalia Vlesnitskaya more times than the Trump campaign did? Well, this is an area that I'm not going to get into, as I indicated at the outset. Did you ever interview Glenn Simpson? Um, again, I'm going to pass on that. According to, I'm going to change topics here. Um, According to notes from the State Department official Kathleen Kavalak, Christopher Steele told her that former Russian intelligence head Trubnikov and Putin advisor Surkov were sources for the Steele dossier. Now, knowing that these are not getting into whether these sources were real or not real, uh, was there any concern that there could have been disinformation that was going from the Kremlin into the Clinton campaign and then being fed into the FBI. As I said before, uh, this is an area that uh, uh, I, I cannot speak to. Is that because you're, it's not in the report or you're just, or because of an ongoing Internal investigation? deliberations, other proceedings and the like. Okay. Uh, when Andrew Weissman and Zanib Ahmed joined your team, were you aware that Bruce Orr, Department of Justice top official, directly briefed the dossier allegations to them in the summer of 2016? Again, I'm not going to speak to that issue. Okay. Uh, before you arrested George Papadopoulos in July of 2017, he was given $10,000 in cash in Israel. Do you know who gave him that cash. Again, it's outside our ambit and uh, uh, questions such as that should go to the FBI or the department. But it involved your investigation. It involved uh, persons involved in my investigation. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. We will stand in recess uh, for five or 10 minutes. Uh, uh, please, uh, folks, remain your seats. Allow this is JDP Breaking News. It is indeed, ladies and gentlemen. The uh, Robert Mueller testimony has just uh, taken a break for the uh, House I Intelligence Committee. This is the uh, second of two committees that Robert that Robert Mueller will testify in front of today. This one is chaired, of course, by a very liberal man, Mr. Adam Schiff, just like the other one was uh, chaired, of course, by uh, Jerry Nadler. All of them are expected to speak with House leadership, that being Nancy Pelosi, uh, later in the day to discuss uh, what happened in the Mueller report and in the hearing so far. From what we know so far, there's not really much that has been discovered. Of course, a few key points, and I feel like this, la this last... Uh, whatever amount of time, probably about an hour, a little bit over an hour, we'll see uh, Robert Moore really start to make headlines. I always feel like uh, 
in, in the last segment of whatever he does, he seems to, uh, or anyone does really, we haven't really seen him talk, but uh, with any, what, what anyone does, I feel like the news will be made in this in this second hour, or in this uh, last hour here. So I'm very, very uh, excited, eager to hear what he has to say, and they're taking about a five to ten minute break. We don't know much about how long the break will actually be, somewhere between five to ten minutes to uh, kind of refresh and understand uh, basically just a break. I mean, you know, they'll probably get water, go to the bathroom, things like that. Just a recess, very short recess, and uh, they are going to be coming back. Uh, if you're listening on the live stream, thank you so much. We still have a lot of people listening right now, and if you're not, uh, and you're listening on the podcast, thank you very much for doing that. You are listening to this without uh, many breaks, hopefully uh, many breaks, because we are tr- doing our best to edit everything out so you don't have to wait and listen around or try and skip uh, the audio on your player. By the way, you can get this podcast almost everywhere, and while I have you, we're going to play this little uh, promo that I made about uh, detailing how t- the J. Doherty podcast is everywhere. The J. Doherty podcast is available almost everywhere on the JD Media Network. Get it live and right after on j-doherty.com or surf your favorite podcast directories right after the broadcast. The J. Doherty podcast is available on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Google Play Podcast, Apple TV, the Blueberry Network, and we just started with iHeartRadio. Tune in anytime, anywhere. The J. Doherty podcast is online and on demand right here on the JD Media Network. Latest world and national news on technology, politics, and more. Listen live to the Jay Doherty podcast on j-doherty.com. That's what you're doing right now. You're listening live to the Jay Doherty podcast. We thank you for listening, and uh, we are broadcasting live here with special coverage of the Robert Mueller report on episode 93 of the Jay Doherty podcast. We're going to resume our coverage right here. If you're listening on the live stream, we're going to play some music or commercials, or maybe I'll just talk uh, off the record uh, that exclusive live stream stuff that uh, you, you hear so much about. Uh, or if you're on the podcast, we'll just uh, cut it out, and you will go right back to Robert Mueller, who presumably is going to come back, testify. We'll see in about eight minutes or so what he has to say. Here he is. Committee will come to order. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Thank you, Director. Um, Mr. Swalwell, you are recognized. Thank you. Director Mueller, as a prosecutor, you would agree that if a witness or suspect lies or obstructs or tampers with witnesses or destroys evidence during an investigation that generally that conduct can be used to show a consciousness of guilt. Would you agree with that? Yes. Let's go through the different people associated with the Trump campaign and this investigation who lied to you and other investigators to cover up their disloyal and unpatriotic conduct. If we could put Exhibit 8 up. Director Mueller, I'm showing you Campaign Chairman Paul Manafort, Political Advisor Roger Stone, Deputy Campaign Manager Rick Gates, National Security Advisor Michael Flynn, Donald Trump's personal attorney Michael Cohen, and Foreign Policy Advisor George Papadopoulos. These six individuals have each been charged, convicted, or lied to your office or other investigators. Is that right? Yes, although I I look askance at uh, Mr. Stone, because he is... uh, he, he, he is in a, a, a different case here in D.C. 
So National Security Advisor Flynn lied about discussions with Russian ambassador related to sanctions. Is that right? That's correct. Michael Cohen lied to this committee about Trump Tower Moscow. Is that correct? Yes. George Papadopoulos, the president's senior foreign policy advisor, lied to the FBI about his communications about Russia's possession of dirt on Hillary Clinton. Is that right? Correct. Yes. The president's campaign chairman, Paul Manafort, lied about meetings that he had with someone with ties to Russian intelligence. Is that correct? That's, that's true. And your investigation was hampered by Trump campaign officials' use of encryption communications. Is that right? We believe that to be the case. You also believe to be the case that your investigation was hampered by the deletion of electronic messages. Is that correct? It would be, yes. And generally, any uh, case would be if uh, those kinds of communications are, are used. For example, you noted that Deputy Campaign Manager Rick Gates, who shared internal campaign polling data with the person with ties to Russian intelligence at the direction of Manafort, that Mr. Gates deleted those communications on a daily basis. Is that right? I, I take your word. I, I, I say I don't know specifically, but if it's in the report, then I support it. That's right, Director. It's volume one, page 136. Thank you. In addition to that, other information was inaccessible because your office determined it was protected by attorney-client privilege. Is that correct? That is true. That would include that you do not know whether communications between Donald Trump and his personal attorneys Jay Sekulow, Rudy Giuliani, and others discourage witnesses from cooperating with the government. Is that right? I'm not going to talk to that. That would also mean that you can't talk to whether or not pardons were dangled through the president's attorneys because the shield of attorney-client privilege. Um, I, no, I, I'm not going to discuss that. Did you want to interview Donald Trump Jr.? I, I'm not going to discuss that. Did you subpoena Donald Trump Jr.? And I'm not going to discuss that. Did you want to interview the president? Yes. Director Mueller, on January 1st, 2017 through March 2019, Donald Trump met with Vladimir Putin in person six times, called him 10 times, and exchanged four letters with him. Between that time period, how many times did you meet with Donald Trump? Uh, I'm not going to uh, uh, get into that. He did not meet with you in person, is that correct? He did not. As a result of lies, deletion of text messages, obstruction and witness tampering, is it fair to say that you were unable to fully assess the scope and scale of Russia's interference in the 2016 election and Trump's role in that interference? I'm not certain I would uh, adopt that uh, characterization. In total, there may be pieces of it that are accurate, but not in total. But you did state in volume one, page 10, that while this report embodies factual and legal determinations, the office believes it to be accurate and complete to the greatest extent possible. Given these identified gaps, the office cannot rule out the possibility that the unavailable information would shed additional light. Is that, that correct? That is, that is correct. We don't know what we don't know. Why is it so important that witnesses cooperate and tell the truth in an investigation like this? Because the testimony of the witnesses goes to the heart of just about any criminal case you have. Thank you. And Mr. Chairman, I'd yield back. And thank you, Director Mullen. Ms. Stefanik. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Mueller, as special counsel, did you review documents related to the origin of the counterintelligence investigation into the Trump campaign? On occasion. 
Was the Steele dossier one of those documents that was reviewed? And I can't discuss that case. I'm just asking a process question. Have you read the Steele dossier? And again, I'm not going to respond to that. You were tasked as special counsel to investigate whether there was collusion between Russia and the Trump campaign associates to interfere with the 2016 election. And the FBI, we know, has relevant documents and information related to the opening of the CI investigation. Were you and your team permitted to access all of those documents? And again, I can't get into uh, that uh, investigative, uh, uh, what, we ca uh, what we collected and what we're doing with uh, uh, investigation, investigation materials. Let me ask it this way. Was there any limitation in your access to documents related to the counterintelligence? Uh, That's such a broad question. I have real, I have real trouble answering it. Did the special counsel's office undertake any efforts to investigate and verify or disprove allegations contained in the Steele dossier? Again, I can't respond. The reason I'm asking for the American public that is watching, it's, it's apparent that the Steele dossier formed part of the basis to justify the FBI's counterintelligence investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 election, as we know it was used to obtain a FISA warrant on Carter Page. This is why I'm asking these questions. Did your office undertake any efforts to identify Steele's sources or subsources? Again, the same answer. Was, were these tasks referred to any other agencies? Again, I can't speak to it. Did your office consider whether the Russian government used Steele's sources to provide Steele with disinformation? Again, I can't uh, speak to that. I understand I'm asking these questions just for the record, so thanks for your patience. Um, shifting gears here, did any member of the special counsel's office staff travel overseas as part of the investigation? Uh, yes, but I can't go further than that. I'm going to ask. Um, <laughs> to which countries? And I can't answer that. Did they meet with foreign government officials? Again, it's out of our, out of our bailiwick. Uh, did they meet with foreign private citizens? Again, I have the same response. Did they seek information about a U.S. citizen or any U.S. Again, citizens? Again, a territory that I, I cannot uh, uh, go to. Thank you for answering on the record. These are important questions for the American public, and we're hopeful that the IG is able to answer these questions. Um, I will yield the balance of my time to the ranking member. Thank the uh, gentlelady for... For yielding. Uh, Mr. Mueller, I want to go back to, we started off with Joseph Mifsud, who's at the center of this investigation. He appears in your report a dozen times or more. Uh, he really is the epicenter. He's at the origin of this. He's the man who supposedly knows about Clinton's emails. You've seen on the screen, the Democrats have continually put up all the prosecutions that you made against Trump uh, campaign officials and, and others. But I'm, I'm struggling to understand why you didn't indict Joseph Mifsud, who seems to be the man in the middle of all of this. Well, I, I think you understand that you cannot get into uh, either classified or uh, law enforcement information uh, without a, a rationale for doing it. And, uh, uh, I have said all I'm going to be able to say with regard to Mr. Mifsud. Were you aware 
of Kathleen Cavalek's involvement that she had met with Ms. Steele, the State Department official? And again, I can't respond to that question. It's outside my jurisdiction. Okay. Uh, the Carter Page FISA warrant was, was uh, re-upped three times. The last time it was re-upped was under, under your watch. So you, did you, were you in the approval process of that last time that the Carter Page warrant was? Well, was I can't there? speak uh, specifically about that warrant, but if you ask, or was I in the approval chain, the answer is no. Okay, that's very helpful. Thank you, Mr. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Yield back. Mr. Castro. Thank you, Chairman. Thank you, Special Counsel Mueller, for your testimony and for your, your service to our country. Donald Trump over the years has surrounded himself with some very shady people, people that lied for him, people that covered up for him, people that helped him enrich himself. I wanna talk specifically about one of those instances that's in your report. Specifically, let's turn to the Trump Tower Moscow project, which you described in your report as, quote, as a, quote, highly lucrative deal for the Trump organization. Is that right? Uh I would have to look at the, the uh, quote from the, the sure. report if you have it. Sure, it's on volume two, page 135. It's described as highly lucrative. Okay, I have it, sure. I have it, thank you, sir. Yeah, no problem. Your office prosecuted Michael Cohen and Michael Cohen was Donald Trump's lawyer for lying to this committee about several aspects of the Trump Organization's pursuit of the Trump Tower Moscow deal. Is that right? That's correct. According to your report, Cohen lied to, quote, minimize links between the project and Trump, unquote, and to, quote, stick to the party line, unquote, in order not to contradict Trump's public message that no connection existed between Trump and Russia. Is that right? That's an, uh, yes, that's correct. Now, when you're talking about the party line here, the party line in this case. If I can interject, the one thing I should have said at the outset, it, it was in the report and consequently, I do believe it to be true. Thank you. The party line in this case was that the deal ended in January 2016. In other words, they were saying that the deal ended in January 2016 before the Republican primaries. In truth though, the deal extended to June 2016, when Donald Trump was already the presumptive Republican nominee. Is that correct? Uh, that's correct. The party line was also that Cohen discussed the deal with Trump only three times, when in truth, they discussed it multiple times. Is that right? Also true, and the basis for, and part of the basis for the plea that, he'd, uh, that he uh, entered for uh, a line to this entity. Thank you and thank you for prosecuting that. The party line was also that Cohen and Trump never discussed traveling to Russia during the campaign, when in truth, they did discuss it. Is that right? That's accurate. And the party line was that Cohen never received a response from the Kremlin to his inquiries about the Trump Tower Moscow deal. In fact, Cohen not only received a response from the, from the Kremlin to his email, but also had a lengthy conversation with a Kremlin representative who had a detailed understanding of the project. Is that right? If it's in the, if it's in the report, that is accurate. Re recitation of that piece of the report. So you have, the, you have the candidate Trump at the time 
saying he had no business dealings with Russia, his lawyer who was lying about it, and then the Kremlin, who during that time was talking to President Trump's lawyer about the deal. Is that right? I can't adopt your characterization. Not only was Cohen lying on Trump's behalf, but so was the Kremlin. On August 30th, 2017, two days after Cohen submitted his false statement to this committee, claiming that he never received a response to his email to the Kremlin, Vladimir Putin's press secretary told reporters that the Kremlin left the email unanswered. That statement by Putin's press secretary was false, wasn't it? I uh, can't speak to that. Although it was right, widely reported in the press. Again, I can't speak to that, particularly if it was if it was dependent upon media sources. But it was consistent with the lie that Cohen had made to the committee. Is that right? I'm not certain I could go that far. So Cohen, President Trump, and the Kremlin were all telling the same lie. I defer to you on that. Uh, I can't get into details. Special Counsel Mueller, I want to ask you something that's very important to the nation. Did your investigation evaluate whether President Trump could be vulnerable to blackmail by the Russians because the Kremlin knew that Trump and his associates lied about connections to Russia related to the Trump Tower deal? Uh, I can't speak to that. I yield back, Chairman. Mr. Hurt. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Director Mueller, you've, you've been asked many times this afternoon about collusion, obstruction of justice and impeachment and the Steele dossier, and I don't think your answers are going to change if I ask you about those questions. So I'm gonna ask about a couple of press stories, because a lot of what the American people have received about this um, have been on press stories, and some of that has been wrong, and some of, that, some of those press stories have been accurate. Um, on April 13th, 2018, McClatchy reported that you had evidence Michael Cohen made a secret trip to Prague during the 2016 presidential election. Um, I think he told the, one of the committees here in Congress that was incorrect. Is that story true? I can't, uh, well, I, I can't go into it. Got you. Um, on October 31st, 2016, Slate published a report suggesting that a server at Trump Tower was secretly communicating with Russia's Alpha Bank, I and mean, I quote, akin to what criminal syndicates do. Uh, do you know if that story is true? Do not. Do not. You do not. Whether it's true. So d did you not investigate these allegations which are suggestive of potential Trump-Russia? Because I believe it's not true doesn't mean it would not be in investigated. It may well have been investigated, although my belief at this point is not true. Good copy. Thank you. Um, as a former CIA officer, uh, I want to focus on something I think both sides of the political aisle can agree on. That is, how do we prevent Russian intelligence and other adversaries from doing this again. And after overseeing in counterintelligence operations for 12 years as FBI director, and then investigating what the Russians have done in the 2016 election, you've seen tactics, techniques, and results of Russian intelligence operations. Our committee made a recommendation that the FBI should improve its victim notification process when a person, entity, or campaign has fallen victim to active measures of TAC. Um, would you agree with this, with this? It sounds like a worthwhile endeavor. I will tell you, though, that uh, the ability of our intelligence agencies to work together 
in this arena is perhaps more important than that. And adopting whatever, and I'm not that familiar with the legislation, but whatever uh, legislation will encourage uh, us working together by us, I mean the FBI, CIA, NSA, and the rest, uh, it should be pursued aggressively early. Who, who do you think should be responsible within the federal government to counter disinformation? Uh, I'm no longer in the federal government, so I... <laughs> but, but you had, you've had a long, career, uh, storied career, and I don't think there's anybody who better understands the threat that we are facing than you. Do you, do you have an opinion as a former FBI officer? As to? As to who should be the coordinating points within the federal government on how to deal with well, disinformation? I, I don't want to wade in those waters a good copy. Um, one of the most striking things in, in your report is that the Internet Research Agency not only undertook a social media campaign in the U.S., but they were able to organize um, political rallies um, after the election. Um, our, our committee issued a, um, a, a report and, and insight on saying that Russian active measures um, are growing with frequency and intensity, and including their expanded use of groups such as uh, the IRA, and these groups pose a significant threat to the United States and our allies in upcoming elections. Would you agree with that? Yes. In fact, one of the uh, other areas that we have to look at are many more companies, or not companies, many more countries are developing capability to replicate what the Russians had done. You, you alluded to making sure the other, all the elements of the federal government should be working together. Do you have a suggestion on a strategy to do that to counter this disinformation? Not overarching it. Is this, um, in your investigation, did you think that this was a single attempt by the Russians to get involved in our election, or did you find evidence to suggest they'll try to do this again? Oh, it wasn't a single attempt. Uh, they're doing it as we sit here, and they expect to do it uh, 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 during the, the next campaign. Director Mueller, I uh, appreciate your, your time and indulging us here um, in multiple committees, and I, and I yield back um, to the ranking member if he has. I yield back to the chairman. Mr. Heck. Director Mueller, I'd like to go to the motives behind the Trump campaign, encouragement and acceptance of help during the election. Obviously, a clear motivation was to help them in a, what would turn out to be a very close election, but there was another key motivation, and that was, frankly, the desire to make money. I always try to remember what my dad, who never had the opportunity to go beyond the eighth grade, taught me, which is that I should never, ever underestimate the capacity of some people to cut corners and even more in order to worship and chase the almighty buck. And this is important because I think it, in fact, does go to the heart of why the Trump campaign was so unrelentingly intent on developing relationships with the Kremlin. So let's quickly revisit one financial scheme we just discussed, which was the uh, Trump Tower in Moscow. We indicated earlier that it was a lucrative deal. Trump, in fact, stood, he and his company, to earn many millions of dollars on that deal. Did they not, sir? True. And Cohen... Mr. Cohen, his attorney, testified before this committee that uh, President Trump believed the deal required Kremlin approval. Is that consistent with what he told you? Uh, I'm not certain whether it's uh, Mr. Trump himself or others associated with that enterprise that had discussed the necessity of having the input from the state, meaning the Russian 
uh, government so, in order to, for it to go forward successfully. Isn't it also true that Donald Trump viewed his presidential campaign, as he told top uh, campaign aides, that the campaign was an infomercial for, uh, for uh, the Trump organization and his properties? I'm not familiar with that. Then let's turn to Trump campaign chair Paul Manafort. Did, in fact, your investigation find any evidence that Manafort intended to use his position as Trump's campaign chair for his own personal financial benefit? I, I would say there was some indication of that, but I won't go further. I think you'll find it on page 135 of volume one. During the transition, Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, met with Sergei Gorkov, the head of a Russian-owned bank that was under, is under U.S. sanctions. And according to the head of the bank, he met with Kushner in his capacity as CEO of Kushner Companies to discuss business opportunities. Is that correct, sir? I'm not uh, certain. Uh, it was I'm not certain about that. Let me just put it that way. It was asserted thusly in your report, volume one, 160, uh, pages 161 and 162. Your report notes that at the time, Kushner companies were trying to renegotiate a billion, with a B, a billion dollar lease of their flagship building at 666 Fifth Avenue, correct? I'm not familiar with those uh, financial arrangements. Also on page 162, where Kushner companies, it was asserted, had debt applications coming due on the company. Eric Prince, a supporter close to Trump? A supporter. An administrative... I just, a supporter, I was... Uh, yes. He met in the Seychelles during the transition with Kirill Dmitriev, who was the head of a sanctioned Russian government investment arm, which had close ties to Vladimir Putin. Correct, sir? Yes. Your investigation determined that Mr. Prince had not known nor conducted business with Dmitriev before Trump won the election. Correct? Well, I uh, defer to uh, the report on that. Yet it does. And yet Prince, who had connections to top administration, Trump administration officials, met with Dmitriev during the transition period to discuss business opportunities, among other things. But it wasn't just Trump and his associates who were trying to make money off this deal, nor hide it, nor lie about it. Russia was too. That was the whole point, to gain relief from sanctions, which would uh, hugely benefit their incredibly wealthy oligarchs. For example, sanctions relief was discussed at that June 9th meeting in the Trump Tower, was it not, sir? Yes, but so, it was not a main subject for discussion. Trump administration national security advisor designate Michael Flynn also discussed sanctions in a secret conversation with the Russian ambassador, did he not? Correct. So to summarize, Donald Trump, Michael Cohen, Paul Manafort, Jared Kushner, Eric Prince, and others in the Trump orbit all tried to use their connections with the Trump organization to profit from Russia, which was openly seeking relief from sanctions. Is that cr true, sir? I'm not, I'm not certain I can adopt uh, uh, what you well, want. I will, and I'd further assert that was not only dangerous, it was un-American. Greed corrupts. Greed corrupts, and it is a terrible foundation for developing American foreign policy. 
Mr. Ratcliffe. Director Mueller, uh, given your uh, constraints on what you're able or allowed to answer with respect to counterintelligence matters or other matters that are currently open and under investigation, you're not going to be able uh, to answer my remaining questions. So I thank you for your courtesies in the answers that you have given to my prior questions. And I do thank you for your extraordinary career and record of service and yield the balance of my time to the ranking member. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Ratcliffe and Mr. Mueller. Let me associate my words uh, with Mr. Ratcliffe. Um, and a few more questions. I want to clean up a little bit about the Eric Prince uh, Seychelles meeting. So Eric Prince testified before this committee uh, that he was surveilled by the U.S. government and the information from the surveillance was leaked to the press did you investigate whether Prince was surveilled and whether classified information on him was illegally leaked to the media? Uh, did you say, did you or will you? Or, well, well, I know you can't. I, I know you're not so going to I know, I know join back up in the ranks, but, um, but did you refer, were you aware that you know, Prince has made these allegations that he was surveilled? He's concerned that there were leaks about this surveillance. Um, did you make any referrals about these no, I, I can't get, I get in discussion on it. Okay. Uh, also want to, General Flynn, I know you came after the leak of his phone call with the Russian ambassador. Um, your time at, at FBI, uh, it would be a major scandal, wouldn't it, for the leak of the national security advisor and anyone. Uh, I, I, any can't adopt, I can't adopt that hypothesis. Um, Did your report name any people who were acting as U.S. government informants or sources without disclosing that fact? I can't answer that. Come. On uh, volume one, page 133 of your report, you state that Konstantin Kalimnik has ties to Russian intelligence. His name came up quite often today, but your report omits to mention that uh, Kalimnik has long-term relationships with U.S. government officials, including our own State Department. I can't be, uh, uh, I can't get into that. I know it's not in the report, uh, but, um, you know, if Kalimnik is being used in the report to say that he was possibly some type of Russian, Russian agent, and I think it is important for this committee to know if Kalimnik has ties to our own State Department, which it appears that he, that he does. Uh, uh, again, uh, it's the same territory that uh, I'm loath to get into. Um, um, you were asked this earlier about uh, Trump attorney John Dowd, that pieces of his phone call uh, were omitted from the report. It was ex what... Mr. Dowd calls exculpatory evidence. Um, are you concerned I'm about? Not, I'm not certain I would agree with that characterization. Okay. I think I said that before. Yes. Um, an American citizen from the Republic of Georgia, who your report misidentifies as a Russian, claims that, that your report omitted parts of a text message he had with Michael Cohen about stopping the flow of compromising tapes of Donald Trump. Uh, 
In the omitted portions, he says he did not know what the tapes actually showed. Was that portion of the exchange left out of the report for a reason? No, I, well, we got an awful lot into the report, but we did not get every uh, intersection or uh, conversation and the like. So I am not familiar with that particular uh, episode you're talking about. Thank you, Mr. Mueller. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Welch. Uh, Director Mueller, uh, did you find there was no collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia? Well, uh, we don't use the word co collusion. Uh, the word we usually use is uh, the, uh, well, not, co not collusion, um, but one of the uh, other uh, terms that, uh, uh, that fills in when collusion is not, uh, not used. In any event, the, uh, we decided not to use the word collusion in as much as it has no relevance to the criminal uh, law arena. The term is conspiracy that you prefer uh, to use? That's a conspiracy, exactly right. You help me, I'll help you. Thank you. It's an agreement. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And in fact, you had to then make a charging decision after your uh, investigation, uh, where unless there was enough evidence to prove beyond a reasonable doubt, you wouldn't make a charge, correct? Generally, that's the case. But making that decision does not mean your investigation failed to turn up evidence of conspiracy. Absolutely correct. And in fact, I'll go through some of the significant findings that your exhaustive investigation made. Uh, you found, as I understand it, that uh, from May 2016 until the end of the campaign, uh, campaign chairman Mr. Manafort gave private polling information to Russian agents, correct? Correct. Uh, well, and can you speak in the microphone? Yep, I will. And your, thank you. And your investigation found that in June 2016, uh, Donald Trump Jr. made an arrangement to meet at Trump Tower along with Jared Kushner and others, uh, expecting to receive dirt on the Hillary Clinton campaign, correct? Correct. Uh, and you found in your investigation that in July 27th, uh, candidate Trump called uh, on Russia to hack Hillary Clinton's email, something that for the first time they did about five hours later, correct? That's correct. And you also found that on August 2nd, Mr. Manafort uh, met with a person tied to Russian intelligence, Mr. Kalimnik, and gave him internal campaign strategy, aware that Russia was intending to do a misinformation social media campaign, correct? I'm not certain of the tie there. But the uh, fact of that meeting, you agree with? The fact with? of the meeting took place is accurate. Uh, in your investigation, as I understand it, also found that in the late summer of 2016, the Trump campaign, in fact, devised its strategy and messaging around WikiLeaks releases of materials that were stolen uh, from the Democratic National Committee, correct? Is that from the report? Yes, That's it's right. according yes. to Mr. Gates. Yes. Yes, thank you. And you also uh, talked earlier about the finding in your investigation that in September and October of 2016, Donald Trump Jr. had email communications with WikiLeaks now indicted about releasing information damaging to the Clinton campaign, correct? True. So, True. All right. 
So I, I understand you made a decision, prosecutorial decision, that this would not rise to proof beyond a reasonable doubt. But I ask if you share my concern. And my concern is, have we established a new normal from this past campaign that is going to apply to future campaigns so that if any one of us running for the U.S. House, any candidate for the U.S. Senate, any candidate for the presidency of the United States, aware that a hostile foreign power is trying to influence an election, has no duty to report that to the FBI or other authorities. Well, I hope. And, go ahead. I, I hope this is not the, nor the uh, new normal, but I fear it is. And would, in fact, have the ability, uh, without fear of legal repercussion, to meet with agents of that foreign entity hostile to the American election? I'm sorry, what is the question? Is that an apprehension that you share with me? Yes. And that there would be no repercussions whatsoever to Russia if they did this again. And as you stated earlier, as we sit here, they're doing it now. Is that correct? Uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, do you have any advice to this Congress as together what we should do to protect our electoral system and accept responsibility on our part to report to you or your successor when we're aware of hostile foreign engagement in our elections? Uh, I would say the basis, uh, first uh, line of defense really is uh, uh, the ability of the various agencies who have some piece of this uh, to not only share information but share expertise, uh, share targets, and use the full uh, resources that we have to address this problem. Thank you, Director Mueller. I yield back. Mr. Maloney. Thanks. Mr. Mueller, thank you. I know it's been a long day, and I want to make clear um, how much respect I have for your service and for your extraordinary career. And I want you to understand my questions in that context, sir. I'm going to be asking you um, about Appendix C. Um, uh, to, to your report, and uh, in particular, um, the decision not to do a sworn interview with the president. It's really the only subject I want to talk to you about, sir. Why didn't you subpoena the president? Uh, well, at the outset, after we took over and initiated the investigation. If, if I could ask you to speak on the microphone. Yeah, of course. Uh, at the outset, after we uh, took over the uh, investigation and began it and pursued it, quite obviously one of the things we anticipated wanting to accomplish that is getting, having the inter interview of the president. We negotiated from, uh, with him for a little over a year, and I think what you adverted to in the appendix lays out uh, our ex expectations as a result of those negotiations. But finally, uh, when it became, we were almost towards the end of our investigation and we'd had little success in pushing to get the interview of the president, uh, we decided that uh, we did not want to uh, exercise the subpoena powers uh, because of the necessity of uh, expediting the end of the uh, investigation. Was that, was that, excuse me, did you want to? I was going to say, uh, the expectation was, if we did subpoena the president, he would fight the subpoena, and we would be in the midst of the investigation for, for a substantial period of time. Right, but, but as we sit here, you've never had an opportunity to, to ask the president in-person questions under oath, and so obviously that must have been a difficult decision. And you're right, Appendix C lays that out, and indeed, I, I believe you described the 
the in-person interview as vital, that's your word, um, and of course you make clear you had the authority and the legal justification to do it. As you point out, you waited a year, you put up with a lot of negotiations, you made numerous accommodations which you lay out so that he could prepare and not be surprised. I take it you were trying to be fair to the president. Um, and by the way, you were going to limit uh, the questions when you got to written questions to Russia. Uh, only. And in fact, you did go with written questions after about nine months, sir, right? And, and, it, and the president responded to those, and you have some hard language for what you thought of those responses. What did you think of the president's written responses, Mr. Mueller? Uh, certainly not as useful as uh, the interview would be. In fact, in fact you, you pointed out, and, and by my count, there were more than 30 times when the president said he didn't recall, he didn't remember, no independent recollection, no current recollection. And I take it by your answer that it wasn't as helpful. Um, that's why you used words like incomplete, imprecise, inadequate, insufficient. Is that a fair summary of what you thought of those written answers? That is a fair summary. And I, I presume that comes from the report. And yet, sir, and I ask this respectfully. Uh, by the way, the president didn't ever claim the Fifth Amendment, did he? I'm not going to talk to that. Well, I, from what I can tell, sir, at one point it was vital, and then at one, another point it wasn't vital. And my question to you is, why did it stop being vital? And I can only think of three explanations. One is that somebody told you you couldn't do it, but nobody told you you couldn't subpoena the president. Is that right? No, we understood we could subpoena the president. Rosenstein didn't tell you. Whitaker didn't tell you. Barr didn't tell you you couldn't. We, we could serve a subpoena. So the only other explanation, well, there's two others, I guess. One, that you just flinched, that you, you had the opportunity to do it and you didn't do it. But, but, sir, you don't strike me as the kind of guy who flinches. I hope not. Well, then the third explanation... I hope not too, sir. And the third explanation I can think of is that, is that you didn't think you needed it. And in fact, what caught my eye was page 13 of volume two, where you said, in fact, you had a substantial body of evidence. And you cite a bunch of cases there, don't you, about how you often have to prove intent to obstruct justice without an in-person interview. That's the kind of nature of it. And you, and, you, and you use terms like a substantial body of evidence, significant evidence of the president's intent. So my question, sir, is did you have sufficient evidence of the president's intent to obstruct justice? And is that why you didn't do the interview? Uh, there's a balance. In other words, how much evidence you have to satisfy uh, the last element uh, against how much time are you willing to spend in the courts uh, uh, litigating uh, a, uh, uh, the uh, interview with the president. And in this case, you felt that you had enough evidence of the president's intent. We had to make a balanced decision in terms of uh, uh, how much evidence we had compared to the length of time it would take. And to sir, do because that. I have limited time, you thought that if you gave it to the attorney general or to this Congress, that there was sufficient evidence that it was better than that delay. Can you state that again? Well, that it was better than the delay to present the sufficient evidence, your term, of the president's intent to obstruct justice to the attorney general and to this committee. Isn't that why you didn't do the interview? No, the, way, the reason we didn't do the interview is because of the length of time that it would take to uh, uh, resolve the issues attendant to that. Thank you, sir. Ms. Demings. Thank you so much, Mr. Chairman and Director Mueller. Thank you so much for being a person of honor and integrity. Thank you for your service to the nation. We are certainly better for it. Director Mueller, I too want to focus on the written um, responses that the president did provide and the continued efforts to lie and cover up what happened during the 2016 election. Were the president answers submitted under oath? Yes, yes. 
Thank you, they were. Were these all the answers your office wanted to ask the president about Russia interference in the 2016 election? No, not necessarily. So there were other yes. questions that you wanted to answer. Did you analyze his written answers on Russia interference to draw conclusions about the president's credibility? No, it was perhaps one of the factors, but uh, nothing more than that. It was one of the factors. So what did you determine about the president's credibility? And that I can't get into. Director Mueller, I know based on your decades of experience, you probably had an opportunity to um, analyze the credibility of countless witnesses, but you weren't able to do so with this witness. Well, with every witness, particularly a, a leading witness, uh, one assesses the credibility day by day, witness by witness, document by document. And, and uh, that's what happened in this case. So we started well, with very little, and by the end, we ended up with a fair amount. But, yeah, fair amount. Thank you. Well, let's go through some of the answers to take a closer look at his credibility, because it seems to me, Director Mueller, that his answers were not credible at all. Do some of President Trump's incomplete answers relate to Trump Tower Moscow? Yes. For example, did you ask the president whether he had had at any time directed or suggested that, that discussions about Trump Moscow project should cease? Should what? Cease. Uh, do you have a citation? Yes, we're still in Appendix C, Section 1, 7. The first page? Uh-huh. Says the president did not answer whether he had at any time directed or suggested that discussions about the Trump-Moscow project should cease, but he has since made public comments about this topic. Okay. And the question was? Did the president, uh, let me go on to the next question. Did the president fully answer that question in his written statement to you about the Trump-Moscow project ceasing? Uh, Again, in Appendix C. Uh, and can you direct me to the uh, particular paragraph you're adverting to? It would be Appendix C-C1, but let me move forward. Nine days after he submitted his written answers, didn't the president say publicly that he, quote, decided not to do the project, unquote? And that is in your I, uh, report. I, 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 I'd, ask you, I'd ask you if you would to point out the, the particular paragraph that you're uh, okay. focused we, on. We, we can move on. Did the president answer your follow-up questions? Uh, according to the report, there were follow-up questions because of the president's incomplete answers about the Moscow project. Did the president answer your follow-up questions either in writing or orally? And we're now in no. volume two, page 150 through 151. No. He did not. In fact, there were many questions that you asked the president that he simply didn't answer. Isn't that correct? True. And there were many answers that contradicted other evidence you had gathered during the investigation. Isn't that correct, yes. Director Mueller? Director Mueller, for example, the president in his written answer stated he did not recall having advanced knowledge of WikiLeaks releases. Is that correct? I think that's what he said. But didn't your investigation uncover evidence that the president did, in fact, have advanced knowledge of WikiLeaks, public releases of emails damaging to his opponent? And I can't get into that area. Did your investigation determine, after very careful vetting of Rick Gates and Michael Cohen's, that you found them to be credible? That we found the president to be credible? That you found Gates and Cohen to be credible in their I'm statements not, not about WikiLeaks. The, the, those areas I'm not going to discuss. 
Okay. Could you say, Director Mueller, that the president was credible? I can't answer that question. Director Mueller, isn't it fair to say that the president's written answers were not only inadequate and incomplete because he didn't answer many of your questions, but where he did, his answer showed that he wasn't always being truthful? There, uh, I would say, uh, generally. Generally. Director Mueller, it's one thing for the president to lie to the American people about your investigation, falsely claiming that you found no collusion and no obstruction, but it's something else altogether for him to get away with not answering your questions and lying about them. And as a former law enforcement officer of almost 30 years, I find that a disgrace to our criminal justice system. Thank you so much. You, I yield back to the chairman. Mr. Krishnamurthy. Director Mueller. Thank you for your devoted service to your country. Earlier, earlier today, you described your report as detailing a criminal investigation, correct? Yes. Yes. Director, since it was outside the purview of your investigation, your report did not reach counterintelligence conclusions regarding the subject matter of your report. That's true. For instance, since it was outside your purview, your report did not reach counterintelligence conclusions regarding any Trump administration officials who might potentially be vulnerable to compromise or blackmail by Russia, correct? Those uh, decisions probably were made in the counter uh, the uh, FBI. But not in your report, correct? Not in our report. We advert to the... Uh, uh, the counterintelligence uh, counter uh, goals of our investigation, which were secondary to any criminal uh, wrongdoing that we could find. Let's talk about one administration official in particular, namely President Donald Trump. Other than Trump Tower Moscow, uh, your report does not address or detail the president's financial ties or dealings with Russia, correct? Correct. Similarly, since it was outside your purview, your report does not address the question of whether Russian oligarchs engaged in money laundering through any of the president's businesses, correct? Correct. And of course, your office did not obtain the president's tax returns, which could otherwise show foreign financial sources, correct? I'm not going to speak to that. I'm not going to speak to that. In July 2017, the, rep, the president said his personal finances were off limits or outside the purview of your investigation, and he drew a quote-unquote red line around his personal finances. Were the per president's personal finances outside the purview of your investigation? I'm not going to get into that. Were you instructed by anyone not to investigate the president's personal finances? No. Mr. Mueller, um, I'd like to turn your attention to counterintelligence risks associated with lying. Individuals can be subject to blackmail if they lie about their interactions with foreign countries, correct? True. For example, you successfully charged former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn of lying to federal agents about his conversations with Russian officials, correct? Correct. Since it was outside the purview of your investigation, your report did not address how Flynn's false statements could pose a national security risk because the Russians knew the falsity of those 
uh, statements, right? I cannot get into that mainly because there are many elements of the FBI that are looking at uh, different aspects of that issue. Currently? Currently. Thank you. As you noted in volume two of your report, Donald Trump repeated five times in one press conference, Mr. Mueller, in 2016, quote, I have nothing to do with Russia. Of course, Michael Cohen said Donald Trump was not being truthful because at this time, Trump was attempting to build Trump Tower Moscow. Your report does not address whether Donald Trump was compromised in any way because of any potential false statements that he made about Trump Tower Moscow, correct? I think that's right. I think that's right. Director Mueller, I want to turn your attention to um, a couple other issues. You've served as FBI director during three presidential elections, correct? Yes. And during those three presidential elections, you have never initiated an investigation at the FBI looking into whether a foreign government interfered in our elections the same way you did in this particular instance, correct? Uh, I would say I personally know, but uh, the FBI quite obviously has uh, the, uh, how do you defense an attack such as the Russians undertook in 2016? Now. Director Mueller, um, is there any information you'd like to share with this committee that you have not so far today? Well, that's a broad question. <laughs> um, and it'd take me a while to get an answer to it, but I'll say no. <laughs> um, Mr. Mueller, uh, you said that every American should pay very close attention to the systematic and sweeping fashion in which the Russians uh, interfered in our democracy. Um, are you concerned that we are not doing enough currently to prevent this from happening again? Well, I'll speak generally and uh, what I said in my uh, opening statement uh, this morning and uh, here that, uh, no, much more needs to be done in order to protect against this uh, intrusion, not just by the Russians, but others as well. Thank you, Director. We have two uh, five-minute uh, periods remaining, um, Mr. Nunes and myself. Uh, Mr. Nunes, you are recognized. Mr. Mueller, it's been a long uh, day for you, and you've had a long, great career. Uh, I want to thank you for your longtime service, starting in Vietnam, uh, obviously in the U.S. Attorney's Office, Department of Justice, and the FBI. And I want to thank you for uh, doing something you didn't have to do. You came here upon your own free will, and we appreciate your time today. With that, I yield back. Thank you, sir. Dr. Muller, I want to, uh, to close out my questions, turn to some of the exchange you had with Mr. Welsh a bit earlier. I'd like to see if we can broaden the aperture at the end of the hearing. From your testimony today, I gather that you believe that knowingly accepting foreign assistance during a presidential campaign is an unethical thing to do. And a crime. And a crime. Circumstances, yes. And to the degree, and a crime of, uh, given certain cir circumstances. And to the degree that it undermines our democracy and our institutions, we can agree that it's also unpatriotic. True. And wrong. True. The standard of behavior for a presidential candidate, or any candidate for that matter, shouldn't be merely whether something is criminal. There should be held to a higher standard. You would agree? 
Yeah, I, I will not get into that because it goes to the, the standards to be applied by other institutions besides ours. Well, I'm just referring to ethical standards. We should hold our Absolutely. elected officials to a standard higher than mere avoidance of criminality, shouldn't we? Absolutely. You have served this country for decades. You've taken an oath to defend the Constitution. You hold yourself to a standard of doing what's right. I would hope. You have. I think we can all see that. And uh, befitting the times, I'm sure your reward will be unending criticism. <laughs> but we are grateful. The need to act in an ethical manner is not just a moral one, but when people act unethically, it also exposes them to compromise, particularly in dealing with foreign powers. Is that true? True. Because when someone acts unethically in connection with a foreign partner, that foreign partner can later expose their wrongdoing and extort them. True. And that conduct, that unethical conduct, can be of a financial nature if you have a financial motive or an illicit business dealing. Am I right? Yes. But it can also just involve deception. If you are lying about something that can be exposed, then you can be blackmailed. Also true. In the case of Michael Flynn, he was secretly doing business with Turkey, correct? Yes. And that could open him up to compromise that financial relationship. I presume. He also lied about his discussions with the Russian ambassador. And since the Russians were on the other side of the conversation, they could have exposed that, could they not? Yes. If a presidential candidate was doing business in Russia and saying he wasn't, Russians could expose that too, could they not? I leave that to you. Well, let's, let's look at Dmitry Peskov, the spokesperson for the Kremlin, someone that the Trump Organization was in contact with to make that deal happen. Your report indicates that Michael Cohen had a long conversation on the phone with someone from Dmitry Peskov's office. Presumably, the Russians could record that conversation, could they not? Yes. And so if candidate Trump was saying, I have no dealings with the Russians, but the Russians had a tape recording, they could expose that, could they not? Yes. That's the stuff of counterintelligence nightmares, is it not? Well, it has to do with counterintelligence and the need for a strong counterintelligence uh, uh, entity. It does indeed. And when this was revealed that there were these communications, notwithstanding the president's denials, the president was confronted about this, and he said two things. First of all, that's not a crime. But I think you and I have already agreed that that shouldn't be the standard, right, Mr. True. Mueller? True. And the second thing he said was, why should I miss out on all those opportunities? I mean, why indeed merely running a presidential campaign? Why should you miss out on making all that money was the import of his statement. Were you ever able to ascertain whether Donald Trump still intends to build that tower when he leaves office? Got a question, sir? Yes. Were you able to ascertain, because he wouldn't answer your questions completely, whether or if he ever ended that desire to build that tower? I'm not going to speculate on that. If the president was concerned that if he lost his election, he didn't want to miss out on that money, might he have the same concern about losing his re-election and missing out on that money? Speculation. 
The difficulty with this, of course, is we are all left to wonder whether the president is representing us or his financial interests. That includes my questions. Mr. Nunes, do you have any concluding remarks? Dr. Morrill, let me close by returning to where I began. Thank you for your service and thank you for leading this investigation. The facts you set out in your report and have elucidated here today tell a disturbing tale of a massive Russian intervention in our election, of a campaign so eager to win, so driven by greed that it was willing to accept the help of a hostile foreign power in a presidential election decided by a handful of votes in a few key states. Your work tells of a campaign so determined to conceal their corrupt use of foreign help that they risk going to jail by lying to you, to the FBI, and to Congress about it, and indeed, some have gone to jail over such lies. And your work speaks of a president who committed countless acts of obstruction of justice that, in my opinion, and that of many other prosecutors, had it been anyone else in the country, they would have been indicted. Notwithstanding the many things you have addressed today and in your report, there were some questions you could not answer given the constraints you're operating under. You would not tell us whether you would have indicted the president but for the OLC opinion that you could not. And so the Justice Department will have to make that decision when the president leaves office, both as to the crime of obstruction of justice and as to the campaign finance fraud scheme that individual one directed and coordinated and for which Michael Cohen went to jail. You would not tell us whether the president should be impeached, nor did we ask you, since it is our responsibility to determine the proper remedy for the conduct outlined in your report. Whether we decide to impeach the president in the House or we do not, we must take any action necessary to protect the country while he is in office. You would not tell us the results or whether other bodies looked into Russian compromise in the form of money laundering, so we must do so. You would not tell us whether the counterintelligence investigation revealed whether people still serving within the administration pose a risk of compromise and should never have been given a security clearance, so we must find out. We did not bother to ask whether financial inducements from any Gulf nations were influencing US, US policy, since it is the outside the four corners of your report, and so we must find out. But one thing is clear from your report, your testimony from Director Ray's statements yesterday, the Russians massively intervened in 2016 and they are prepared to do so again in voting that is set to begin a mere eight months from now. The president seems to welcome the help again. And so we must make all efforts to harden our elections infrastructure, to ensure there is a paper trail for all voting, to deter the Russians from meddling, to discover it when they do, to disrupt it, and to make them pay. Protecting the sanctity of our elections begins, however, with the recognition that accepting foreign help is disloyal to our country, unethical, and wrong. We cannot control what the Russians do, not completely, but we can decide what we do. And that this centuries-old experiment we call American democracy is worth cherishing. Director Mueller, thank you again for being here today. And before I adjourn, I would like to excuse you and Mr. Zebley. Everyone else, please remain seated.
All right, there we go. A six-plus hour hearing there. We're seeing some of the Fox News Channel coverage there as well. That is correct, ladies and gentlemen. It has been a TJDP special report, and we're broadcasting live right here from the J. Dory Podcast International Headquarters. We thank you so much for uh, tuning in to our live coverage of the Robert Mueller Report. We're uh, just about the peak of our uh, just over seven hours on this broadcast. Hopefully the podcast will be shut, uh, shortened down when we edit it, so uh, you'll probably have you'll probably lose about an hour, probably be about six hours, maybe a little bit more, maybe a little less. We thank everyone for joining. It has been a long day for Mueller and a long day for Congress as well, and uh, we hope you enjoyed our special coverage live on the stream, especially if you have been listening our this whole morning to our coverage on the podcast. We know your time is very precious, and uh, also... There's a bunch of places in which you could listen to this, but you chose the Jay Doherty podcast, for which I am incredibly grateful. Stay tuned for episode 94, which you can hear everywhere you get the Jay Doherty podcast, in which I will feature a segment that I was actually invited to be on a radio show on Chicago's very own station. That's just a hint as to where I might be talking about if you are in Chicago. We thank everyone for uh, being here, for listening to episode 93 of the Jade Doherty Podcast. Very special edition. The longest podcast episode I've ever recorded in the history of my uh, life. So, uh, if that is not good enough for a good rating on iTunes or good ratings uh, in listenership, I don't know what it... No, I'm kidding. Uh, length does not matter. Just talking about content. And I hope you enjoyed this content uh, because I love making it and I hope you love listening to it because that's the only reason that I would do it. Thank you so much for listening. It is the uh, special, very special day for the podcast. We are very happy to have you listening here on the Jay Doherty Podcast to our special coverage of the Mueller Report. If you want more of the Jay Doherty Podcast, the master syndication network is jay-doherty.com. We're available on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, and basically anywhere you get your podcasts. If we're not available where you get your podcasts, let me know. Email me, j at jay-doherty.com. The song is called Panavi. It's by Newell, and uh, we are broadcasting live. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be right back for tomorrow's episode, episode 94. Six more episodes away from episode 100. So stay tuned for that. We're doing a live Q&A. If you have any questions that you want me to answer, 312-625-8492 is the number. Call or text those questions in, and I will read all of them. We have a lot coming into this show, so I want to make sure I have all of your questions recorded and everything. We appreciate everyone coming in, uh, listening to this episode of the Jade Doherty Podcast. We will be back tomorrow. Special report.